detective? Thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Al Care Hall, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Al. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, celestial event. How it works. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Barwell. I am joined by my co-host, Bill Van Vegel. Bill, how are you tonight? It's uh, been a slice since the last time we got together, so I'm excited to be able to talk. You know, we had our summer vacations. We got the kids back to school. I started school. You kind of got your work ramped up. You had some projects going. So it's good to just... COVID. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, you got COVID too. (laughs) That took a giant chunk out of things there. The whole family did. Yeah, unfortunately. And you beat it through. And we actually even had a colleague today, one of my good friends. He's been out for the week with COVID. So it's not going away. That's not this kind of podcast. We're here to lift each other up and talk about movies, fantasy action, horror, sci-fi, documentary, music, whatever it is. So we, I know that both of us have a whole cackle of movies to talk about. So Whenever you're ready, Nathan, let's get right into it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you're right. There's a ton of stuff uh, that's come out because honestly, we haven't done one of these um, weekly, not weekly, but we use Phantom Galaxy review episodes uh, in a while since probably like the mid uh, mid summer or a little bit later. So there's a ton of things. Now, as it happens, I think between you and I being on different podcasts and stuff, we probably talked about some of those movies in some capacity elsewhere. And if you guys haven't listened, Bill had a whole episode while he was away uh, camping. He came back and uh, of individual reviews that he reviewed. And it's sort of a what we call an evergreen episode because I think, Bill, everything you reviewed has probably already been out for like 10, 20 years. <laughs> there well, were a yeah, couple I don't, new I don't, I don't think I'm giving away yeah. state secrets with that so, one. So you don't have to think, oh, it's probably out of the theater now. Well, most of that stuff was never in the theater. So uh, you could go back and check it out because there was a lot of really I, – I took down about seven or eight movies out of those the, that list. Uh, well, well, they may have been in the theaters, but it was 1978. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. So um, I will – uh, we've got a couple, lots of brand new stuff. The streaming has been knocking it out of the park lately, just in terms of content. And, and there are a couple of uh, bigger movies that I definitely wanted to discuss and have a, uh, an opportunity for Phantom Galaxy to weigh in on. But uh, what I want to do first is turn it over to Bill and let Bill kick it off with one of his films. All righty. Well, welcome back, everybody. Well, I guess I'm welcoming myself back. I guess that <laughs> sounds kind of awkward. Welcome back to the listening part of the uh, audience. Thank you. And you know what? The last little while, as Nathan kind of alluded to, is it was an opportunity to kind of just let your hair down and watch. Because I was doing like some university courses. I was getting my year ready for the school and it's begun, whatever. And keeping up with Land of the Creep stuff and Phantom Galaxy stuff. I just wanted to watch movies that I wanted to watch. And so in the next few uh, reviews are going to be 2022 films. 
This one is not. The first movie that I'm going to review is one that is a feel-good. I have, as Joel Robertson from Retro Movie Geek, one of our good friends says, CND, Cinematic Nostalgia Disorder. And the movie is 1985's Fandango. I'm going to tell you right now, I love the film. Okay, I'm going to get that out of the way with right off the top. But I'll explain why. My CND portion of this episode is back when I was in high school, probably in the late 80s, I was homesick one day. I don't get sick that often, but I was homesick. I had a sore throat, upset stomach, the whole kit and caboodle. So I was on the couch. I had my Canada Dry ginger ale. I had my chicken soup, whatever. And in Toronto, they have a TV station called City TV. City TV everywhere. And they used to show movies during the day and at night. And one of the ones they had on a loop of about every six to eight months they would show is Fandango. But I had never seen it. So, you know, here, here I am with, you know, 102 degree temperature laying there. And I turn this movie on. I see it from the beginning. And it uplifts me. And when you got 102 temperature and this is uplifting, that says something. And I, <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. I mean, you can relate to that completely. Yeah. And, and so this movie, you know, it has that connection to me. But the other thing that stuck with me is the story is good. And there's a few prominent actors in this that you see kind of before they hit their peak. Okay. So Fandango from 1985 was directed by Kevin Reynolds. But before I get into Kevin Reynolds, I'll actually tell you what the IMDb synopsis is. Take this for a grain of salt. Five college buddies from the University of Texas, circa 1971, embark on a final road trip odyssey across the Mexican border before facing up to uncertain futures in Vietnam and otherwise. This is a period piece. When this was uh, created and directed, it would have been about 15 years prior. And so it wasn't that far in the distant future. It would be like us looking back to the mid-2000s. And to me, the mid-2000s is nothing. But, you know, to a certain generation, that's, you know, beyond their capability. It has a couple actors. But as I said, I'll get into the director. Kevin Reynolds, this was his debut feature. He had done, I believe, maybe a short and some student-slash-college films. But he hadn't done a, a movie of any sort. He, he later went on to do a few couple movies that you would have heard of. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And Nathan, I stand corrected. Is that the one that had Brian Adams do the theme? Uh, it is indeed. Um, that is so Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I yep. do, I the do other movie that Kevin Reynolds was attached to that involved Kevin Costner was Waterworld, which Waterworld. is sort of infamous. <laughs> which actually I haven't seen. So that might make a, a really fascinating episode where I get to watch Waterworld for the first time. You know, Waterworld keeps coming up in all these different conversations. I feel like I've taught every time I do some kind of podcast, somebody mentions Waterworld and I'm actually, I actually partial to Waterworld have the error release. So we may have to make that happen, Bill. Yeah. I, I think, is it, is it Tommy from real talk is um, who, who champions it? I forget. Gabe West, one of them champions Waterworld. It's one of those movies, we probably have a couple of them on the show tonight, where uh, it becomes defined by the fact it's a big box office bomb, but that's really all that people can remember about it. So no one 
remembers the actual unless say you know who people who didn't really see the movie were sort of nominally aware but these all oh, that movie's bad because it didn't make money at the box office it had already lost money by the time it came out because of how much money was spent so i mean uh, very little i think of the perception of that film has anything to do with uh people actually seeing it <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you got to remember like a movie like The Thing bombed as well. So take that for what you will. That Waterworld's not the level of thing. I'll, no, say, I'll put no, that no, out no. there. But I feel like even in back in 95, the primary uh, reason it was sort of um, reviled had little to do with uh, the actual quality of the film and more about the fact that, oh, this movie's bad because it lost so much money. Yeah. I mean, it's somewhere between The Thing and Howard the Duck. Probably Reynolds is a decent director. I think that uh, he had, he ended up being kind of a guy who was like a director for hire. Um, memory serves, he did direct a movie later on in 2011 called The Eagle, which was a, a movie that involved with a couple of Roman soldiers uh, uh, who end up on the other side of a wall and surrounded by the Celts. Uh, there were a couple of films like that. Well, the other that film, Centurion was the other one. The other film I noted down that Kevin Reynolds had done was the one a few years back, Risen. He directed Risen. Oh, did he? I didn't see that one. I know that was uh, Joseph Fiennes, isn't it, right? Yeah. It's, um... yeah it's a, it's a, it, was a, it was actually not a bad film. So, you know, so the guy, he's what I would call a working man's director. Yeah, that's right. Give him, give him a script. You know, he's kind of like uh, at a certain point, certain actors just, they do it as a living. You know, Brian Dennehy does a job to do a job. Kevin Reynolds is the same kind of thing. Uh, and it stars a, a, a pre-Bull Durham Kevin Costner. I think the, the biggest movie he had done up until this was the body in the big chill. This that might've been his, his, his biggest thing up and his, his career was kind of just arcing and it was just before he had that big break. So you kind of see a glimpse into what Kevin Costner would become. The other name in here that you would know would be Judd Nelson, a young Judd Nelson pre breakfast club, pre St. Elmo's fire, pre new Jack city. So you kind of see him as, I'm going to bank him at about 23, 24 in this film, playing a 22-year-old, 21-year-old. The other actor in here that you probably know would be Sam Robards. Sam Robards, together, a journeyman actor that every once in a while shows up in a big film. He was in American Beauty. He was in Casualties of War. He was in Gossip Girl. He was in quite a bit. The other main actor a couple of actors. There's an actor called Chuck Bush. Chuck Bush was only in, I think he has four acting credits. Uh, Terror in the swamp was one of them. And then he, <laughs> and then he pulled a Kirk Cameron and does and produces religious videos. That's what he's done since then. <laughs> okay. Uh, you've got Pepe Sierra who was in the book, the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai yeah. Scarface and the jerk. And he's always kind of like a side guy. And the final one is an actor called Brian Cezak, Cezak, C-E-S-A-K, who has about three lines and is kind of like the corpse in Weekend at Bernie's in this film. He's just kind of dragged around. So what is the film about? Okay. Well, the, the term Fandango means, as they have in the beginning of the film, it's a lively Spanish dance. Okay, I think it's kind of like a, ge a generic, let's do the twist, you know, let's do uh, the waltz. You do the fandango and you just, you know, uh, dance on the dance floor. It opens, it's got a great soundtrack. It opens with it does, Cream's, yeah. 
cream song politician. And Kevin Costner is at a frat house celebrating on the 15th of May, 1971, the end of the college year. Everybody's graduated or at least has finished in 1971. And, you know, they're drinking. It's kind of like a scene almost out of Animal House. You know, I think there's a full moon that hangs out of people's pants. So Sam Robards has cut his marriage short. He doesn't want to be a corpse to a possible corpse after going back to Vietnam to his wife. He thought he'd do the right thing, call off the marriage so that she can go off and have a life without having to wait on him, not knowing whether he'd come back. But he really does love her and it's killing him on the inside. The movie kind of takes a somber moment for a moment. And all of a sudden, Kevin Costner says, all right, guys, road trip time. And you're like, what? Road trip time? They decide to all get into Judd Nelson's car and take a road trip there in Texas, and they're going to go visit the legend of Dom. We don't know what that means. Okay. So they're getting in this car, and they're going to the Mexican border. Okay. And so there's this thing called Dom that they all want to visit. Okay. It's a, a brilliant opening where they get in the car, they take off uh, Bush, Nelson, Robards, and Sejak, who's basically passed out drunk in the back seat. And, and they're flying across this desert road and Elton John's Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting is just blaring. And it's, I, I'm not a huge Elton John fan, but I always loved that song. And I think this movie is what made me love that song. It's fantastic. You can see Costner has that look to him. He's got the presence. You get an early peek at what he will, will become. They run out of gas. They push their car through the desert. And in an effort to revive the car moving, they tie it to a train that's whipping by. And they tie it to the front bumper. Well, you can imagine what happens when a speeding train gets the part of a car. The, the, the train takes off with the bumper. So now they're left with a car with no gas and no bumper. So they got to push this car down the road, miles and miles in deserted highway land until they can finally find a gas station. And as we're going, more of the songs from the late 60s, early 70s are kicking in. All right. So the song Spooky by Classics 4 kicks in. Fantastic song. They run out of, when they get to the gas station, the guy there says, you know, the parts won't be ready till tomorrow. Uh, my guy who's working on them, my mechanic is out. You're going to have to find something to do tonight. There's a small hotel down the road. So what do they do? They got barely any money. They don't have any food. They hook up with a couple high school girls and they go shooting off bottle rockets in the cemetery. Like it, it's, it's amazing. It's got this drama slash you know not even dark comedy just an underlying comedy it's a situational thing i'm sure there are people that were 10 years older than i who can remember being in that time at that time place okay so as the trip goes on judd nelson gets increasingly agitated and bush is the strong but silent type he's the educated guy he's reading herman hess He's yeah. reading Kabil Gabron while they're doing this road trip. This is before your cell phones, before your whatever. He's actually reading while the car is going away. There is an epic scene 
at a airport, a weather-beaten, dilapidated airport led by the actor Marvin J. McIntyre, who was in The Running Man, Short Circuit, and Pale Rider. And let's just say Judd Nelson overcomes one of his fears in one of the most hilarious scenes you're ever going to watch at an airport, okay? That scene's ridiculous. It, it, is, it is absolutely off the charts, that scene. They, so they, they pretend that they are journalists, and I'm not going to say anymore. you got to see the film for that. From there, obviously the car had been patched together, piecemealed together. They found a front end to it. And then they get to where they're going to discover what Dom is. I'm not going to say what that is, but they get this half cocked idea. Kevin Costner wants to get Robards back together with his fiance and the wedding it comes together, but they got nothing. They got no money. They've got no ring. They've got no food. They got no place to hold the wedding. They find this local town and they able to shimmy this wedding together based on the good efforts and intentions of the locals. It's basically, I remember watching this movie for the first time, and when that scene comes up, you're watching it, and you're like, oh, this, I remember learning about this in, in kindergarten. It's stone soup, right? Yeah. You, you, <laughs> it's it's you kind of that deal. You, they literally threw it together, and I don't even know that Sam Robards had a suit. Well, it's the, it's the everybody brings a little sort of yeah. thing. They appeal so to the nature of, yeah. Yeah, the good nature of the very hospitable Texans. Anybody here who's from Texas, I've been there at least once. And the people there are amazing. Regardless of what you think of, uh, you know, social situation, politics, whatever, they are great people in Texas. And so they're sitting there, they bring this, you know, this table up and they go, oh, a wedding's coming. Oh, yeah. guess what? The caterer's truck just spilled over all over the highway and a whole session of beer is all over. Everybody wants gonna, to be included. <laughs> who, who, what do we do now? And this old guy goes, do you like beer? And <laughs> and all of a sudden he brings in this beer. Somebody brings potato salads. And, and yeah. before the end of the night, the whole town is lit up. They got a band. They've got everything. And it's fantastic. Okay. I know that I'm kind of underplaying it a little bit. There's a scene with McIntyre you know what? I'm not going to go there. Yeah, this is kind I'm of not, one of those. I'm uh, not going to go there. It's a film made of incidents, right? It's a road movie. It's a road. And it is my all-time favorite road trip film. It's a it's good. A, it's a. It's kind of a road trip film combined with a buddy film, but it's got a bit of a conscience to it. And even though you do, you can actually watch it in chunks, and you wouldn't need it to be connected, you want to see the journey, and that's what I like about it. Yes, Sorry. I agree. It's a it's a good movie. I haven't seen it in years, though. You know, it's been a very long time. It's probably been, gosh, Bill, I don't know how long it's been. Um, but the the main thing I remember about it's a definitely recommend on my on my end. Um, I think that Spielberg and Amblin were behind releasing this, but I don't know. If yeah, Spielberg well, in super fact, happy. in fact, Spielberg recruited Reynolds. Yeah, to do the film because it had, it was based on a college short. And Spielberg goes, we can do something with this. He sort of said later, well, we didn't really release it the way we were supposed to. And, and I guess there's been talk that he was disappointed with what was a finished movie. But, you know, all that stuff aside, it's a good movie. It's probably not the same movie, obviously, that, some, that Spielberg himself might have made if he'd taken it on. However, I think that tonally, 
Vietnam is sort of like hovering over the movie, but it's not like it doesn't all encompass it. So I wouldn't I wouldn't call it a war movie. By oh, it's not. Well, no, no, not a war movie. It's not even a. Uh, it's not even a socially conscious movie. Exactly. No. It's just that 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 element is hanging over it in uh, in a way. Like this isn't this is an easy rider where every discussion is about what is America, you know. It, it's it's just kind of the impetus to do the road trip. It's it's the impetus, but it does play into it informs the story to a degree. But the movie, it's the the smart move is it's not a war film. It's not a film about Vietnam or even running away from Vietnam or anything like and, that. And nor does it take any value on either side. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's just that it places it in a very specific uh, time and place, and then it has these fun little sort of adventures that uh, that some of them, like you say, are very very funny, and it's a very amiable kind of a movie. I think that if it didn't have some of those pieces though, and it hadn't, it doesn't sort of nestle itself into this context, then it might seem a lot fluffier. You know, you then you just have sort of like oh, fun buddy road, yeah. road movie. I but, mean, it could, it could have turned into a Van Wilder, but it didn't. Oh yeah, yeah, and 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 to be fair, like Reynolds doesn't even kind of go that direction. It's not. We're not talking road trip. We're not talking like you know even the Hangover. This is a movie that uh, it, it it keeps its human element pretty like close to us, but it is it is funny. I think it's very charming. Um, visually, and I I think this is probably why Reynolds was like picked up to do some of these bigger films like Robin Hood and stuff afterwards, is because the visual sensibility of the movie, um, if, if, if the, the scene, you're referencing uh, the, the comedy that involves uh, the, the guy trying to get over one of his fears. Like, the way that scene is shot is it's a kind of a visual gag, but it's also funny, uh, but visually speaking, it's very strong. It's very dynamic, and it's a good movie, and it's to see one of Costner's earlier movies. It's a film I haven't thought about in years, honestly, but um, yeah, it's do a rewatch for me. There's the one scene where he's overcoming his fears, and McIntyre is the pilot. And he's up there, and he's halfway up there, and this airplane is literally held together by duct tape on the wing. I was gonna say, and the inside has Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles, and, and he's up there flying. He's at, you know, 20,000 feet, and he goes, do you mind if I spark up? <laughs> Chuck Nelson is just like, oh my god. Yeah, there's some cool things in there. Like I like the the little details. Funny, my kids, we were going somewhere over the we on vacation, and they're like, Dad, how long has Sonic Drive-In been along been around? Well, long enough that Sonic Drive-In is in this film, and they go in and eat at it. Uh, a very early version. Well, not that early, you know. If this is 1971, Sonic as a restaurant has been around since about the 50s. It's been, you know, it was a company earlier than that. But I think we don't always think of that so that was kind of cool there's a part where they um after they end up uh there's a scene that kind of happens in the, the cemetery with the vietnam war soldier but then yeah. uh that eve that evening they're sleeping on the, the movie set of giant i thought that was pretty cool. yes yes the um, reference to giant with james yeah Dean. and then what dom turns out to be so yeah. a lot of fun um a good movie i i'm glad that you brought it up because it's one that um uh, kind of i'm like i'm very interested in in uh, revisiting it because I just, it's going to say, I kind of forgot existed. <laughs> well, and sometimes coming of age films go either the cheesy or the, or, you know, the romantic. This one doesn't really go either. Pretty even. Yeah. Even, Pretty even. even. And, and last thing I'll say, there's one scene where they go into town and they go to Sonic and they got very little money. And so Chuck Bush just, there's a couple that's making out 
and he's eating their burger and fries as they're making out. That was pretty funny. Yes. <laughs> they're, that... they're still that hungry. So yeah, if you haven't seen Fandango, I, to me, it's a nine out of 10. I love the film. Uh, I would watch it again, but it's one of those ones you want to watch about every five years. Yeah. I'm going to have to rewatch it before I give a rating, but you know, like I'm right now, my mindset would be probably like a 7.5 or something, which is yep. to me strong, yep. solid, like solid, a solid, movie. solid film. And, and again, I do have the CND with it. So that plays into it, yeah. but it, it's, you know, like if you kind of like the Thelma and Louise, it's not quite as over the top as that, but it's kind of got that camaraderie aspect to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, it's, it's a different kind of road picture. They've done a lot of movies like that um, from different perspectives, but I think that the yeah, Fandango definitely works. So um, what do you bring it to the table there? Nathan? Okay. Well, I'm going to review a newer movie and I'm going to keep my review much shorter because, um, and honestly, it's a film that probably you need to experience more than hear me sit and talk about it. And unfortunately, it uh, wasn't in theaters very long for, for, for even even in a summer in 2022 where movies are playing all summer long and movies like Jaws are being re-released and ending up in the top 10. Somehow still, this movie didn't quite find its audience. All that means is that, it, that right now, I think you can find it on streaming. I think it's, in a, it's a rent or buy situation where there, it's probably, the movie's probably 20 to $25. But that also means it will be coming to physical media probably much sooner this uh and it kind of popped out of nowhere honestly i didn't even know this movie had been made at the start of the summer i heard about it when it was released at cans and then it suddenly materialized into theaters in august uh, late august it was a movie i saw right before i i got COVID. actually uh it's called Three Thousand years of longing it's directed by george miller yep the george miller that did the mad max trilogy uh babe pig in the city the witches of eastwick and at one point was going to direct a version of the justice league which never has, has George Miller done anything in the last while? Yeah, well, Fury Road in 2015, okay. and he's been putting together, uh, he's been putting together the Furiosa kind of prequel to to uh, Fury Road, and and again, Miller's up there in in age, and he has lost none of his uh, his knack as far as a filmmaker goes, and and not just for kind of putting together a picture. I mean, he's right now, I think he's 77 years old. And he's putting together these movies that have a lot of moving pieces. If you saw Fury Road, you know that it was a big, expensive production. Uh, it was more ambitious than any of the previous Mad Max films, which is kind of saying something when you look at Road Warrior and Thunderdome, right, from a visual perspective. And yet, uh, did you see Fury Road, Bill? Uh, no, I don't know. Oh, maybe. I can't recall. I can't recall. Well, that was yeah. like six or seven years ago. Yeah, we'll have to remedy that. You would probably yeah. remember. It was a pretty intense uh intense film and in a way, in many ways i think it was uh every bit as good as any of the mad max movies that came before it and honestly bread road warrior is probably one of my all-time favorite action movies but anyway this movie this is three thousand years of longing it's in a different vein than uh the road warrior but it is still a fantasy genre film it's based off of a 1994 short story by a.s Bayat called the Jin in the nightingale's eye and the interesting thing about the film is the wraparound of this could really be a stage play. And so it's another movie about people in one place telling stories and examining the meaning and the movement of their life through stories and what that looks like. So uh, Alethea Benny is played by Tilda Swinton. She's a British scholar. She is uh, having a talk, a, a literature talk, 
at a conference and she's having these weird hallucinations while she's doing it. She's not sure what's causing those hallucinations. Uh, but people are showing up in her, in the, in the audience that are clearly uh, not supposed to be there and potentially mythological. When she goes to Istanbul, she ends up buying an antique bottle that has a genie inside of it, uh, played by Idris Elba. And the bulk of the film involves Alethea and the djinn in her hotel room. And he is telling her stories primarily related to the previous owners of the lamp and the wishes they made. So her, she wants to understand a little bit more of what she's getting into. She knows as, as a, it's funny to kind of have a scenario where you have a person who's versed in literature, uh, who knows all of the angles when it would come to a gin and the potential for the, the wishes to go awry. So when she sort of asks him for a little bit more information, he provides her with these stories. They go all the way back to uh, a story that involves the Queen of Sheba and King Solomon and the various ways in which the gin and over time has been trapped inside of the bottle. Now, in between this, uh, as the stories end, you'll come back to Alethea and, oh, excuse me, You'll come back to Althea, and you'll come to the Jinn, and you'll you'll sort of have interactions between the two of them. You'll see how each story uh, affects their interaction, and how each story affects their relationship, and which is starting to build into a friendship over time. Again, those pieces are very much two characters sitting in a room. Now, the special effects have so that sometimes uh, Elba is bigger or smaller, and uh, but visually speaking. It's about what you would expect from a two-hander in a hotel room. Where Miller sort of allows the movie to expand is when we get into these individual stories, which use the full sweep of the special effects and the full sweep of like set design, and they're as visually sumptuous as anything that was in the Mad Max films, anything that was in Babe Pig in the City. And he creates these worlds that are the imaginative details that probably took a long time to develop and create the same way we used to see these in some of the older Star Wars films or a movie like Thunder Thunderdome where there's tons and tons of little things to, to latch onto, but they're gone in the blink of an eye. Something that must have taken uh, weeks and weeks and about seven different artists and technicians to work on uh, just walks across the camera and is gone. An example of this is when you see the Queen of Sheba and we see her entire sort of entourage and the interior of her throne room there are weird creatures walking around in the background. Uh, King Solomon is playing this uh, instrument that has arms that sort of come off of it and, and play itself for the most part. There's a whole sort of sensuality to everything. And Miller shoots the movie in a way that all of these things are very exotic and very engaging. And yet, to me, the movie is held together by the interplay between Swinton and Elba, who are very great, you know, they're, they're great performers and they have good chemistry here. And so they create this movie that has a very fairy tale quality to it. It's another movie about telling stories. Uh, it's a little bit more ephemeral and a little bit more um, languid. You know, it does take its time. It sometimes feels like it's not going anywhere particularly, which is sometimes the way you feel when someone is telling you a story. But there is an overarching, to me, there's an overarching sense of 
humanity that, that bleeds through. A movie that I'm reminded of, I don't know if you saw Tarsim Singh's The Fall from a few, from several years back now. Uh, even a movie like The Princess Bride, it's in that sort of camp. It's not uh, as funny as The Princess Bride. It's not as visually aggressive as The Fall, but it it's very dreamlike. And we and it's funny. It, it, it uh, Miller will launch into moments of tragedy and then he'll launch into moments of absurdity. There is one... Uh, Sultan, who his mother wants to keep him safe, and so basically just puts him in a padded room with all, uh, so that he can never harm or hurt himself. And he has a harem made of some of the largest women you'll ever see outside of a Fellini movie. And uh, the, the so visually speaking, you're going to see things in this movie that you probably haven't seen before, and they're all tied together by Swinton and Elba. Now, this movie I don't think was ever in going to be a massive hit it's a little too esoteric it's a little too eccentric for all of that but there's a lot of be there's a lot of fun to be had particularly if you're that person who wants the movie that's going to give you the visual sights it's going to be a feast for the eyes and that's what this movie is but there's a lot there i think too in terms of the interplay of characters so if you like movies where characters talk to each other Usually, these two movies never meet, and we've had a lot of these sorts of films that are strong on the character side and strong on the uh, imagination. I can think of films like uh, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. We had um, the the movie um, Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes earlier this year. Things like uh, films like this are kind of my bread and butter. I adore movies like this. This one, I think, is a little bit slower and a little bit more. Uh, you know, it's a little more slight than those films, but it's such an achievement. I recommend uh, anyone who's who is interested in fantasy films to check this one out. I'm going to give it an 8.5, and I'd say definitely see it, particularly if it's still playing in the theater near you, see it there. Whatever big screen you can see it on, see it that way. This isn't a movie to watch on your phone. So it, it sounds amazing. Uh, I haven't really done any research into it, but it does sound great. It's got a good pedigree. Uh, the, the visuals and the actors all seem to be top-notch. Do you think, in your professional opinion, Nathan, this is one of those films that, you know, in three, four years now uh, ahead, people are going to look back and say, why didn't this do better? I don't know if they'll ask, why didn't it do better? But I think it will be a film, I hope, That'll be a film that garners an audience. And and with Miller, that sometimes is the case. Uh, Babe Pig in the City was following up Babe. And people hear me say this movie and they laugh. And they're like, Nathan, you don't expect me to watch that. But anyone, there there is a small group of people who have seen Babe Pig in the City and know what I'm talking about and why I would champion this seemingly silly uh, talking pig movie and of course when the first talking pig movie came out people realized hey this is pretty good miller was producing that when he didn't direct it but that bay pig in the seas of is a film that bombed terribly when it came out and it didn't ever arise to this you know enormous cult status but it definitely has a following of people who are in the know and know where to look for this kind of movie and i think three thousand years of longing i think three thousand years of longing will be that sort of movie that will um that won't. I don't think it's going to be necessarily remembered as a bomb because what were its expectations? You know, it, it's the kind of movie that's almost amazing that it exists, and the fact that it exists, like you said, in ten or fifteen years, it's not going to be. It's not going to matter once it's out there. I was a little bit hopeful because we've had 
other eccentric movies like Everything Everywhere uh, play for months and months, you know. But I think this one's just a little, a little too out there, a little too ephemeral. And uh, I don't know that it was ever going to do much at the theater anyway, particularly dropped in sort of like the end of August. So this one was just a little too left of center. Yeah, but I think it's going to be it's going to find its audience, I think, to a degree. I think there are people though the fall is not a movie that many people, I think, talk about. But those who have seen it, remember it, you know. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe we got the next Eraserhead. Who knows? No, 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 no. We don't have the next Eraserhead. <laughs> <laughs> if you like George Miller, I think you'll definitely like this one. Perfect. All right, yeah, because Miller definitely knows how to shoot a scene and tell a story. So I, I do want to see, is it out streaming anywhere yet? Do you know, Nathan? Yes, I believe it is available on, you can look at Amazon. It's probably on Vudu and other places, and I think it is streaming. Uh, but again, right now it's like the nineteen ninety nine rental price. And it might be like 25 or something like that. Okay. So wait a month and then. Yeah. Yeah. I'd imagine by the end of October or beginning of November, you're probably going to see this one. That's where I'm waiting for um, to pick that one up on 4K. Gotcha. Alrighty. Well, I'm going to go back into another film that has a cross reference to CND. And this is a film that is based on one of my all time favorite films. I have never written out, I'm not like Dave Becker that has written out his top 200 films of all time. I've never done it. But the original to this one, I'm willing to bet, is a minimum top 15, if not top 10. But they did kind of, I wouldn't say reboot, but they reignited the franchise. This is 2022's, literally hot off the presses, Confess Fletch. The original Fletch, from, I don't know, 85, 86. I, have, I don't have it up in front of me. I absolutely adore the film. I've got a great friend, Dave. We get together with dinner and our wives can't stand it because we quote the movie all the time. And they're like, stop with the Fletch quotes. I loved, I love unapologetically Chevy Chase in those early to mid 80s films, the vacation films, uh, uh, Fletch. He was at his peak then. But, and Fletch Lives, the second one, had its moments. Not at the superstar level yet, but that scene where he's uh, pretending to be a preacher and pull somebody out of the crowd, it'll make you laugh yourself. You know, wear, wear some diapers, you'll, you'll laugh yourself. But we haven't heard anything from Fletch since, I don't know, 1987, 1988, whatever that is. So I knew for a while that they had been re-getting uh, re it going. And the actor who plays Mr. Irwin Fletcher is none other than Mr. John Hamm. Now, the synopsis on IMDb is this. After becoming the prime suspect in multiple murders, Fletch strives to prove his innocence while simultaneously searching for his fiance's stolen art collection. I'm going to say right now, this is a different kind of film. If you're expecting Fletch where he stands in front of a police convention and and talks about having syphilis. This isn't that film. But <laughs> if you're looking for, a, I would say, a smarter written film without all the slapstick comedy, this is what you're going to get. Okay. So it starts John, stars John Hamm, who you'd know from Mad Men. I've forgotten. He was in that movie Tag from a couple of years ago. Do you remember that movie? Uh, where That's they, a long time ago now. Yeah. Where grown adults were playing Tag. <laughs> <laughs> and he and more recently, I haven't seen it yet, but more recently in Top Gun Maverick, 
Um, and and the, and the main co-star is Lorenza Iza, who was, I had to look her up. She was uh, one of the two girls in the Keanu Reeves film, Knock Knock. Oh, okay. If, if you remember that one. Barely. The, the other big, there are, it is one of those movies where there's an ensemble cast, very much like the original Fletch was. You can pick out five or six different people. Marsha Gay Harden is in this. Uh, genre fans will know her from The Mist or uh, a crime people will know her from Law & Order SVU. Uh, Judy Punch was in the movie. Uh, who was in that movie Dinner for Schmucks? I don't think I ever saw that. I, it didn't appeal to me. Uh, but Kyle MacLachlan of Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet fame was in that. John Slattery, who he's one of those actors that when you look at him, you go, I know him from something, but you can't name it. Uh, he was in Mad Men. He was in Ant-Man. He was in, uh, well, let me see what else he was in. Ed, did you ever see that TV show, Ed? I remember when it was on. Uh, I, yeah. did, I did see some episodes of it, but I, I really liked it. too much really of it, yeah. It. Yeah, it, it was years ago. Um, and another name that was in it is Roberto Picard, Robert Picardo. Yes, Robert Picardo, who Picardo. is like one of... Um, one of Joe Dante's stable of actors who always shows up. And, and and for genre fans, he's in all those Star Trek. Star Trek Voyager, Star Trek First Contact. Yes, yes. The, and the, he was also the in that, and the one I saw in the theater, Inner Space. He was in Inner Space. Yeah, which is a Joe Dante. I think Picardo oh, has been in almost every Joe Dante movie. Yeah, um, post-Gremlins. Um, uh, I think Inner Space might have been the first one they did together, and after that, he's in almost like all of them. Uh, he also, the gym teacher in The Wonder Years, Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yep. And the other actor I wrote down is Kenneth Kimmins, who, if you remember the TV show coach was kind of the athletic director. Uh, he was in also the movie network and genre of uh, sci-fi fans, superhero fans. He was in Lois and Clark. So you got a whole bunch of people, but the tone of this is different. It's not, as I said, slapstick comedy. But if you remember the original, there was still a dark tone and it had a bit of a, a crime bent to it. This one has the same tone, except it doesn't play up the comedy. There is witticism. There is one-liners. There is funny circumstances. But it doesn't go for the big laugh. It goes for you to keep watching. And I'm going to make this one relatively brief because there honestly isn't a lot of complex dialogue or complex plot line to this you just watch it so this is a miramax film i am fletcher erwin fletcher finds a murdered woman in his living room he's renting his house for his, from his girlfriend and he's working as a journalist as he was in the original one but he's more of a freelance journalist and his girlfriend is in italy okay so there's more dry humor less slapstick Fletch is hired by Izzo's dad to find missing paintings. And he hooks up with his daughter. And you realize this is the girlfriend that's in Italy. There's some flashback issues. You got to kind of keep up with the plot line. And the dad is kidnapped. And the kidnappers want a Picasso painting that the father-in-law owns. Or the boyfriend, that the girlfriend's father owns. So he's essentially out to figure out what the hell is going on. Okay. It's a dark comedy. It's well acted. It's very story driven, much like the original. The original had more comedy to it, but it was essentially kind of a crime whodunit kind of deal, but it was done with a, a little bit, I wouldn't say sillier, but a little more lightheartedly. But Fletch played by Ham, I'll give Ham credit. 
he put his own spin on the character. Because when you think of Fletch, you think of uh, Chevy Chase right away. But he put his own little spin to it. This is obviously based on the books by John McDonald, which I've read a few of them. And he, I think he was truer to the character. I think the first couple, they played up to the strengths of Chase. I think Ham played it more on the nose. And so then Fletch is investigating why was there a dead girl in his house? Uh, what is there to know about the person who owns the house that he rents it from? And what is there to know about the person who has hired him? Okay. And then we get into a bit of a romance angle. Someone is setting up Fletch to make it look like he committed this murder. And so not only is he investigating what's going on, people are investigating him. There's a whole police element to it. There's more witty one-liners and less gut-busting humor. It's kind of like Knives Out in a sense, where there's lots of suspects and red herrings, and you kind of have to wait till the end for it to all come together with a large ensemble cast with almost skit-like pieces that they kind of come together to comes together at the end. But if you like jazz, there's a really great jazz soundtrack, and there's a great death story told by Kimmins at the Yacht Club. I'm going to leave it like that, okay? Marcia Gay Harden plays Izzo's mother, and let's just say it's a bad Italian accent that's not quite as bad as Keanu Reeves in Bram Stoker's Dracula, but it's not great. <laughs> <laughs> it's more of a whodunit than anything else. I would not call this comedy. IMDb has comedy crime. I would put it crime and then to a lesser extent comedy. There is more complex reasoning than expected for this sort of film. And I'll just say there's a nice twist. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Okay. And they set up for the next film. Is this brilliant? Not exactly. It, it Was it as good to me as the original? Not by a long shot. Having said that, it's not a bad movie. Okay. Just go in with the expectation that almost go in fresh. Forget about the Chevy Chase. There's, there's a little bit of uh, Easter eggs from, not Easter eggs, you know, like uh, homages to the original to kind of link it. But you wouldn't need that for this. Go in and enjoy it. I gave it a 7 out of 10. It's not going to make you think too hard. You'll get a few smirks. And it's kind of, again, think of a Knives Out scenario versus a National Lampoon scenario. And <laughs> that's all I got to say for that. Well, this is one more movie in in uh, 2022 that I had no idea even had been made was in the process of being made, um, which is a little which is a little weird to me because I feel like I have over the years I've, I've always heard about a, a Fletch movie in development at some point in time, and particularly back I want to say in the 90s and early 2000s. There, Kevin Smith was trying to get one off the ground called Fletch One that was going to have, I think originally he was going to, he was aiming to have Jason Lee in it, but then they wanted to have Ben Affleck in it. And eventually, like a lot of Kevin Smith projects, it fell apart completely and never happened. And I really hadn't heard anything else. And then you mentioned, oh, or I, I think I'd seen maybe playing at the theater on the marquee, it said Confess Fletch. And I just, and or maybe I saw it on Amazon and I thought to myself, I didn't even check to see but i thought i guess is that a is that a fletch movie because i hadn't um i don't i haven't kept up i think i maybe read one of the books years and years ago and um i think what's interesting i think 
you're right that uh, this doesn't really require you at all to have, I haven't seen the film, but it's not going to require you to have seen the Chevy Chase movies because uh, the character is written is actually a little bit different than the way Chase plays the character, I think. I think that just that was the point in time when Chevy Chase was very popular and sort of everywhere, and so the character and he became linked but it's a case where, you know, to me, it's not a Indiana Jones can only be Harrison Ford. You know, this character has a lot of um, potential play with other other actors. It's all he's almost like, you know, a lot of actors have played Hercule Poirot. Yeah. Yeah. To me, exactly. it's that it's a it's a it's a detective that has some versatility. Just they haven't really used his versatility much. And because because of the nature of how everything has come down, you really have Chevy Chase. So. To me, I'll take John Hamm over Chevy Chase. I I don't have any great love for the old movies. It's not that I don't like them. Um, I but I probably saw the sequel, which is my memory is it wasn't that great. Uh, before I saw the original movie, so that probably colored my my uh, perspective. But I'm definitely up for this one. I want to see it now that I uh, am aware of it, and you've given it a good review. I'll definitely try to put it on the schedule. Um, for, for the upcoming weeks, uh, try to get to it before all I end up watching is horror. But um, I'm I'm excited to see it, uh, mostly because I'm always a like I I love when John Hamm is the the lead in a picture, honestly. And you would think that would happen for him more often than it does. Yeah, and I mean, you do get a a, a couple kind of quasi love scenes, but even during the love scenes, it's kind of almost tongue in cheek. So he's playing, you know, like in the original Fletch was, you know, he wasn't much of a ladies man, but in this one, he has a girl, but it, it, I mean, that's secondary to the plot. It's just one of the many things. The other thing, as I said, I, I called it John McDonald. It was Gregory McDonald. Yeah. Yeah. Book. Gregory McDonald's. The, the, and I the think author. I read the first three. I'm not sure how many in the series there are. I don't, uh, I don't know. I can't recall. Somebody who's a listener will probably email us and say, oh, there was, you know, six or seven of them. But uh, I think there's enough source material there that either they can use the books or they can just veer off on their own. For sure. For sure. I think so. So what do you, uh, what, what's your rating on this I one? give it seven so. out of 10. Okay. Which, which cool. is a solid film. I mean, who knows in our list if it hits the bottom of the top 10 of the, you know, the non-horror list, but you could do a lot worse, especially those who recall or are fond for the original it's not a bad film. And even if you have no recollection of the original, uh, this is uh, just take it as a, a piece on its own. Yeah. Sounds so I'm, I'm definitely up for it. So, so what you got there, Nathan, what's next on your list? So let's talk. There's a, there's a little bit of cleaning house with my reviews here, as you'll notice with movies that probably everybody's clearly already seen, uh, by the point in time that this happened. So I will keep my, uh, reviews to, a bit of a minimum because I think most people, you know, most people have probably watched them. I don't know that you've seen this one, so I will, I won't do any spoiling. I'll give you my basic. You'll do some top dancing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is Prey that came out in August sixteenth, twenty twenty-two, and it is indeed a movie in the Predator franchise. I do contend that, given the way that the story plays out, the way the structure plays, that we could have probably kept the secret of this movie being a Predator film for just a little bit longer, but I guess no one was, nobody realistically was going to market a movie uh, that's a part of the, you know, you don't make a movie in a franchise like this just so you don't tell anybody <laughs> that it's a movie in this franchise. But given the nature of it, I think, and given the nature that it was on Hulu, I can't really imagine 
what that would have been like to sort of keep this hit because uh, Prey doesn't indeed involve the character that originated in that 19, uh, I believe, 87 film, Predator, uh, the John McTiernan movie, is an alien hunter that comes to Earth and tangos initially with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Then he ends up fighting Danny Glover. Uh, at one point, he kind of, I guess he gets downgraded and has to fight Adrian Brody. Uh, well, at, at a certain point, Gary Busey gets involved. Gary Busey gets involved in part two, part two for for a, a small amount of screen time. Bill Paxton is in that film as well. The aliens fight the predators, and then there's a, there was the the predator that was directed by Shane Black, who sort of upgraded from being an actor in the original Predator movie to directing. My feeling on uh, I love the original Predator. I think it is a uh, a great example of making a very economic and thrilling action horror movie with having just about the right amount of both things in the it, film. It, it's the film Carl Weathers should be known for. Well, it's okay to be known for Rocky. Well, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's okay to be known for Rocky. Apollo Creed's a little bit of a better character than the, but uh, everybody is fun. The macho is dialed so high in that film. And yet then they're all picked off like a bunch of, uh, you know, a bunch of the girls in slumber party massacre, right? It's just like, bam, 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 bam. That movie, though, follows sort of the, it has the structure of almost like a, the very first horror action story, uh, maybe not the very first, but one of the the earliest recorded and written down in uh, what would approximate the English language, which would be Beowulf. And it has the, the structure. There's a guy, there's a monster, and uh, it's the two, the two warriors fighting to, uh, you know, see who's going to come up on top, but they're playing against the rules of what is considered the gentleman warrior, right? Like if you look at uh, everything that Arnold Schwarzenegger is doing in that film, he sort of has to step beyond those bounds. Now, I reason I set all that up is then the sequels sort of just become movies in which characters fight the predator and they don't have um, the same structure or thematic uh, bent that that original movie had. So in Prey, we go all the way back to 1719. So we're now in the Great Plains of North America, and we are following the Comanche, a specific Comanche warrior, Naru, who's played by Amber Midthunder. She is trying to prove herself. She, being a female in this tribe, has placed her in a situation where, you know, she's constantly sort of trying to prove that, yeah, she's a great hunter, like her older brother, who is trying to guide her through the, the trials and tribulations of sort of coming out on her own as a warrior and all of this setup is great uh hulu gives you the option to watch the film in comanche but i will say this uh, the film is shot in english it is dubbed in comanche which is very distracting to watch even though i think it's the better way to watch it because um a few people have sort of uh criticized uh, mid thunder for coming off a little bit modern she certainly does she's very beautiful she she uh i think she she handles herself very well as a, as a warrior but the dialogue and everything does sort of and i think to, to make it very natural she feels a bit more modern all of the characters do i think in the way they talk and interact uh but plot here is very simple in the midst of this comanche tribe sort of living their lives and naru trying to go through this rite of passage they encounter something that they didn't expect. The press materials spoiled this right off the bat, more or less, that it, it's one of these alien warriors that has come down and is in the midst of its hunting season. What's interesting here that I like is that they've made the Predator look a bit different 
They have given it, uh, it's it's a little bit more uh, ruthless, it's a little more brutal, it's a little more primal, which makes perfect sense if you think about the structuring here. Um, its headgear looks different, it's uh, all around more savage. I think what's interesting here is you're seeing an earlier iteration of the Predator. Uh, he's more lean, he's, he's, he's bulkier uh in a muscular way now the other guy looked like he might have been the guy the um weekend hunter couch <laughs> yuppie couch version of a hunter you know the guy from the original predator looks back to this guy and says oh yeah that's this is the tradition but you know in the meantime he's like drinking beer and watching the game uh and but he still hands Schwarzenegger's ass so we're watching a much more uh visceral i think battle between these characters uh, naru her brother there um we we see the story sort of swing around and a few more characters get involved we start to uh, have a connection to a a piece of predator lore that showed up in predator 2 uh there's a an artifact that one of the predators sort of uh hands over to danny glover in predator 2 that makes a appearance here this movie is very fast-paced. It does exactly what it's supposed to do with a lot of visual panache. This is directed by Dan Trachtenberg, who did 10 Cloverfield Lane, which I thought was also a very... Uh, again, talking here about um, economics in terms of, of, of putting a film together, that's what this movie has in common with the original Predator, that it's very... Uh, it gets in, it sets everything up, and then it tries to focus centrally on action. And then these being people of action, both on the side of the Predator and the side of Nauru, we get to see the story told almost ex entirely through that kinetic battle between the two of them. It's violent. It's gory. I had a lot of fun watching it. I don't know that it really amounts to too much once it's done, but I would argue that from an aesthetic perspective, it's definitely the best Predator sequel. Now, what I can, I've never been one who thought, you know, the Predator mythology really needs to be expanded and we need to see everything on the Predator homeworld and all of those sorts of things. I do get that. I get why you might be intrigued by that character. I haven't been that intrigued by that character. I thought that Predator was a pretty good one-off. If that's you, what you want, I think that is in low supply in this film. This movie isn't going to tell you anything really about this creature that you didn't learn from the original Predator movie. So that does take away some of the suspense. I think that had the movie built up more of Naru's life in the Comanche tribe, which I think would have made a much more compelling movie to a point, and then maybe had suddenly pivoted to the Predator film, I think that could have been stronger. But within the guidelines, I'm now, I'm now critiquing a movie that they didn't make. Within the guidelines of the film they made, it's a very strong movie. I think it it sort of uh, it it reclaims the franchise that had gotten a little sputtery. I thought the last movie was actually pretty bad, uh, The Predator. It didn't engage me at all, particularly from an action perspective. And this is a movie that restores the sensibility of the two sides that that battle for supremacy between two skilled warriors and a concept of what does this battle mean on a larger scale. So I loved it. I thought Amber mid thunder was great. Uh, if you've got that issue, Oh, she doesn't quite seem like a Comanche warrior. She seems very modern. I think that she's playing within the, the role perfectly. And she really comes across as a character of action, which I appreciate. She totally, for me, 
Everyone else can complain and say, well, I didn't buy this and I didn't buy that about her being able to fight a predator. She totally allows you to believe that she'd be able to fight this thing because at some point uh, you have to be very canny when fighting the predator. You think back to the original, again, this guy comes in and from a strength perspective, not even Schwarzenegger can best him. Schwarzenegger has to sort of revert back to the warrior who plans and and considers before he kills. And that's what happens here. So really fun movie. I'm I'm in like a 7.5 to 8 on this one. Uh, I've watched it a couple times. It's a, it's a, it's a, it does exactly what it, we would have wanted it to do. I think for some, this is going to be one of their maybe favorite um, action movies of the year. Awesome. Nathan and I, just for those who probably aren't aware, obviously you wouldn't be aware. We, we've talked a few times about movies you haven't yet seen. This is one I haven't yet seen. Uh, I've got a, a nice small cue card list of films I still need to see. Hopefully, I was vague enough there that yes, didn't, you, yeah. you didn't you didn't give you, you gave me enough to be intrigued, but not enough for me to obviously know everything about it. So I really want to see the film. I am a huge, I mean, huge fan of the original. I remember when it came out in '87. I was 13, and it was you know I was in grade nine. I was rocking watching this film, Jesse the Body Ventura. Oh, freaking awesome in that film. But uh, the subsequent ones, number two was okay. And then, to be honest, the, I don't even think I saw Alien versus Predator. I, 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 You're I, not missing anything. No. Predators was decent. I, I did like that one. That that sort of uh, takes people off world and puts them in a Predator-designed game preserve or whatever, and they're hunted that way. Yeah. Lawrence so, Fishburne was in that one. Yeah. So I'm really, really curious about this one. I really want to. The fact that enough years have gone by between the last incarnation that they got some fresh ideas and they obviously are doing kind of, I wouldn't call it a prequel, but kind of the, the story of, I, I really want to see that. So yeah, I'll give you my opinion in, oh, four months. How about, <laughs> <laughs> how about that? <laughs> I'll get to it. But yeah, it's absolutely, it's about two or three movies. I still have to see Barbarian. I still have to see Pearl. Uh, it's one of those ones where I still have to get to The Innocents that by the, my year-end list I will get to. Now, now my other question to you, Nathan, is would you consider this a horror or is this an action? Like, would this go into our other category or would this go into our horror category? Well, it, it's really going to depend on where you put the original Predator, I think. Um, to me, it's a sci-fi action film with horror elements. I think that this movie at certain points gets as violent as... Uh, would necessarily be required to be a horror film, but in a lot of ways, when we were, when we did our um, uh, the episode I came on with you guys for uh, Land of the Creeps, where we talked about uh, uh, science horror, if I remember correctly, um, Dave Becker brought up a film called Outlander, which uh, stars Jim Caviezel and John Hurt and uh, Ron Perlman, and came out in like in two thousand eight. Involves a Viking warrior who Viking warriors who come across a creature from space and come across one of the uh, soldiers that was supposed to contain it. And that movie very much probably is science fiction fantasy. And then there, the, and, and, and the horror is not as uh, evident, I think, even though the plot's essentially the same, you're fighting a monster. And so from a perspective of that, yeah, but I think that uh, the battle gets a little gnarly. That if you if you think the first predator is horror, this predator is is, is horror as well. 
Yeah, it's kind of that debate, you know, is, I think is it's, King Kong yeah. a horror? Is Godzilla, like, it, it, it gets murky with creatures and, you know, scientific elements. And I think even, see, the thing with a movie like Kong and, and um, Kong is probably first and foremost a fantasy, but I think that the monster uh, is so compellingly uh, to, to the audience of the time, that when the film was made, to the audience of the time, I would argue that Kong and Godzilla are probably so um, thematically terrifying. You know, they're on screen for so much. They're intended to uh, spark emotion. The, the, the issue with the Predator is the, the role that it serves in the story is the same role that a particularly brutal rival tribe member. You know, you could, you could, you could substitute a human adversary into the role for the Predator 1 and for this Predator, uh, for Prey. And, yeah, at that point you kind of lose the sci-fi element, but you probably lose the horror element uh, to the extent that it exists as well. So I don't know that I would consider it um, horror because if this were just a human that she was fighting, uh, even a violent human, you'd have something like Last of the Mohicans. You wouldn't have, um, you know, uh, Halloween. Gotcha. Alrighty. So yeah, uh, it's on my list. It will be watched. It will not, will not be this weekend. I'm watching my daughter this weekend. It's not <laughs> happening this weekend. But it will within the time frame that we need it to be caught uh, watched in. All right. I'm going to jump into. You're probably saying, Bill, you've talked about a comedy. You've talked about a drama. What are you going to get into the horror? Well, here I'm going to get into the horror. And so while I was scouring movies to watch, I thought, okay. This one, I've heard about it, and generally I go into these things cold. I really don't know much about it. I don't watch trailers. I don't listen to reviews other than what my close friends like Nathan or Dave or Greg or somebody tells me. So this one I really didn't know much about. And this is 2022's The Invitation. The other thing that rose an eyebrow for me, it's a PG-13 horror, which, which doesn't scare me. You know, there's some great movies that aren't necessarily restricted, but you always, when a movie's PG-13 and marketed as a horror, it, it's going to ha either have to have some kind of crazy plot twist or have something really interesting to it, or the writing is just bang on. Otherwise, it just kind of falls apart. So I didn't know anything about it. And the IMDb gave me nothing. It says, a young woman is courted and swept off her feet, only to realize a gothic conspiracy is afoot. Written a gothic for, conspiracy. A gothic conspiracy. Yeah, I don't, you know, maybe that's a subplot of, you know, uh, literature. I don't know about, I'm not sure. Director is Jessica M. Thompson, who hadn't done anything that I'd heard of. Uh, but I'm I'm happy to see a female take the lead in this. So good honor. Uh, it stars Natalie Emmanuel. And who, again, someone I didn't know, but I had never seen Furious 7. I guess she's in a couple of the Fast and Furious later films. Uh, also in uh, some episodes of Games of Thrones and the Maze Runner Scorch Trials. The main, uh, I wouldn't say adversary, the other actor in the film that plays a semi-lead is Thomas Doherty from Descendants 2 and 3 and Gossip Girl. Gossip Girl people seem to pop up everywhere. I've never seen the show. I don't know, but the, the, the characters seem to be all over the place. Uh, Stephanie Corneliuson, who was in DC Legends of Tomorrow, Deception on television and Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunter. And a name that most of us will know in various films, Sean Pertwee, who, yeah. who Gotham, Event Horizon, but I always think of Dog Soldiers. 
for I think of dog soldiers too. Sean Pertwee. <laughs> okay. So what's this film about? It's an hour 45 and I'll, and that plays into the role or the mark that I give it at the end. It opens with a woman in a dress and there's an old dark house. She's hearing voices. There's noises. And then she offs herself. And you're like, what's going on here? It, it looks to be in previous years and, and not like 200 years ago. Although maybe it is, we're not quite sure. It doesn't really give it away. And then it cuts to modern times. Okay. So Emmanuel is a caterer and she takes a DNA test. You know, she's, uh, takes a, a, a parting bag from an expensive party that she goes to. It's got a DNA test. It turns out she's got relatives. She didn't realize she has a wealthy cousin in England and the cousin uh, emails her and says, you know, I'm in town. You want to get together for dinner or whatever. And so they go to this fancy dinner. They, they chew the fat. They're talking back and forth. Bottom line is he invites her to a wedding back in England. He's wealthy, well-to-do, large family. It doesn't consider itself royalty, but it's kind of of that ilk. You either got a large castle with cousin after cousin after cousin, you know, some mysterious backgrounds. You're not quite sure. And she flies over there. Okay. She gets invited to the wedding. She gets to meet some of the cousins and uncles and aunties that she didn't know she had. She's coming with, you know, a very modest outfit and baggage with her and she gets some things provided for her. It's calming. It's got a very elegant score. The characters are interesting. You don't know where it's going. Now, one of the complaints I have is it's an hour 45. It really takes until the hour mark for any of the horror to kick in. They really play up the story and they build it up. And we got these characters developing and there's a background to it. But there isn't a lot of quote unquote action for the first hour or so. Okay. Emmanuel gets on well with the Lord of the house, Doherty. And so the story is well laid out. You know, there's some intrigue there. The house is spooky. The head butler is mysterious. There's a mysteries built upon mysteries built upon mysteries that are built on an atmosphere. Beautiful sets. It's almost got a sense of those old Hammer films. Beautiful sets in an old castle that's dark and creaky and all kinds of uh, crevices and hallways you can wander into. But there is a sense of mystery and the house holds secrets that you know are there, but it takes a while to kind of emerge as to what the secrets are. Okay. Other than house servants continue to die and you're not sure why you just know that the next morning they're not there. Okay. The family is really nice, but you know, they're just a little off and you, again, the get out type of feeling, you know, that, you know, that family occasion you get together, everybody's having drinks, small talk, you know, a little bit of food, but there's that sense in the air, something ain't quite right. That's what you get with when she meets the family, okay? But Emmanuel falls for the rich, handsome Doherty. You know, he's a good-looking guy. He's got money. He can take her out of... She's working on her university degree, I believe. She can take her out of the catering business and out of kind of scraping out a living to become essentially the right-hand person to the royalty. And so she, you know, she's... The wind is blowing up her skirt. She's very excited. 
And I don't mean literally blown up. She just feels the momentum of what's happening here. And there's a, a lovemaking scene. They're laying in bed. And he kind of says, you know what? We're hitting it off really well. Do you want to get married? And she kind of goes, you know, she goes, you're in the afterglow of sex. You know, you can't take this seriously. But if I wasn't all sexual right now, I would say, yes, for sure. I would marry you. And he takes that to heart. And all of a sudden, this wedding starts to roll. And she's kind of like, uh, I came here for a cocktail party and a family gathering. Now, all of a sudden, I'm getting married. And at, a, at this point, I'm not going to say a lot. Because there are certain reveals. The horror ramps itself up. And all the family secrets, all the skeletons in the closet, and the horror elements kick in. Now, did it take too long to get there? Yeah, probably. You could have easily cut 10 to 15 minutes out of this film. There are, all I'll say is there's some transformations. And towards the end, there's a scene that's very reminiscent of the 1976 movie Carrie. I think it's. <laughs> In that, in that, I found the ending, especially the last ten minutes, a bit silly and predictable. Yes. But I, I love the fact that there was a strong female lead in this. I thought Emmanuel was really great in her role. I think the direction and the presentation of the final cut kind of let it down a bit. I gave this six and a half out of ten. I know you've seen this, Nathan. What are your thoughts on the film? Yeah, yeah, she she's good. Uh, I agree on that, and I also agree that you said that the final cut sort of lets this down. Um, it's hard to... It's, so this is not... It's not a terrible movie. It's not a terrible movie. It is not, however, I think a very good movie, uh, and it doesn't really overcome that initial stigma that you think of you see a PG-13 vampire movie, uh, which is clearly what this is. And it comes off like a kind of almost like a CW sort of clone, you know, uh, something maybe in the vein of no pun intended, or the vampire diaries or something like that. And there's really, there's a certain level of fun, but you get the idea that the invitation is trying to, uh, be something maybe I, I can imagine people watching ready or not from a few years ago and sort of like, which I loved. I loved. Yeah, I did too. But you can see the similarities, you know what I mean? Not necessarily in the full breadth of the plot, but in the pieces. Like, okay, we're going to bring this female character. We're going to put her in this situation. We're going to have these characters. You've, you're going to you're going to introduce a, uh, a husband and wife scenario that's going to be put and strained by this um, family traditions, right? So, like, you've got basically all the same little pieces, and then you tweak it here, and you twist a knob there, and you do this sort of thing. And then... To me, all of that knob twisting is very visible in the film. You can kind of see when it just feels like they're sort of hammering parts on from something else. And it never ever really, to me, again, pardon the pun, it never really comes to life. It just feels sort of like the undead, right? Like it's, uh, there's great set design. I think there's a point when the movie starts to uh, put her into a position in a place where, okay, here's we've gotten all the set dressing out of the way we've gotten the fact of what the movie's about i think that the movie should lean into it a lot more than it does right like if you're going to market your film it's my big thing now if you're going to market your movie as of dealing with vampires then let's just get right to that right let's just 
jump yeah, in. The fact that it took feet. an hour to get there. For a movie that's not very long, keep in mind an hour of this movie's time is over two-thirds of it already done. Yeah. So I think that uh, it's a little too late when you finally get to something that has any sort of juice in it. It's um, I just wasn't that engaged by it. Uh, I It feels honestly like um, some of the lower end streaming movies that might get dumped to Netflix. You know, it did. There was nothing that screams theatrical to me. I give the, it again, I think they're individual pieces that I liked. The overall experience of watching it uh, was not terribly unpleasant. It's just a bit of a dud, I think, when it comes to uh, something that sh- should be thrilling, that should be fun, and it just sort of like lies there. <laughs> Yeah, it it just frustrated the heck out of me. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit lower. I'm I'm a I'm more around like a four point five. It just didn't quite. It just didn't come together for me. It didn't. Um, I, I'm just a sucker for the sets. I really. Oh, me too. Like I love this sort of thing and the look of this. And it could have been. Um, I I feel like it could have been much better than yeah. it was. But um, you know that's that's how it. That's how it ends up sometimes. For, for, for fans of vampire films and you're a completist, you're going to want to watch it. Yeah, you know, I'll, I will give you that. Um, and so I, I, I don't think, you know, so let me let me amend and I'll, I'll just adjust this myself. But I'll, I give this a five. It's a it's a it's a reasonable watch. But the problem is because I do like vampire movies and I think that they're so uh, there aren't as many made. And when they are made these days. Uh, and you're going to go the cliched route. The very few of them find a way to to rise above that. And this one just didn't. It passes the time just fine. And maybe if you've never seen a vampire movie before, you might get something from this. But uh, this just doesn't it doesn't quite make the cut. I'm going to give it a five because, as you said, um, there's there's some stuff in the early going, and there are some of the set designs. And when the movie sort of does finally reach a point where it's going to address that this is the kind of movie. It's a little too late, but that stuff still is fun if you're a genre fan. But yeah. honestly, you go into this with extremely low expectations. Yeah, just go for one that to watch as opposed to you're looking to enjoy. I think Ready or Not played with the whole conventions much better and found an original way to do it. This movie has not an original bone in its body. <laughs> so uh, I think what I'll do, Bill, at this point is... Uh, we can get back to the movies and stuff in a, in a moment, but I want to talk about, there's been several TV shows that have come out since we've been, uh, you know, since we've done this. And I'm not really going to get too much into the plots, but I, uh, most of them are still in the process of running and are not complete. So, and I have not watched. Uh, so I'll give you a couple of quick, uh, my, my quick thoughts without much in the way of plot synopsis, but I'll tell you kind of what I'm thinking and uh, how I think they're going. So Amazon, of course, uh, has been working for some years now on a uh, essentially a prequel to Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power, which is a series that's intended to sort of place everything in the time frame, if you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings stories, when the Rings of Power, those nine rings, were crafted and made and passed out to the various races. And so... I could sit here and talk. We could have an entire probably podcast series about what people think about Lord of the Rings and these people who have claimed certain ownership over Tolkien or fantasy in general. I think that's one of the things that becomes sticky these days is we we don't really come to anything 
for its own. Even the making of this thing is a bit of a ploy, right? Where, you know, uh, Amazon has got this because it's become a big franchise. Nobody wanted to touch Lord of the Rings when Peter Jackson was trying to get it made. And now that he has, there, people see hey, this is something we can mine. It's the same thing's happening with George R. R. Martin over on the uh, the Game of Thrones has had the spin the spin off the House of Dragons. And uh, I don't I won't be kind of giving my thoughts on that one tonight. But Rings of Power has been met with uh, from the critical perspective, I think for from actual critics have reviewed the show, you're seeing positive reviews. And then there's this huge swath of genre fans who are sort of just um, seem to be immediately crapping upon it. And unfortunately, a lot of the very vocal ones are crapping on it from the perspective of uh, they're complaining about the diversity and this is not what Tolkien imagined. And they, you know, what they essentially seem to want is an all white, you know, English centric world uh, that essentially was, you know, because of the way Tolkien wrote the stories was easy to give them in the previous films. And so here, uh, we're complaining that we're seeing elves of a different color and dwarves of a different color and so on and so forth, which I personally find um, ridiculous uh, as, a, as a criticism. I find it irrelevant as a criticism. I know there are people that would talk to me all day about why that's not true, but I simply think that it is. And uh, I guess I should explain why I think it is. I think that seeing uh, a diverse cast play these characters doesn't take anything away from it. And I've heard years and years of people trying to justify why it's okay for uh, Scarlett Johansson to play a character that was previously Japanese or for Jake Gyllenhaal to play a character that was previously Persian. You know, we've seen that all throughout film history, right, Bill? But it seems like that lately people cry when it goes the other direction and we in a fantasy character that we presumably thought was white is a different color. You know, I think that that's ridiculous. Uh, there's also a lot of complaints because, you know, Galadriel, who is uh, played by Kate Blanchett in the films, and it was a part of the entire Tolkien universe, uh, shows up here. The the, the um, writers have definitely uh, made her much more of a, a proactive warrior character, and some people have issues with that. Now, I don't, I don't truck with any of that. I don't have any issues with any of that. I'm not such a Tolkien nerd that any of that deeply bothers me. I read. The Lord of the Rings. I read The Hobbit. I actually read The Silmarillion, which is sort of a, a tome that, that takes in and, and, and lays out most of the backstory that would have occurred even before this show. But the creators of the show were not allowed access to The Silmarillion. They really only had uh, all of the bits that we've seen and the appendices from The Lord of the Rings to work with here to create this. Now, I might be off on some of this, but essentially what you get is a big, expensive Lord of the Rings fan fiction, which I am totally okay with. I think that so far I've been very impressed by the production values on the film. But Morfid Clark, who we've seen in St. Maud, and we, I know that you and I didn't, this, I, I love the movie. I don't think you liked it as much as I did, but I think we both agreed that Morfid Clark was really good in that film. Strong actress. Yes, yeah. She's really good here playing Galadriel. And so she. this isn't just a sort of here's a G.I. Joe for the Barbie you know, contingent idea that the that a lot of the criticisms are saying. She's a, a very well-handled character, I think. People are hold these things so close to the vest, they're going to have issues maybe with how it's done. I don't think all of the writing is, a, is great because most of these fantasy shows, they get into a corner where we have to get a character from this place to that place, and we have to introduce you to this character that you previously knew. What I will say is I do feel that it is 
true to the spirit of Tolkien. I think we're trying; they're trying to give a film or a, a series with a more modern spin, but it retains the look of what Peter Jackson was doing while giving a different sort of voice. And I think that the way we're seeing that world built, and that the racial tensions that exist in that world that have nothing to do with with white or black or uh, European versus American or anything like that, but all to do with their dwarves and their elves and things like that. We're seeing the intricacies of that handled a little bit more uh, deftly and more interesting, in my opinion, than what we saw previously. So uh, the, the the relationships that are building with the dwarves and the way the dwarves are presented in, in this series, I actually am preferring some of what's being done with the dwarves here than what was done in Jackson's interpretation of The Hobbit and in Lord of the Rings. I do think that that Lord of the Rings uh, as a film and as a piece of cinema was much, much stronger because they had a base to work with. This is still trying to find its footing. I don't know. Uh, we're getting just, you know, we're, we're getting these episodes. We're probably getting to the halfway point, And I don't know that the story's going to come full circle because they're sort of banging things together. But if you love Middle Earth, I think if you, if, particularly if you came to Middle Earth through the films, I think it's a much higher chance that you might really enjoy what this series is doing. There's nothing here that I uh, take any issue with, uh, except that I do think that the story plotting, I'm still holding back to see how that's going. Now, what they've done is they've introduced characters we know, and then we have mysterious characters. There's a character who's fallen from the sky and lands among the Harfoots, which are basically the... Uh, you know, proto proto hobbits, where we're looking at their, they we're not Bilbo, but and they're not uh, Smeagol, but they're even before that. And so a character lands among them that, uh, you know, doesn't seem to remember who he is, seems to have certain powers. And, you know, you sit there and you wonder, well, this is, is this a, is this Soromon before he realizes he's Soromon? Is this Gandalf before he knows he's Gandalf? The, the show is playing with little elements like that. And I think, again, the expansiveness of the world, visually what they're doing, it looks amazing. I think only if you can have issues. If you're someone that's already listening to this and saying, but Nathan, those, those are problems, then maybe don't watch it because I don't know how you maybe aren't going to get yourself tied into knots. I really don't know why. I don't remember these issues being as big of a thing when the original series comes up. But I've talked to people who've literally had the criticism, well, how does Galadriel, who's an elf, defeat something six times her size? Well, how did Legolas kill an elephant with arrows? You know, I mean, it's fantasy, okay? <laughs> Okay, and I can't really contribute because I don't know it. No, no, there, no there's, there's no, there's no uh, ants yet, Bill. So you might be okay. I know, you know, okay. the talking tree guys. Uh, the, no, yeah, they the talking tree guys yet. drove yeah, me yeah. nuts. Yeah, yeah, I know they did. You might. I don't know if this will be your thing or not. But um, I, I really like it so far. Uh, I've been watching it with the family. We've been enjoying it. I think that uh, no, it doesn't have the steady hand of an already existing source. But I don't think these are people just trampling over everything. The one thing I will disagree with is I don't I don't get the messaging. People are saying, "Oh, the, it's messaging pretty hard." It's not messaging pretty hard. It's simply trying to present a a, a diverse group. So we we recognize that there are more than just uh, white males who watch fantasy, right, and who read and interact with fantasy, and that's the extent of the messaging to suggest that there are other people that could go on quests that don't have to be uh, that particular demographic. So off my high horse, but all that stuff aside, if you throw that stuff aside, I think it's a pretty fun show. I can't say that it's all going to come together in the end. Personally, though, the show that I'm much more uh, um, uh, confident about is on Netflix right now, and it is Neil Gaiman's Sandman, uh, which is a great sprawling fantasy that is from the DC comic series and that, that Gaiman himself sort of originated, 
And I don't even want to get too much into this one because this is a world that's best for you to discover. If you already know Gaiman and you know uh, his fantasies, if you've seen some of his work, uh, and with, there's been several works have been adapted. Good Omens was on uh, Prime a few years ago. A wonderful, uh, a wonderful show. And of course, uh, we, we've got movies like Stardust, adaptations of his work. And he has just a great sensibility when it comes to blending the concepts of mythology. American Gods is on Showtime. And in that way, Sandman's a little bit similar. It, it, it merges some of the DC characters in some interesting ways because John Constantine, yes, that Constantine uh, from the comics, uh, was involved in Sandman. Uh, now, what's interesting here is they bring they they adjust that character and so we have joanna constantine and it's a slightly different take uh which was still a part of the original comics but in a different way so there are places where this comic story is adapted and changed to fit this sort of mini series that they that they have going but this was something that's been a long time trying to find its way to any sort of screen the big screen or not what ends up happening is they finally uh, did something in such a way that I think they get it right. Uh, Tom Sturge plays the, the primary character, the Sandman, who's Lord Morpheus. Uh, all of these characters live in different realms. And so you have uh, Gwendolyn Christie playing Lucifer at one point when uh, Morpheus, who is trapped, he gets trapped on Earth by uh, human beings, and his tools are taken from him. And then he sort of ends up, once he is freed, setting off on this quest that involve a whole uh, cabal of, of, of varying figures from mythology and from folklore and characters that just sprung right out of Neil Gaiman's imagination. And one of the actors here, Tom Sturge, against primary character, he does a great job. Uh, his character, Morpheus Dream, is a little bit of a cipher sometimes, but... Uh, the cast surrounding him, Jenna Coleman, who plays Joanna Constantine. Jenna Coleman was on a, a few seasons of Doctor Who back when Matt, um, starting with Matt Smith. David Thewlis, though, he's playing the primary villain. And I don't want to say much else, but anyone who knows Thewlis, he can play a very gentle soul. He can also play a, uh, a very menacing uh, individual. Here he's balancing both of those. And this is a different sort of fantasy world. It has the, again, the eccentricities that you'd expect with Gaiman. Uh, at one point, uh, Morpheus Dream goes and meets uh, characters that are essentially Cain and Abel, who, you know, Cain kills his brother, buries him, and he's back up the next day, all to do it again. <laughs> and it's so it blends humor with whimsy and with tragedy and fantasy. Everything in this worked really well for me. As a fan, a big fan of the comic books that it's based off of, when they zagged, when they could have zigged, I was okay with that because there's a very firm foundation that it's built on. And so this felt very cohesive. I think, you know, any criticism of something like the, the Rings of Power is just that Sandman has a certain grace to it. I'm not sure that, that, the, the, that the grace and the, the um, uh, poetry are intact necessarily with Rings of Power. But with Sandman, I'm, uh, I'm really happy with the way it turned out. Uh, for me, that show is a nine. Rings of Power is more like a, you know, it's a, it's about a seven right now. We'll see how it ends up. Uh, other thing I want to mention, um, we I saw uh, my my family have been watching through uh, She-Hulk on uh, Marvel uh, on Disney Plus, 
And uh, it's fun. It's a She-Hulk attorney at law. So if you imagine Allie McBeal from the mid, you know, from the uh, mid to late nineties with a giant green woman as the lawyer, you're basically in the right ballpark. The difference here, Bill, uh, that might even appeal to you is that they kind of take the, the superhero shenanigans and sort of put them on the sidelines. Uh, this exists obviously in that world and superheroes jump in all the time, but it is really done from the perspective of she works for a law firm that represents superhuman individuals. And so the, the Marvel gets to do a 30 minute show. That's essentially this quirky law show about a lawyer getting herself into various scrapes and can answer weird little questions. You know, those little uh, niggling questions that everyone has from the movies. Like, well, why was Wong with the abomination in Shang-Chi? Well, that's a question that, you know, gets an answer in 30 minutes of uh, She-Hulk where they can bring in Benedict Wong and they can bring in um, Tim Roth playing Emil Blonsky again and kind of play that out for 30 minutes. And that allows it to be a lot lighter and a lot more fun. And uh, they can bring in, um, you know, Mark Ruffalo as Bruce, as the Hulk and have him kind of do his thing and then go back out. And they break the fourth wall and talk to the audience. It's a lo- it's all very silly, but I find that it works. It's it's a refreshing uh, kind of uh, change of pace from the Marvel shows that we've been getting. Not that those movie, that those are bad, but there's a sort of intensity, and a, okay, when I sit down, I get my notepad out, I need to follow all of this. And this is lighter and a little sillier, and it usually leaves you with a big smile on your face. At least, at least it does for me and my family, so... Perfect, because those first two shows, quite frankly, were over my head. But this one, I can take a chomp into. <laughs> okay, you get because down as with somebody, this. As somebody in a previous life before a teacher uh, working as a paralegal, I have a paralegal studies diploma, uh, I can jump into this. As someone who's dealt with contracts and that kind mm-hmm. of deal, uh, real estate and that kind of thing. So, well, yeah. I want and, you and, to... and, and I was going to say, the question is, does she look good? She does look good. Well, okay, yeah. So, about that. Um, yeah, so visually... Well, she looks good, and visually she looks good because uh, we've definitely come to the point in motion capture. We think about what it looked like when uh, the special effects for the Hulk initially, right? Like in some of those early Hulk films were like a little bit wonky, and then it was better. But this is a Hulk that is uh, not big, green, and raging. It's got to look like the actress. She can talk. She is in control of herself and her faculties when she's the Hulk. And she's played by Tatiana Maslany, who I don't know if you ever saw the show Orphan Black, Bill. No, uh, I didn't see. She, this actress is wonderful. She's really, really good, by the way, at playing characters that fit into a sci-fi fantasy world, meaning characters that have something uh, to them that's going to require a performance that's a little bit outside of your normal dramatic range. In this, she turns into this giant green creature, and in every scene that she's the Hulk, that's all special effects, but she's going to have to play that role, right? And she's going to have to play it as a as a realistic component of who she is. In Orphan Black, Monslani played a whole series of clones, and so she had to interact with each of those clones uh, from a different perspective and in a different way. And so she's really, really good at this, and she is absolutely the highlight of the show, uh, and she's what makes the show tick. Perfect. Because when I said, what does she look like? I mean, I'm not talking about the physical beauty. I wanted to see, what are the, is it practical? Is it CGI? Oh, it's, How C- do they... it, it's CGI, but it's CGI too. Well, no, it never doesn't not look like CGI, but what they've done is they've taken uh, Maslany's features, who doesn't look very hawkish at all, um, 
uh, and 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 made her big and green and given her a personality. What I think is really working for the show is that there's uh, we see Maslani as the you know uh, in her quote unquote unhawked state quite a bit, but because the hawk can talk and behave, you know, when she's at the law firm, she is she hawk. So this isn't like. Uh, the old Incredible Hawk show where he's going to be Banner, and then when he's Lou Ferrigno, he's just running around breaking crap, right? Like so, it's not—it's all CGI, a hundred percent when she's the the Hawk, uh, but it doesn't look distracting, and their character is coming through. So I applaud. I, I think that special effects have been honed in where most of the visual effects are to make that Hawk character look convincing when she's in the scene, and that's what it does. So I'm expecting in court she's in uh, plaid flannel. Well, that's funny. You know, the, we're just now getting to the point. The last episode dealt with the fact of we need to start getting a tailor for you because otherwise what Maslani is wearing is when we see her at the opening of the day, she got a suit that makes her look like a kid. So when she gets to work, she can just go Vroop, and <laughs> now it fits. She needs a, she needs a pair of jeans and a backpack. That's what we're get we're getting into that. We've yeah she was she was twerking a few weeks ago with <laughs> Megan The Stallion, but um, I think you'll get a kick out of it. I think it's a fun show. I'm cur- I don't you again if you're trying to uh, figure out all the intricacies of the Marvel universe. That's not what this is for. But we've got a lot of fun stuff going on for anyone who's been following the show. I think one of my favorite things is that Benedict Wong, who is now stepped into the role of Sorcerer Supreme that Dr. Strange held. But, you know, I think Strange said he lost it on a technicality when he blipped and was out of existence for five years. So they gave it to Wong. And he, uh, at one point, the portal, there's a, there's a stage magician who has been using uh, the magic for nefarious purpose, not nefarious, for just his own incidental uh, purposes. He wants to be a stage magician, so he's going to like open up this portal. And he accidentally flings this drunk uh, college girl <laughs> into Wong's apartment. So here's Benedict Wong, who's a stoic monk, sitting here with this girl that's drunk off her ass, talking, trying, spoiling Sopranos for him as he watches it. <laughs> so, right. Well, I was going to say that it sounds like one that I might actually be able to get into. I think so. I think so. And it's, But I tell you, give Sandman a chance. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. One episode. One episode. Right. Charles Dance is right there up at the front, so you get some... Get some good acting and considering some of the stuff I've watched an hour of my time with that probably is not the uh, worst. No, no, you will know, you will know by the end of the episode, whether it's like a show for you or you're like, Oh, this is one of those damn Nathan things. You'll know. I gotcha. Alrighty. Well, I'm going to jump into 2022 film. We've talked many times of movies. You can sit and watch with your wife on the couch. Or your boyfriend, or your partner, or your lover, or whoever it is who wants to watch a movie, what's one you can find? So generally, my wife, Jen, and I will flip through Netflix and Prime for half an hour before we just give up to find something. But we found this one from 2022 on Netflix, I believe it was, called Breaking. An hour and 43 crime drama thriller. Directed by Abby Damaris Corbin, who hasn't done anything that I would have known. The synopsis is... A Marine War veteran faces mental and emotional challenges when he tries to reintegrate into civilian life. Uh, that, that really doesn't have anything to do with the plot of this film. Yes, vaguely. So, again, IMDb totally stumps you. It stars someone you might know, especially genre fans like we are, Jean Boyega. Jean Boyega was in Star Trek 
uh, sorry, Star Trek. Uh, bad pun on my end. Star Wars Episode Seven, and he was on Star Wars Episode Eight. And uh, as a younger actor, I didn't recognize him in Attack the Block. He was one of the kids in the apartment complex. Yeah, that's the first time. I think it was his kind of breakthrough. It's the first time I'd seen him. Yeah. Uh, Nicole Bahari, who was in um, 42, uh, Jacob's Ladder. And Salinas Leva, who's in Spider-Man Homecoming. And Orange is the New Black. I've never seen that. My wife says it's good. I haven't seen the film. I haven't seen it either. And the actress Connie Britton. Uh, who uh, genre fans would know from American Horror Story and Friday Night Lights. And all the way back, um, yeah, she's uh, been Gladiator, right? Yeah, she may, yeah, may well have been in Gladiator back in the day. So this is based on a true story. Now, obviously, Hollywoodish, you know, kind of changes some things to suit their fancy. But it is, the basis is a true story. So Bayega is a down-and-out father. And he doesn't have a lot of money. He's kind of, you know, in a depressed mode, and you kind of understand why as the movie goes on. He walks into a bank with a bomb in his satchel, and he tells the teller to call 911. He evacuates everyone else who's in there, tells them to lock the doors, and just keeps one teller and the bank manager in there. Okay? We're kind of understanding why. He needs money, but we're not understanding yet why it's that urgent. He talks to the teller. And he's going to blow up and kill him and everyone else unless his demands are met. What's his issue? His veteran's disability check had been stolen and revoked. So he has this check for $892 some odd, if I remember correctly, that was revoked for him. And that made the difference between basically keeping his apartment and being able to pay for things for his daughter and not. So he's in a mental state where... He's come back from, they don't say what war, it might have been in the desert somewhere. And he's come back, he's got PTSD, he's living on this pension, and it was taken away from him. It turns out due to circumstances that weren't his fault. And he knows that weren't his fault. He's ticked off, but he's in such a mental state that he's kind of desperate and this is what he wants to do. It's, it's Boyega is uneasy, he's unhinged, He's paranoid, yet he's polite to the two employees he keeps. He's very cognizant of what he's doing, and he's not being a jerk to those two. He's just using them to further his means. It's intense. You feel his desperation, even if you aren't familiar with the situation. I mean, very few of us can pretend to know what it was like to come back from a combat situation, but you kind of understand where he's coming from. You know, there's questions about him being on his medication. He's on the edge. He's close to the edge, close to the snapping point. And he wants to negotiate with the media, through the media and the police to get his $892. That's all he wants. <laughs> they offer him, you know, the, the teller behind the counter says, I can slip you the money you need. He goes, I only want $892. He's not looking for $12,000. He's not looking for a payday. He's just looking for what's owed to him. And he knows if he doesn't get what he wants, this is going to turn bad. Okay? So he feels that the Veteran Affairs has let him down. Okay? He feels it was some kind of glitch. He's appealed it. He's gone to the unemployment center. He ain't getting squat. And he's kind of in his last straw. The film gets drawn out 
without action for large chunks of it. He's sitting in the in the bank with the two employees. He's talking with the media. He's talking with the other employees. It, it kind of drags out a little bit, okay? Connie Britton is the TV reporter he calls to have the media. He So he calls her. I think she's a producer for the local news station. And instead of just talking to your local Joe Blow reporter, he talks right to the producer. And he's kind of negotiating and trying to get as much media attention as he can because he wants this resolved. You know, and the, ultimately the police come. Uh, the actor who plays the uh, negotiator for the police is Michael Kenneth Williams. And they kind of have a negotiation back and forth, a dialogue, because he also is former military. He kind of gets his mind frame. He's also had issues with the VA. And so it's, does the FBI do their thing? Does the local police do their thing? Is this going to get resolved? Is it going to be explosive? Is it going to be dangerous? Or is this kind of martyr, Tim, that he's giving himself going to pay off? Okay. And Michael Kenneth Williams, by the way, was in the 2018 film Superfly. He was on Boardwalk Empire. And the film that I didn't mind at all, Inherent Vice. He He's in it. Okay. And so... This was his last, one of his last films. Isn't that right? Oh, oh as he passed? Yeah. My, uh, Michael K. Williams. Yeah. Oh, he must have just... He must have just I, I think that this might be the last um, role that he... He, he done. And, you know, a heck of an actor. Uh, it, it's it's a shame that I've just learned that he's passed. Yeah, he died um, like almost this time, a little earlier last year, September 6th of 2021. Yeah. Boyega at times reminds me of Denzel Washington. Just his look, just, just the kind of the determination he has in his eyes, just the situation he's put himself into. You could see uh, Denzel doing this role 20 years ago. Yep. You know, and at, at, at certain times it gets overly dramatic, especially the ending. I mean, this film kind of sets it up to be dramatic, but I thought it kind of took that next step over the line dramatic. Good film, not great film. Uh, again, I, it's a little better than a time filler, but it's not going to be, let's get ready for an Oscar winner. You know, it's kind of in that murky middle there. Uh, better than The Invitation that we saw before, but a very different kind of film. Uh, I gave it a 7 out of 10. I wouldn't call this a popcorn film, but I wouldn't exactly call this Scarface either. This is, again, somewhere in the middle. So if you want something to watch for an hour and a half to two hours on a Sunday night, you're tired of watching football, which I never am. I'll watch it on Monday. But (laughs) by the way, (laughs) actually, Tuesday, Monday night football. But um, yeah, you could do yourself worse. Uh, Bayega's performance is pretty good. The writing is pretty good. It just kind of, it's got that made for TV film where it kind of lags a time. Yeah, it sounds good. I like um, Boyega a lot. I keep waiting for, I. it's another guy I want to see him sort of like break out a little bit more than he did. You know, uh, I was disappointed with how they handled his Star Wars character. They sort of sidelined him after that first film where I, you know, for all intents and purposes, it seemed like he was going to be one of the major, you know, components of it. And then, the, you know, with each passing film, he seemed to have less and less to do. And, uh, but he is a great actor and I, uh, you know, I just don't know that he's gotten those roles after, after star Wars that I'd want to see him. And this seems much closer to that. And I don't, I don't even have a good reason why I haven't seen this. Um, other than there's just so much stuff out right now. Yeah. This is one of those ones that I literally only caught because, uh, my wife had watched a movie and said, if you might like this, you might like this. 
and, and it came up and I thought, you know, it's generic enough that I can sit and watch. I don't have to watch every, you know, second of dialogue and still get the gist of it. And that's that kind of cool. Yeah. I definitely would like to see it. All righty, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to go next to a 2022 film that is getting a bit of buzz online. I see it in some of the Facebook groups and the various horror chats and people have been talking about it. And so I thought I'd pop in and watch it. And it's obviously 2022's House of Darkness, rated R, an hour 28. The IMDb synopsis is way too long, but I'll do it super quick. Justin Long and Kate Bosworth star in this seductive thriller from director Neil Laboot, driving home to their secluded estate after meeting at a local bar, a player out to score thinks his beautiful, mysterious date will be another casual hookup. While getting acquainted, their flirtation turns playful, sexy, and sinister. Hoping to get lucky, his luck may have just run out. Wah, wah, wah. Okay. So what you need to know about this, it's director Neil Laboot. The biggest film he's probably done that people will have heard of infamously is the 2006 Wicker Man reboot. <laughs> the bees, with, the bees. I, I honestly have put off watching that. I'm waiting for either on Land of the Creeps or Phantom Galaxy where we go, what's a film you've never seen? Oh, I've we're doing that. Man. We need to review. We should do a commentary <laughs> track for that damn movie. I saw that movie in the theater. I have a certain like affinity for it because of how just off of its rocker it is, um, which is maybe the only way to make a Wicker Man remake, really. But well, yeah. I mean, when you're getting not for prime time Nick Cage, that's what you're getting. It was back in 2006. He, he hadn't quite. He wasn't quite where he is now. But still, you're right. It was not. Uh, uh, it was almost surprising that it was as bad as it was. <laughs> yeah, it's not It's not Raising Arizona. Yeah. Uh, and he also did a few episodes of that TV show, Hell on Wheels. I think that was yeah, on. He's done, he's done quite yeah. a number of movies. Uh, back in the day, I remember uh, he, he makes a lot of movies, not surprisingly, uh, and has for years made movies about toxic masculinity, sometimes uh, featuring toxic ma- masculinity in a way in which you're not quite sure you know, uh, where the, where the lines are there. Is this just a film criticizing it? Is this film included? You know, uh, it's the shape of things he did, um, in the company of men is the one I really remember from like 97 nurse Betty was probably one of the movies that also the mainstream might be, might've become aware of. I think in like 2000, it was Renee Zellweger and Chris Rock and Morgan Freeman were in it. The main, uh, attraction to me for this film was the actors involved and kind of as alluded to before, Justin Long is basically the main star in this. I really like Justin Long. I've always liked Justin Long. He's kind of got this quirky sensibility to him. The kind of guy you'd love to sit at the bar and have a pop with. Just chew the fat. You know, he may be an actor, but he's just an interesting guy. He always plays interesting characters. So Yeah, I'll let you set this movie up because I have a... I've been seeing Justin Long a lot lately, and I have a comment about that that ties in directly to what you just said. Um, oh, perfect! But I'll wait to. I I think it'll be it'll it'll be much better once you kind of give your your thoughts on the movie. And and people unfamiliar with Justin Long, I first got exposed to him on the television show show Ed. I, I thought he was really good in Ed, but he was in Jeepers Creepers. He was in Tusk. He was in one of the um, Die Hard films, if I recall. Oh uh, yeah, Live Free or Die Hard. Uh, where I think I saw maybe first he was uh, he was in the he was one of the mega fans in the Galaxy Quest. It's the okay. kid who's like he's trying to help him save the world, and his mom makes him take the garbage out first. 
<laughs> the other the other main lead in this is Kate Bosworth. Uh, and she was in the Superman Returns. She was in Heist. She was in Remember the Titans. She's a good actress, and she but she really handpicks her roles. She's got some really quirky roles as well. So I thought it was a nice pairing between the two. Uh, there's also the beauty of this film is there's only four actors total in this film. Uh, Gia Crovatin, who was also in Hell on Wheels and was on the television show Van Helsing. Yes. Is in it. And then later in the film, Lucy Walters, who was in Boarding School. I really like that school, that movie, Boarding School. Yeah, it's good. Uh, and she was on, apparently there was a TV show about Get Shorty she was in. I wasn't. I Some uh, of these, sometimes I think these shows either didn't actually air or, I guess I don't remember that either, Bill. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm thinking it was on some American cable TV network that ran four episodes. You know, like it's got to yeah. be one of those kind of deals. But anyways, so if you like single location small space it's high on dialogue and atmosphere this is your kind of film like a gothic stage play yeah and and i actually make reference to that later that it's basically a stage play so what happens in this is justin long and kate bosworth drive up to her house after a first date they've obviously been in the city They've gone out for drinks and and gone to a restaurant, you know, commiserated back and forth. And they go back to her place. But it's out in the country. It's a large family estate, almost castle-like, that you would think is much too much house for a single woman, even (laughs) an established professional. All right. It's an an immediate red flag. It it basically is a castle. (laughs) And we've seen a few films this year about dating gone wrong. And this is, I think, the third at least that I've seen this year. They're sitting in his car. They're making small talk. He's making allusions to romantic gestures. And she invites him into her castle. In the country. (laughs) Into her castle. Across the drawbridge. Yeah. And that's not a euphemism. No. It's literally a castle. (laughs) It it is. In fact, he just walks right in. It's like. He walks right in. And she basically opens the door for him. And it's a beautiful set. It almost reminds me of those old amicus. Hammer. uh, Hammer. uh, Roger Corman. Big old castles. Great atmosphere. I almost got a bit of a sense of um, ready or not. Yeah, I think that does, you know, it's helped by the fact that Kate, I, I, I feel like I need a notepad to keep track of uh, when I'm watching a trailer, whether it's, is it Kate Bosworth, Margot Robbie, or Samara Weaving? You know, it's it's got that kind of vibe to it, okay? But what's funny is, this is a first date, obviously, and Justin Long has picked her up at the bar. Self-admittedly, they picked each other up at the bar. And he's kind of nervous. He's had a couple drinks. He's looking to get in her underwear. And she is calm, collected, relaxed, confident, almost more confident than you should be when you're taking a man home that you've just met for the first time. You know, it's a big old house. Yeah, she's like There's promising a... young woman confident, you know. It's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. Single flags. white female yeah. confident, you know. So, like, Bosworth is sexy. She's mysterious. She's alluring. She's rich. He thinks he's hit the mother load. You've got this big old house that's got a fireplace. You've got your dream girl. They have drinks and they're starting to canoodle on the couch. 
And he's thinking, all right, okay. She steps away for a moment under the auspices of making him a special drink. He's calling a buddy on his cell phone saying, oh, yeah, I got it made here. I'm just got to get in her pants because, boy, she's great. She's rich. She's got this big house. But he really doesn't know anything about her. And that's the whole. That's the mystery. What is behind the curtain that has yet to be revealed? Yet there's going to be little breadcrumb clues along the way that if you pick up on them, you know exactly. All right. There's a, it's a, the, the set is perfect. There's good chemistry. There's an interesting setup. Now in this film, if you're one that likes atmosphere, dialogue, and beautiful location, you're going to love it. If you're one that wants wham, bam, action, left, right, and center, this may not be the film for you. I like the acting in the interplay. I like the dialogue. I like the sets. You're not going to get a slasher-esque film where there's blood and guts right off the bat throughout. That is not your film you're going to be getting. But at the same time, it's not, it's not a heavy film. It's not like Tarantino dialogue-driven heavy film. This is light. But at the same time, it, it sucks you in. Bosworth, <laughs> Bosworth is very big on telling the truth. She doesn't lie, and she emphasizes that multiple times. Yet, a clue is given at the beginning. I'm not going to necessarily give it away, but Bosworth's name is Mina. Okay? That will make, it'll play into it. After 35 minutes of dialogue and getting to know each other, Mina's sister walks in. Her name is Lucy. In the film Dracula, or the novel Dracula, Lucy Westernra was Mina's best friend. Let's leave. Yeah, that right and before there. she was, she was Harker. She was Mina Murray. So just you know, that's it. let's just there. leave it there. The movie is very sexually charged, but you don't see anything. It's exactly what we said. It's sexually charged in terms of the atmosphere and the interplay, but it is not, and it's it almost needs to be that way. Everything is build up and tension we're not talking about the release of that tension per se that's it or there was an attempt perhaps but it makes it funny when there was which now this makes me surprised i don't know about you nathan that was this was actually given a rated r i was a little surprised on that maybe the last 10 minutes yeah maybe i was trying to think if maybe some of the language along the way i've been watching a lot of uh horror films lately that you know the content is much stronger and you're right this film this this is it does feel like a light r Um, it's a very light r. like i wouldn't say show it to your 10 year old but i think a 14 year old could handle this well we just finished reviewing on the same episode we reviewed um the invitation which was a pg-13 i feel like there was more content in the invitation than there was in this film i i'm i'm right there with you all right so as this film is going, the viewer, the viewer is trying to piece it together. Something is building to something, and those that are kind of in the know who watch a lot of horror picked up on it right away. Those who might be just more of a casual viewer, you're starting to piece it together. Okay? So Justin Long falls asleep, and he's having this dream where he's tied to a chair out in a cave, left by himself to his own uh, avails 
He doesn't know what the heck's going on. So he wakes up in a bit of a, a, a tizzy. All of a sudden, a sexy sister walks in. Okay. Well, we know that we've talked about her already, but he he's like, I've hit the jackpot here. I've got two gorgeous babes here, and I'm flirting with both of them. And if I play my cards right, other things might happen. He's ready to double down, right? basically. <laughs> yeah, he's ready to, let's just go to town. And there's not much right? more, I think, really, that we can no. say about it. No. Did you no. like this one, Bill? What did you think? I, I liked it. Uh, you know what? I, I'm going to walk around a few things. Uh, there are some stories that are told. There's some family background that's given. There's a really good payoff. I really like the payoff. At, at a certain point, it gets bloody. And that's probably where the rated R kicks in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I loved the journey. It kept me engaged. But I can see this not being for everyone. Due to the buildup not being as action-filled as some may like. Yeah, it's a very specific kind of film, but I think that's okay. As we've talked about many times, the genre includes all types. And that's this it. is very much, uh, this very much has a feel of a short story. It has a very much yep. feel of a, of a stage play. Um, and I think that the running time and what Labute does with the movie really uh, doesn't, doesn't pretend like it's anything else than that. I actually think that uh, most of his films are are that same ilk where they feel like they could very well be plays or you know have their originations in a very short story where there's an, an emotional crux he's really trying to get at a feeling and an atmosphere and he kind of does this through a handful of characters that we get to know um i i liked the movie as well i think that if it if you want to compare it to something to me, it has a lot more in common with a movie called like Scare Me from a few years ago. Do you remember that yes. one, Bill? Yes, I think that yes. made, I don't know if it made our top tens, but I think it at least made our honorable mentions. And in that yeah. film, you had a would-be writer who runs into uh, an actually published author. And they're, again, guy and a girl, and they're throwing stories back and forth. A few different people come into that milieu, and we see some more toxicity sort of rise to the surface. Uh, that film... Uh, kind of danced around horror. They were telling horror stories to each other, and you kept wondering, "Will this is this movie ever going to sort of like slip into actual horror?" Uh, I think that the expectation here is very much like, "Okay, we're headed to a very uh, specific place," and I think you know, you mentioned the mystery, but I don't know that it's really that much of a mystery. Like you, like you, uh, sort of intimated, if you come into this and you've watched any horror movies at all, and really don't even have to watch many horror movies. If you just know general information about, you know, popular culture, you can kind of figure out where this is going, which I think is almost by design. I think LeBute wants us to walk into this. And I know we've got a couple movies here. One of the big questions that always pops up for everybody is, well, why do these people in horror films stay? Why do they stay? And I think we've got one we're going to talk about where, where the question is why. I think the movie never sells me on why they would stay. Now, here, we're, he's trying to do something different. And it does sort of reminiscent of, I think, what was one of our top movies last year, uh, Promising Young Woman. It was right near the top, I believe. Uh, this year, the year before, I can't remember. I think it was 2021. Yeah, 20, man, time flies, Bill. <laughs> Um, but yeah, for 2020, I think one of our top movies, uh, well, I think if, if it might've been your number one, it was, I think my number two, I was promising young woman. And, uh, that movie dealt with, with guys that, you know, I think from their perspective, they thought that they were 
pretty normal guys who want normal things, and yet uh, there's a little bit of a sexual predator, or at least a sexual pest, who wants to kind of have a conquest, who thinks he can kind of walk into this situation and get what he wants, and he's driven by that to such a degree that he becomes sort of oblivious to everything else, oblivious to maybe what this other person actually wants or desires. And in this case, it's kind of a flip because he's not, he's oblivious to his own safety in this situation. He sort of walks in assuming that he's going to play this field and he's in control of this game. And it's very obvious. I I think that part of the fun of the movie is it's very obvious right from the get-go, the minute you see the castle, that this is not... This is not business as usual, but Justin Long doesn't play it that way. And so I've seen Justin Long in several movies recently, and it really goes back to, um, you know, in the original Jeepers Creepers, he was a pretty much, he was a decent guy, right? Like the things that happened to him, he didn't deserve anything that happened to him. Um, I was was just making the observation in my head that Justin Long, you take him for what 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 he stumbled into in Tusk, what he stumbled into in Jeepers Creepers, what he stumbled into this like he's always kind of he stumbles into a lot of stuff right and like i think i think our our friend amanda lee was, was saying he's like just if you're justin long you really need to think before you you go on any long you go on any trips anywhere um because it doesn't work out for him there's another film out right now where justin long also doesn't fare well like uh, trey and i'll be reviewing this episode but the the thing though that i think separates tusk and this film and the other movie um which, which incidentally is Barbarian. Uh, those three movies and other films too. In fact, he was in the TV show. He was in an episode of the TV show of Creep Show recently. Justin Long has made a sort of secondary career. I think he is a very affable, likable guy. He does like to seem like the guy, and he probably is in real life. The guy that you sit down and just you know uh, have some beers with and hang out. But in that affability, I think he's learned or he's picked up on a sort of certain kind of character that he that probably came to prominence with Tusk, which is Justin Long is the bad guy who doesn't know he's the bad guy, who thinks he's totally on the level, that he's totally uh, doing everything exactly right. And if you look at his character in Tusk, he's not a good guy. He plays him in such a way where we think, oh, he's just a hapless guy. He's wandered into this. He doesn't deserve this. But in reality, he's, he's the problem. <laughs> he's sort of the low-key monster who doesn't understand to what extent he is. And I like that because I think it's a certain kind of character that is rooted in the real world. And that's why this works. It's, is this an exceptional movie? It's not, it go, you know, I think it's a little too straightforward. We see exactly where it's going and it goes directly there, but all of the fun is in the interplay between the characters, between Bosworth and, uh, and, and long here who are, you know, they have that chemistry They're they're um, together in real life. And, uh, they're also both in Barbarian, which is out now, which is also uh, worth seeing. But uh, here, Long has to take that character, and he's at the center of this whole movie, which is a little different than some of the other films. Even in Tusk, like it, by the halfway mark, everything changes in Tusk, and, and really Long is no longer carrying that film, right? So here he's got to do it all the way through, and I think he does a pretty good job. It, it, the, the film's going to be focused on these two characters primarily. It works. It is a little bit light, I think, like you said. It's got a lot of great gothic atmosphere. I think that um, it's it makes for a fun evening. I, I, I give it like a seven. Yeah, I gave it a seven and a half. Um, it's got an outside shot at a bottom of a top ten list. I, I don't mind it. The other thing I, I find interesting with this film and i like it's it's an appealing characteristic to me 
is if you were to cut this film at about the halfway point or even at about the three quarter point, it's almost like a choose your own adventure in that it could have gone in 14 different ways. It, it kind of just laid the, uh, the groundwork for what could have gone in multiple directions. And it went to the one that honestly was easiest to go to. But it could have gone all over the place. I mean, this could have been a Vincent Price adventure. This could have been something uh, Well, I'm not involving... so sure it goes too far off from that. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So it's a, it's a movie that you could watch with, you know, a husband, a wife, a girlfriend, a boyfriend. And, and you would have a good enough time as long as you're not expecting Silence of the Lambs. If you're just expecting a fun kind of interplay dialogue type atmospheric film, I say yeah, completely I think you can you can rent it for like five or six bucks and then you could buy it for 10 or 12. Um, it's a good movie. Uh, it's interesting. I'm looking at the uh, on Amazon. It's on Prime. It's very other uh, various other places. But on Prime, it's got like a two out of five stars, which I just don't think <laughs> that's that's not exactly reflective of the movie that it is. I think that it's a better movie. Than that, and I think that that speaks to what you're saying bill that some people are going to walk in this with different expectations so i yeah. think you're in for a moody little suspense piece that will eventually in its final third get to where the horror is but i think the rest of the movie it is this is one that's about the de- about the journey and that journey works here uh part par- partially because you're watching the extension of that idea that we saw in promising young woman where there's a confident guy who goes in this situation and he's clearly overconfident and he sort of uh, finds his comeuppance in various different ways along the way, but we're is interested in that that uh, character dynamic. We're, we we're rooted there because we kind of have a feeling where it's going to end up. And I think uh, kudos to Lebut for sort of taking it through to the final to that final conclusion because I think that's what was lacking in some of his other films. Uh, he builds up these characters and these sort of a detestable men, and he sort of creates a. Uh, a stew, but he doesn't do anything. Uh, some of those films are a little bit ambiguous, and this this movie is not ambiguous. <laughs> no, you you basically know what you're getting from yeah. the first ten minutes. But it's a, it's a fun ride, and I, I it's do a fun ride. That. It, it, it it's one that I can watch multiple times. It's 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 one of those. So Nathan, what are you bringing up to the plate right now? Okay, well I'm going to talk about a movie that. Uh, just came out this past weekend. I saw it at the theater. I was actually going to see the movie uh, Pearl, which uh, we'll be reviewing later, and uh, ended up seeing this one instead because times didn't work out right. This is Don't Worry, Darling, and it, it's been getting a lot of like buzz. A lot of it, you know, not necessarily always positive buzz. It's probably just about as infamous as it is, uh, you know, popular right now. But this is a movie. It's directed by Olivia Wilde. And it's gone through a lot of different iterations. Harry Styles was cast in the film. And there's a question, well, Harry Styles isn't really an actor. What's he doing here? Uh, There has been on and off, you know, sort of tabloid talk about there being sort of friction between Wilde, who's the director, and uh, Florence Pugh, who's the main star. Remember Florence Pugh from movies like Midsommar. Chris Pine is in it. Um, Nick Kroll is in it. And so you've got this big, and Wilde herself is, is in the film as well got this big cast you've got this sort of uh, seemingly high concept a female directed film that's had you know bumps along the way Shia LaBeouf at one point was cast and he wasn't cast and there's word that he was fired he claims he was you know he he left of his own volition all this kind of stuff never it 
it makes for good, I guess, uh, PR, and clearly it did because it brought people out to see this movie. But none of that stuff really matters to me. Uh, it's all about what kind of uh, a movie ends up on the screen. And and don't worry, darling, I'll give you the sort of IMDb synopsis first. Bill, have you seen trailers at all for this movie? I have kept away until I watch. Okay, and that's probably that's probably the right. Uh, the right idea because i think even from the trailers you get a, a, a basic idea so i'll try to keep the synopsis for bill and for everyone listening at home i'll try to keep the synopsis relatively vague and i think i could talk about this in that way uh imdb says a 1950s housewife living with her husband in a utopian experimental community begins to worry that his glamorous company could be hiding disturbing secrets i think that's fair i think that that uh does indeed sum it up but you you have characters living in that kind of 1950s sort of perfectly quaffed world that uh, looks looks wonderful on the outside with the shiny cars and the smiling housewives and the jello salad right yummy (laughs) yum 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 yeah yeah all of the all of that and the 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 young guys headed out to the company that come back and the wives are going to make great meals and they're going to have these dinner parties where everyone drinks a few too many cocktails you see that world created in a very um extensive detail and we also see that there are little cracks and chinks in that world but we see florence Pugh's alice is one of these housewives that's going through the motions and victory is the name of the community that they they live in it's also the name of the company that they all work for and they've all come there because uh they all want to be a part of the vision of uh the the creator of victory sort of the founder of victory is this guy frank he's played by chris pine and chris pine kind of sneers his way through this entire film he's one of those guys that seems very charming on the outset but there's something a little bit smug and a little bit predatory underneath doesn't doesn't even necessarily mean that he's the bad guy it's just that's sort of his, his character and his nature and and some people are drawn to him for that and and pew's character sort of recognizes it and, and i think she's a little wary of it but like in many of these films with this sort of beautiful, wonderful, almost, um, you know, el- elusive community that seems where everything's right and everything is perfectly quaffed, that right underneath of it, there are things sort of pulling apart. And we notice that uh, Kiki Lane plays Margaret and she is at one of the parties and almost in, in the same the same way that we're introduced to the, 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 the cracks in the armor in a movie like Get Out, we notice that some people just aren't aren't fitting into their role just right. They're recognizing that things are a little off. They are behaving in a paranoid manner. We see a plane kind of go down in the desert. I should mention this community, even though it looks like the perfect 1950s community, it is sort of nestled right in the middle of the desert. And so there are mountains and a vast expanse of uh, nothing, really, right outside of this community. And we know that at some point, Kiki's Margaret went out with her young boy, wandered out beyond the area, and guess what? No one's supposed to. No one's supposed to head to headquarters. No one's supposed to cross that desert. So that that's a warning sign right there. We know that she went out, and her little boy uh, didn't make it as a result, and she's never been quite right since. And so. Uh, Pew's in the middle of all this. She recognizes that something's wrong with Margaret, and Olivia Wilde, who plays Bunny, she's the she's the next door neighbor who's got it all together, but can't stand to look at her kids half the time. <laughs> just can't, can't wait for them to be be away from her and out of her hair. And it, beneath everybody, you know, you look into their eyes, you can see that they're 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 straining at it, and they probably be straining at it regardless of what was going on. But there are clearly things that don't make sense in Victory 
that nobody is asking questions about. And one of those is the fact that a plane comes over and clearly sort of crash lands down beyond the reach of the suburb. So Florence Pugh heads out to check it out. And what she finds there starts to make her wonder what exactly is going on here. And I don't want to say too much more uh, as far as the plot's concerned, because at that point you're starting to kind of uh, dig into the the essence of the movie, which is also kind of the problem here. This is a very well-directed movie. The movie looks wonderful. This entire community and the, the, the way in which Wilde captures it, both the soundtrack is great. There's always something sort of disturbing and... Uh, incongruous going on to suggest that things are not the way they should be. And some of these happy-go-lucky 1950 songs are used to show the lockstep nature of this domestic housewife thing. So they do a really good job of capturing what must be a certain hysteria of this 1950s lifestyle. There's only so many parties we can go to. There's only so many times we can smile and be friendly and drink and, you know, to the point that we want to pass out and then go back and do the exact same thing over the next day and the next day and the next day. And eventually those small corners of your existence are starting to stab you and poke at you. Wilde gets all of that right, I think. And Pew is really good in the film. She carries the movie, and she's so strong in the movie that I think we don't really initially recognize that there's not a lot of meat on the bones here. I think that's the problem. The setup that I gave you with this uh, kind of compelling mystery and what is what what does victory actually do? What's the what is the goal of the company? Why are they out in the middle of nowhere? Uh, there are certainly some scenes that suggest that there's almost a cult like presence going on here, but at the same time, it doesn't look that different from what we might expect 1950s insular communities to look like. You know, so if we've got Mina and Lucy in the other movie, and we have Alice here, we should expect that things are not going to be exactly as they appear, and that we might be on the other side of the looking glass. Uh, Harry Styles in the film, he, his line delivery is very, uh, you know, it's, it's stunted. It's very awkward. He, sometimes he's affecting a, a a British accent that doesn't really work here. Uh, the movie finds a way to sort of make what he's doing fit, but I do think he's sort of the weak link here. Again, Pew carries the movie, uh, Pine, like I mentioned, there's a bit where, at a certain point in the film, Pine and Pew are sort of squaring off. The, 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 the stage is sort of set for these two characters to sort of uh, come to uh, intellectual blows, if you will. It looks like the movie is set to sort of pit them against one another. And I think that kind of, if the film had gone further in that direction, we might have had something really, really good. As it is, the movie builds up the certain mystery. It finds an answer for that mystery that isn't that surprising, that you're more you're most likely to guess it right off the bat. But unlike House of Darkness, that is inexorably marching towards one specific ending, the film here makes a I think it makes a fatal misstep by not taking what ends up being our twist here and placing that directly in the middle of the film. And then allowing the rest of the movie to sort of encompass pew and pine because that's where the heart and the meat of your film is instead what we have here is a long two-hour movie that really feels like it's 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 like the pilot episode for an entire tv series where this movie start stops is where i wanted it to begin (laughs) if that makes sense bill uh because it's laid down an interesting framework but as a conclusion to itself as this is the end of the story you're let down you think that's all there is that all of this all of this uh, effort and all of this style and, and and everything that's been gathering up 
comes down to this, the movie's relatively disappointing from that perspective. I don't, I didn't have a bad time watching it. And, uh, and if this had been released in maybe 1996, the movie might be more effective. The things that it's trying to say and the ideas it's trying to get at are relatively quaint, I think, by today's standards in terms of, uh, yeah, we know this. Well, let's see beyond this. What you're saying is boilerplate. I need you to go a little bit further with this. Again, I don't want to say too much, but this movie starts to flirt with the concepts of science fiction. This very much, you know, but Black Mirror does something like this in 50 minutes. And here we're stretching something out over two hours, not an unpleasant two hours, but it just doesn't quite work for me. And it's that close to working for me that I was, I was pretty let down by it. But at the same time, I think that what Wilde is establishing here, this is her second movie uh, directing after Booksmart. She shows that she is a, she does have a, a good grip on the style and her ability to work with actors and, and pull performances and put together a movie that is compelling uh, to look at and to listen to. I think the problem here is they went with the wrong script. Uh, this needed a few more rewrites, and I really think they need to take what their big moment move it to the middle, and then ask the question, what happens after that? After hearing that review, I can't wait to see it just because I want to know what, what hasn't been said. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think you, like me, you'll find value in that, and you'll say, but I want a little more. Like, I, I almost get a bit of a, a Stepford Wives You're bang on about that. This Wild absolutely has that movie in mind as she's making this one. I I also get a a slight sense of vivarium. That's not a bad comparison. You know, because of just the neighborhood setting and awkwardness and weirdness and stuff. Uh, The writers on this, Katie Silberman and and Carrie Van Dyke and Shane Van Dyke, I think they both, uh, both of them and and Silberman, I think who did the actual screenplay, I think they absolutely had some of these movies and more than one or two episodes of the Twilight Zone or, or whatnot I, I, in mind I, I, when I, they when they made this. I don't want to speculate too deeply because, you know, you and I have both seen our fair share of movies. We can probably kind of figure out, but I want to leave a little bit to myself to actually go and watch and go, okay, Nathan did not mention this. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. So um, I'll say this. Uh, I think that what the style of the movie here. This is the, what she does with it. It it feels like there's a lot of surface level sheen and a lot of surface level um, uh, polish, and what's underneath the hood, it's a little bit empty. It, it it it's like it it's like a Camaro with a four banger under the hood. So I'm going to give this a five point five because I didn't have a bad time watching it. Pew Pew is the secret weapon here. She's going to get you from the beginning to the end. I think if she wasn't in the film, I would have uh, tuned out. Uh, of it. As it is, I didn't tune out. I just got to a point where I thought, that's it. All right. So I'm going to try to get a hold of that before the end of the year. It sounds like it'll hit my other list. It won't be a horror list, but it may make an, an other list. Or maybe not. Or at least it'd be worth watching. So we, we tend to be on a trend the last couple of reviews of movies with quirky characters, not quite direct traditional storylines, you know, a little bit of misdirection in things i'm going to continue that trend and i watched this film a 2022 film that i know nathan hasn't seen so i'm uh, curious if he ever gets a chance to watch it and it's called gatlop hell of a game i see it's on tubi so i'm i'm definitely gonna watch it (laughs) (laughs) 
I saw it up there this week. I'm like, yep, I got to see that. That's it. It's an hour 20, so it's not going to kill, uh, tax your time, kill you in the time department. And I don't like the description in IMDb. It's just a rambling paragraph, basically. So I found a website called thereviewshub.com, and they reviewed it. And this is how they kind of opened it up with. The title sequence of Gatlop is promising. A board game comes to life, tiny pieces trundling purposefully around, dodging the obstacles which keep popping up all around them. The music suggests fun and adventure with a whiff of evil. Will this comedy horror film deliver? All right. This is low budget, but I will say that it probably maximized its production value based upon the budget it had. Okay. On the cover poster, it just has basically four people standing above a board game with cards above floating beside them. They all kind of have this bewildered look on their face. You're not quite sure what's going on here. All right. This was directed by a director I had not heard of before called Alberto Belli. Now, Alberto Belli has one particular movie to his credit. I'm assuming Alberto's a man. I I should never make that assumption. Uh, Called The Hobbit, Kingdom of Middle Earth slash Dance Battle. I can only imagine what that film is. I I can't think (laughs) Middle Earth in the middle of a dance battle, but who knows i'd be up for that maybe it's a fan film maybe it's a low budget i I think people are afraid that's gonna be the last episode of rings of power (laughs) (laughs) all of a sudden the dance battle breaks up everybody dance now i feel like there's certain people out there that would have less of that of a problem than the fact that there are girls (laughs) with swords so so this essentially is a four-person uh cast and so none of the names are big names at least at least not to me uh, Jim Mahoney, who was a video game voice in World of Warcraft and Diablo 3. That was the big thing that I could figure I'm getting, out. I'm getting a, a certain vibe from everything you've seen <laughs> about this movie. Bill, the... Emmy Raver uh, Lampman, who was in a, a TV show that uh, pretty popular. I've never seen it. The Umbrella Academy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, she was in Jane the Virgin, which another show I know is gotten some press and not uh, seen that one john i'm aware ba- of it john bass who was in the 2017 movie baywatch uh he was also in molly's game he's also currently in she hulk attorney at law who does he play in that because uh, i'm watching she hulk right now interesting okay. there you go uh shenny henning hennig who was in unfriended and ouija okay. uh, and patricia belcher who was in the the first jeepers creepers uh, the original species and flatliners. So, you know, you got, you got a few people here. You got uh, an actress, Sarunas Jackson, who hadn't been in a lot that I'd heard of. Here's what I wrote down. Some interesting visual effects with some obvious CGI, but the film is fun and interesting. It opens with a wild party in an apartment and nosy neighbors find a mess with a game board laying on the floor. So there's this party going on. There's this older couple wants to know what the heck is going on. They open it up and then there's this game board with a mess all over the apartment. And then it cuts. It's stylishly shot, but I found it tried a little too hard to be hip. Mahoney is recently divorced and he moves in with Bass, his friends. Jackson and Raver Lapman show up to cheer him up. 
Okay. He's kind of out of a bad relationship. He wants, you know, just to be by himself on the couch, but as he moves in with his friend, his friends show up kind of a reluctant party gets going and they bring over a board game called Gatlop that one of them had picked up at a secondhand consignment type store. And he thought he'd heard about it. It's a drinking game. Let's play this. There's some trivia involved. Let's get our mind off the divorce and let's get, you know, into a different headspace. All right. So the game goes bizarre and it comes to life. So you kind of got a little bit. It does. You got a little bit of Jumanji going on. Is this like Jumanji (laughs) for the like, you know, middle-aged divorcees? You know, this is, you know, it's not, you're not going to have elephants running through the living room. But but there are some bizarre things that happen, okay? Dance battles in Middle Earth, yeah. What they find out is someone has to win or they have to play the game for eternity. <laughs> so there you go. Is Charles Band involved in this? And it has to be done by sunrise. Okay. Oh, and if not, then you're stuck for eternity. Then you're, you're stuck. You're stuck. So you got Who uh, makes these rules, Bill. <laughs> It's, it's obviously Mr. Belly makes this <laughs> belly. Mr. Belly, yeah, I got to do this. So the, I, I wrote down, it's got a feel of vivarium. And it also has a feel of, you remember that movie a couple years ago, Dave Makes a Maze? Yes, I yes. remember that film. Yeah, it, yeah, It's very much like Dave made a maze, okay? So for example, Bass gets an arrow in the leg. Mahoney had to act out his favorite movie, but lied when someone guesses someone guessed what his favorite movie was and he just kind of okay that was it whenever you lie there is some negative consequence to it all right his favorite movie is apocalypto and somebody said it was star wars and he gave it to him <laughs> his favorite movie is apocalypto i don't know if i would admit that either um. and so they have to act out answers to questions and their punishments if not answering truthfully so you you have to accept and you have to ask the question with a truthful answer and you have to accept the truthful answer. Okay. I'm kind of, I'm kind of intrigued by this. It's, it's, it's very odd. There's, but as it goes, like it, it does have its heavier moments because they're all been through different traumas. Yeah. Personal truths are revealed. It does. As they get, always are. It does get deep, but I put in quotations. I enjoyed the deepness of it. So quirky. I, I'm not going to go into a lot of it because I, I just want you to discover. Yeah, I think I think I'm good. Like I'm sold. <laughs> I, I is it? Does it? Does it? Um, does the fan? Do does it embellish the fantasy elements? Do we get into like some fantasy? There's a the there's film? a bit of fan, fantasy. There's almost a little bit of Bill and Ted. You know where stuff kind of comes out of nowhere and it's there and then it's gone. So this, so we're not talking a horror film here. This is sort of firmly in a fantasy comedy. Is well, that? I, I would put it comedy, horror, fantasy. Okay, just out there. Like it's got elements of sci-fi. No rating wise, is this? Are we talking? Does it get dark? Does it get gory? Or is it staying like a PG thirteen sort of? I would say it rides that line of PG thirteen R only because a couple, you know, like one person gets an arrow in the leg and they have to get rid of it. And there's, there's, there's some drinking involved. There's a bit of language involved, but nothing that's, you know, going to put you off any, even if you're a a conservative person, you're still not going to be offended by it. I like the pacing being 80 minutes. It's fast. There's no wasted scenes. There's no obligatory shower or sex scene. There's no obligatory long, deep personal uh, 
dialogue. You get what you get, and it keeps on moving. Okay? My favorite is when the deep personal dialogue scenes and the shower scenes are the same thing. <laughs> we're not. We're, 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 yeah, I was going to say we're not talking. Just like not a Wong Kar Wai film. Is that what you're saying, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> but for me, I thought where it kind of fell a bit flat for me was the ending. I thought the ending, the last 15 minutes, fell. A little underwhelmed. I, I they, they scream Gatlop and then everything goes back into the game. <laughs> they cop the, I, I'm not going to go where it goes. It's a little. Yeah, bit, don't, don't tell me. It's yeah. a little bit funny where it ultimately goes, but I, I thought it could have done a bit more. You know, like Vivarium kind of went around the turn a little bit. This These one movies. Didn't. Yeah, yeah, yes. Agreed. I hear you. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I, put, I mean, I haven't seen it, but I, I, I know say, what you mean. I put frustrating watch, good acting, bones are there but it fell just a little bit short. It didn't go far enough either with the comedy or the horror or the strangeness. It just that could describe so many movies. That could literally be my review for Don't Worry Darling. <laughs> like it uh I mean it's not a comedy, but uh you're right. Like they, they're so like I feel like we have a lot of those movies this time. Those like almost like you were just you were in the ballpark. You just so ultimately I gave it 6 and a half out of 10, okay. which I think is a fair middle of the road worth a watch but yeah. i don't think it'll be an honorable mention perhaps but it won't make a top 10 it sounds like it's worth seeing i think it's like you like the last review i did where i wasn't positive on it but you're like hey you made me want to see that i'm the same way i want to i want to see where the movie goes so um sounds sounds fun sounds I, I like at least like it, a matinee it's fun but watch. don't go in with tempered expectations Hey, it's a Tubi watch. I think, you know, I mean, probably by the standards of Tubi, it's going to seem amazing. Hey, my next <laughs> film is a Tubi film, which was much better than Gallup. Oh, okay. Well, I'm looking forward to hear what, what that one is. Um, All righty. What do you got next, Mr. Baudelaire? Oh, the most anticipated movie of the year. Not most anticipated, but I tell you what, man, people are a, it's one of those movies, and it seems like there's no movie that isn't this way these days, or TV show for the matter, or people have a lot of super strong opinions before the movie even comes out. I have to admit that along the entire uh, production of this film, from the moment it was rumored until the trailer came out, that I was one of those people, I, I, I didn't want to be obnoxious and go on about it, but I tell you, I was like zero excited for this. And I had this sort of feeling of like, why are we doing this? So we'll, let's see how it turned out. But this is Rob Zombie's The Monsters. Ooh, and we've, we've been, and I mean... How much internet ink and blood has been spilled over talking about this, now, this the, movie? The, the, the thing about this movie is, one, Zombie himself is divisive. And secondly, people don't like things that they cherish to be messed with. Yes. So you've got a couple Correct. of different angles going at, and a different interpretation to a cherished classic doesn't always go well. It's yeah, Well, and you're, these days you're damned if you're doing, damned if you don't, because if you're too... Uh, if you're if you're too covetous of it and you're too careful with it, then it looks like you're being so reverent that it you know you didn't do anything interesting. Why are you showing me this? And then the vice the the other side is different. This isn't the show I remember at all. And what have you done? And you you know it was hard to tell. I I mean if you follow Zombies history as a filmmaker, this is a movie he wanted to make even before he made. House of a Thousand Corpses. I mean, this is the kind of th movie he always it's wanted to make. A, it's a passion project. He's 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 in love. I, I read a review. I think IGN 
uh, let me, I should pull out who the, the author of this is, uh, Matt Donato. He has a line there that said his tagline under his review was, I wished I loved anything as much as Rob Zombie loves the monsters. <laughs> and oh, if you hear zombie talk, he's one of those guys like Eli Roth. I love to listen to him talk more than I like listening, watching his movies, if I'm honest. And I gotta, I gotta be, fun, uh, honest and upfront is that while I appreciate, um, some of the choices and things he's made in some of his films. And I can appreciate what he's done in some of his movies that Rob zombie is not like, he's not my, my, my favorite, my, uh, my favorite ice cream flavor, if you will, it's not tutti fruity, right? So, uh, there's things I like in his films and I've liked chunks of his movies, but he's not quite my thing. So I'll put that up front, but I love to listen to the guy talk. Uh, and he has such a love for the genre and he has, a great love for the monsters. Now, when this was being made, we heard stuff all over the map and I don't know if it was intentionally put out there and that was the intention or that zombie and others just let this be said. But for a long time, there was like, it seemed like everybody was in the understanding that this was going to be a, an R rated movie with gore and violence and all things you expect from Rob zombie, although zombie himself never corroborated that. And so a long time, Everyone on the internet was under the impression that this was going to be Rob Zombie's The Monsters. Except, you know what? What was the plot of The Monsters, Bill? It was that you had this this basically sitcom family. The same guys that made Leave It to Beaver. A lot of those showrunners worked on this show, you know, when it was on. And it was a, it was a show where every week this family dealt with the minutia of life and sometimes brushes with fame. You know, one of them, uh, he's a rock star this week and it's gone to his head. What are we going to do with dad? You know, but the, the, the gimmick of course was, you know, what can we do? Well, we've got universal with all these properties over there that we already own. So let's just make the, the family monsters. And that's the, the gist is they're monsters that are just like you and I, and the devil's rejects has these horrifying uh, human monsters that are doing despicable, awful things, and yet Zombie has whole sequences where they argue over what kind of ice cream are we going to get, right? And scenes where we have, you know, they're, they're, they're driving into a bullet storm and a, and a cop roadblock while we watch, you know, uh, touching scenes of their growing up together after they've murdered millions of, of you know, people. The, he, he takes the dichotomy of the monsters and he puts it into Devil's Rejects, and in a way, Devil's Rejects is... is is Rob Zombie's version of the monsters. That's where his version of the monsters is. This movie, the monsters turns out to be a PG rated film that he wanted to make in black and light, excuse me, make in black and white as an homage to uh, the original show. But you know, he says the studio was never going to let him do that. So he chooses this very kind of gaudy, strange, uh, almost hallucinogenic color palette for the movie that looks for all the world, the movie I say this most looks like, and this might surprise you, is 1982's Creep Show. Oh wow! Down to the colors and the and the canted angles and some of the German expressionism that was being used in there. Even the comic book flourishes where the pages will turn and things like that, or you'll see images kind of zoom in and out of each other. And then the, one of my favorite sticks in Creep Show that I loved is when a character was in some state of duress maybe in a murderous rage or in a panicked fright uh the background would become abstract and you'd have like big circles spinning around or you know it would go completely red and there would be like teardrops or something in the background they do that a lot in this film so it's very very stylized that part is very much like zombie but this movie is not rob zombies the monsters this is his love letter to the monsters this is a movie that 
when I finally saw it, I was sitting there watching it, and the, in some of the opening shots, Richard Brake is in the movie, playing a mad scientist who's gathering body parts to build a monster. This is an origin story for the monsters, which kind of works here. Usually I'm not a fan of that thing, but it takes it out of Rob Zombie just trying to make jokes about this family living in the house together, and this is how they got into the house. So Daniel Roebuck is Grandpa Monster. We've heard, you know, of course, Sherry Moon Zombie is Lily Monster, and Jeff Daniel Phillips plays Herman Monster. And honestly speaking, when the movie started, I was like, this is it's this is kind of dumb. This is this feels like a TV Halloween special. And then I'm watching a little bit more more of it. And I'm thinking, you know, this actually feels more like all the connective pieces of a late night horror, like a horror host's segments, the goofy campy segments that play in between the movies. Not surprising that Cassandra Peterson, a.k.a. Elvira, shows up in this movie, uh, as do a lot of the regulars that show up in uh, most of uh zombies films but i will say this as the movie continues and it is pitched at the level of about like a six to ten year old's movie this is you know this is completely family friendly it's filled with dad get excuse me it's filled with dad jokes uh i think roebuck makes a comment when he's talking about his ex and says you know i really dodged a stake on that one this is the level we're talking about someone says something like well rome wasn't built in a day and herman responds well i might have been you know it's that kind of thing <laughs> it's like it's like the monsters it's campy goofy gaudy it's all of those things and it's very affectionate the, the issue is really you've got a whole movie here when i think zombie might have been better had he taken it to netflix and just made it in little chunks and made like four or five episodes at a sitcom level because at that level this movie's gonna is made for fans of the monsters. I don't know how many of them are out there that truly it, it it feels like that show or things that were inspired by that show, like the horror host segments. You know, I used to watch Morgus the Magnificent as a kid. This kind of humor is at that level. It, it, it's like a little bit of a downgraded young Frankenstein. Richard Brake is like channeling his inner Vincent Price, and I love it. I mean but zombie doesn't necessarily move away from the ghoulishness. He's just pitching it at a level. He understands that this is a gateway horror. This was the road and the journey that took him to where he, you know, he found the grindhouse films and the gore movies and all those other things that he loved as a teenager, but it started with the monsters and he recognizes that. And I got a level with you. I laughed during the movie. I didn't expect to, I was charmed by the movie. It's clunky. It's very light. It's very silly, but it is the monsters. I couldn't deny it. And I had a fun time watching it. I had fun time watching it with the kids. Uh, again, Sherry Moon Zombie, she is just like Rob Zombie is trying to channel everything he can to kind of build this shrine to the monsters. In her, she's trying her best to do her Yvonne DiCarlo. I don't know that it's really working. Uh, it's weird to watch her sort of badly act bad acting, if that makes sense. But... Uh, and and the same thing with the the, the the take on Herman Munster here. You're never going to have anyone that's going to do it better than Fred Gwynn. Uh, he had a very laconic sort of draw, but he was still kind of playing this giant man baby Frankenstein. The shtick here is that Richard Brake thinks he's got the brain of this genius pianist or something, and instead, what he's real or this genius physicist, and what he's really got is the brain of a failed stand-up talk show comedian. I mean, of a stale. Excuse me a failed stand-up comedian. And so that sort of explains how Herman Munster ends up like Herman Munster. But there's, there's some good jokes here. There's a bit where uh, you see uh, a blind date that Lily is on with uh, Richard Brake is playing essentially Count Orlock from Nosferatu. And he's just showing her pictures of his rats during dinner. 
<laughs> to me, that's funny. So that's what you can expect here. Jorge Garcia shows up as a as a sort of hunchback uh, character named Floop. Uh, it's silly. There's a Sonny and Cher duet number <laughs> done with the sideburns and everything that consists of. Yes, it's I Got You, Babe. And if you were sitting here thinking, rolling your eyes and thinking, that sounds terrible, then don't, don't, don't bother with it. But I think against all odds, Zombie didn't make a movie that made a shambles of the thing that he loved. He made a truly heartfelt tribute to the thing that he loved. And people who like the monsters, I think, will enjoy this movie. I'm much more happy that he did this. It takes, I think, some way more guts as being that kind of filmmaker to make the movie this way than it would have to make this hard R-rated thing that, that of the monsters. I don't think anybody really wanted that. Don't know if they wanted this. I didn't think I wanted this. I smiled. I laughed. If this was a Halloween special that came on and Zombie's name wasn't attached to it, I think people would be, you know, I think they would look at it and say, hey, that was that was, that was was decent. You know, this might be my most enthusiastic, hey, it was okay, review I've ever done. But you know what? Hey, it was okay. You know what? I, I've heard a lot of people that are on both sides of the fence to this, but I think that the people that are really hard either way would have liked it either way. You know, like somebody who didn't like Zombie going in isn't going to like this. Uh, somebody who is a big fan of Rob Zombie is going to be much more forgiving or enjoy this a lot more. My question is this. Is there any at all Rob Zombie darkness to this? Or is it all surfacey uh, sitcom kind of stuff? No, it's all... It's, it, it, yeah, you're not going to get the darkness of Zombie. But here's the thing. I think this is my issue with Zombies. I think he's pigeonholed himself in a very, very specific frame. And I think... If you hear the guy talk and you see what he can do with the way he's frame shots and his his intelligence and his level of understanding of film, he's boxed himself in in a way that there's no reason to say that this is this is a Rob Zombie movie, but that's what he's done. You know, that's kind of what he's done himself. Now, the theatricality, the goofiness, the problem with this is it just doesn't feel that much like a movie. It, it is a little sloppy in places because he's he's so intent on getting the feel of the monsters right. I'm going to be honest with you, uh, level with you, Bill. I'm not. I'm not a fan of the monsters the way that uh, I didn't grow up with it quite the same way. I, I watch the Adams Family more than I watch the monsters. Uh, I think the monsters is kind of goofy. It is one of those shows that you know it's a little cringy sometimes when you watch it. I have great affection for it, but you know, trying to make it more like the thing from the 19. 19- uh, 50s and 60s is maybe what the problem is you know to some degree you know so i think it feels a little clunky i don't i but i will say this the first couple shots of the film and i i just recently watched with the kids one of the i think the second elvira movie i didn't even know it came out saying so elvira's haunted hills because of course that's what it's called but the uh that movie was made to look like a a, a hammer horror film it's extremely low budget but when i saw it i was like wow you know it's kind of fun that they they went to that level of detail and made it look this way, and it's for this very specific audience. And I think that's what he's done here, but as you're watching it, the first few shots, even when Brake comes in and they're looking for the dead body, and it's actually up and walking around, it turns around, and it looks like a gross, rotting zombie, you know, uh, you're like, okay, so this is, you know, there are pieces here. I could send you screenshots that with, with Jorge Garcia with his weird messed up teeth and break look leering down on the coffin. He'd say, well, that's a shot out of a Rob Zombie movie, but put it into the context. It no longer feels that way. I'm, I'm up for it for people making as many different kinds of movies as they can make. Uh, and so to me, 
you're gonna you're, you're gonna see some stylistic things that definitely feel like zombie. He gets a lot of the same energy that he puts in those other films in here. Some kind of a psychedelic musical numbers. Uh, so it has that same energy, I think, that, that go into goes into a film like House of a Thousand Corpses. But someone who's a fan of a th- House of a Thousand Corpses, I think if you're a Rob Zombie fan, you might be a little disappointed by this, or you'll kind of go along and say, "Yeah, yeah, he did. He did what he set out to do, which is what he did." This is a this is a movie that if you're the person who loves all the cheesy Halloween specials, if you enjoyed all those like mid '90s Disney films like Under Wraps with the Mummy and things like that. This is probably I you know that it, it sounds terrible, but this is probably up your alley. This is this is a movie made for kids and families, and and, and for people that love that old show. But this isn't like the Adams Family, the Barry Sonnenfeld Adams Family movies, where they took that concept and built some pretty funny movies where these big actors kind of got to go wild and you know really ham it up in this kind of almost very smart satire. Uh, it's it's not as good as those movies. It's it's almost barely a movie, but it is the monsters, and I think it kind of works, particularly for the, the 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 Halloween. I tell you what, Netflix has Netflix uh, gave me something much more to my liking this year with this movie than last year's Hubie Halloween. I'll say that. I was that. just gonna say, which this would is, you prefer? Oh, this beats the crap out of that movie. I did not like <laughs> that movie. Yeah, this this is something I can see myself watching again with my kids, and maybe even next year. You know. Uh, being a sort of a Halloween tradition. It's as good as the Mad Monster Party. If people can get mad if they want. That's not a great one either, but it's part of my childhood growing up. And I'd watch this and the Mad Monster Party back to back. The only thing about the Hubie's Halloween I liked was the the old lady's t-shirts. Think about that statement. The only thing I liked <laughs> about this movie was the slogans on the t-shirt. <laughs> but oh. I agree. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that. All righty. So, you know, I, I think it's one of those movies people have to watch, decide for themselves, and go in it objectively. Yeah. All right? it's you, a know? Six. you know what? It's a, it, for me, it's a six, but it's, a, there's an, it's an affectionate six. Affectionate. <laughs> a, a six with a smile. A six with a smile. <laughs> All right. Now, so far, I think we reviewed four films in the last little bit that were kind of of the jovial, quirky, oddball, you know, yeah. later, later. I'm going to go to the other direction. Of course. <laughs> but this Welcome is, to the darkness. Welcome to the dark side, my son. Yeah. But this is one that you had recommended to me to watch. And oh, it's my fault. Yes. 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 <laughs> Let's everybody blame Nathan for the switch up in the tone. Uh, very much like, you know, like a, a Rob Zombie movie that switches up the tone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but this is one that goes to a topic that I, that you could bring up and you could even discuss this with, tray that you're going to get to later and this is the red queen kills seven times yes yeah yeah which is a movie that was actually recommended to me by by trey yeah so trey whetstone trey whetstone who i from what i understand you're going to be talking to shortly and giving a couple new movie reviews yeah yeah he's doing giallos over at uh screaming screaming for the which which, which reminds me tomorrow night i have to record something for him (laughs) (laughs) so this one was one i had never seen anybody who's listening to me for a while knows i have certain films that are my creature comforts i love hammer films i love universal monster films i love giallos i had not seen this one and it had been on my radar for a while. But it's one of those ones where, you know, like it's from 1972. It's not burning a hole in your pocket. 
it's going to always be there, but I just hadn't gotten to watching it. So I really wanted to watch this one. And Nathan had seen it uh, a week prior, you know, was talking high on it. So I thought I'd give it a check. So this is a 1972 hour 39. <clears throat> the IMDb description is two sisters inherit their family castle, which is said to be haunted by their homicidal ancestor, a dark haired woman in a red robe known as the red queen, who is said to have taken seven lives every hundred years. So this was directed by Emilio Miraglia. I hope I said that right. And among the films he did in the genre was The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave, which I still have yet to see. Uh, it's another one that's on my list, which I I just to. saw that too. Uh, around the same time I saw this one, I saw this one first. I saw that one afterwards. Um, I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, I think so too. I think it's probably bloody, sexy, mysterious, you know, it's typical Giallo. Uh, the main star in this one is Barbara Boucher. Uh, Barbara Boucher, who you would know from much later, like she, her acting career went and had a good span. Like she was in Gangs of New York, but then she was also in the original Casino Royale and she was in the original television Star Trek series. So yeah, she was kind right. of all over the map, you know, like one of those ones where no roles too small. I'll bring my best to the, to the stage. Uh, you have Hugo Pagliali, I believe his name is. Uh, obviously an Italian actor Sounds right. who never quite made it to the side of the pond, but was in Italian versions of Madame Bovary and Nero Wolf. All right. There was Marina Malfatti, who was in another one that I still need to see. Although I might have seen this. I'm not saying I haven't seen this. Uh, All the Colors of the Dark. I believe I've seen it. I probably have seen that one. And Seven Bloodstained Orchids, which I know I've seen somewhere, but uh, again, after a while, some of these giallos kind of run together. Uh, I guess the aficionados would call them gialli. And the other name in here that you would probably know is Miss Sybil Danning. And Sybil Danning is another one of those actresses that's been uh, around forever. And she's never, and let's just say she's never been shy. She was in, uh, talking about Rob Zombie, she was in Halloween 2007. She was in the masterful film. I know uh, that Nathan is a huge fan of Hercules. Which and one? With Hercules. <laughs> she, she was. Is I it think the Lou Ferrigno one? Yeah, the 1983. Oh, no. She was in that masterful. one. Masterful. But, but she was also in probably uh, fans of the horror genre would know her best as she was in Howling Two. Yeah, where, where she didn't leave a lot to the imagination. Let's just. Put well, it I, I rem- you know, aside about that is that she. You know, yes, there's a scene where she kind of strips down naked in that film. And I think she was very incensed about it being in there. And uh, there was sort of a, I, I don't know all the details. I don't remember them, I guess. And uh, essentially, there was a sort of conflict there between her and I guess the the filmmakers and the editors. And so, you know, she has this issue with it. And then he just decides that over the credits, he's just going to replay that scene. <laughs> so we see her sh- drip in succession like she just keeps happening over and over and over again it's just a subtle dig or not so subtle Uh, not a subtle not a subtle dig (laughs) so it opens with two young girls playing with a doll and evelyn is taking kitty's doll it's these two sisters evelyn and kitty and they have an uh, and uh evelyn has an unhealthy obsession with this doll okay and let's just say things get stabbed and (laughs) 
And there's a picture on the wall, a beautiful picture. Yeah. I'd love this picture on the wall. It would be a beauty. It's one of those, you know, six foot tall by six by three, you know, mural kind of deals of a woman in a red cape. And she's stabbing someone in the neck. And it's, you know, and everybody's it's got it. It's very family friendly. It's, it's, I was going to say, it's a family photo with a grandpa sitting there. And, and, he, and he's reluctantly, he's broken up this tiff over the doll. And he's reluctant to explain what the painting is, but... They're at an age where it's come to a head and he has to explain what it is. He explains that it's the painting of a woman getting stabbed that were <laughs> sisters and the black queen stabs the red queen over a man seven times. But the red queen comes back to life a year later, killing six innocent people with the seventh being the red queen. This continues every hundred years in the castle and is set to happen in 14 years. So you've got this elderly man, or not elderly at this point, he's probably in his late 60s or so, telling his grandkids about this family history that supposedly happens with this beautiful artwork. And then it cuts ahead 14 years. Okay. Grandpa is much older then. And he gets killed by a red-hooded female. And we see her running away. He's basically laying in bed, waiting for medication and this beautiful voluptuous woman in, in a red overcoat does him in. And so it opens up. And so immediately right away, you know that it, they're obviously replaying what was supposed to have happened 14 years later. Okay. It's stylishly shot. There's some nice shots of the town they're in, the castle. You very much... Oh, this in movie these, looks amazing. <laughs> some of these films you can tell were thrown together with 50 cents and there's a bit of blood. This one is not one of those. This, you know, there was a well thought out script. They had a location. They got actors of some repute and they played up to their assets in this one. Okay. Grandpa held his assets in his will. He dies that they were not to be revealed until the beginning of the year. So I don't know what exactly what point in the year that he dies, but the family has to wait. I think they said it's like six months until the reading of the rest of the will. And I think grandpa wanted to see how everything played out. That's why he does it. The viewer knows the basics of what's going to happen, but you want to see how you get there. You know, the, the myth of the red queen, you know, that she kills seven times you have a pretty good idea what's going to happen. You, it's almost like a slasher. You know people are, their bodies, there's a body count. You just want unique kills and you want to see a little bit of titillation, a little bit of mystery, a little bit of conniving, and you want to see a good finale. And that's what you get out of this. There's a series of various stabbings done by a redheaded woman. There's lots of red herrings in this. Characters that you're not sure if they're interested or not. There's uh, two or three different sets of motives. Even There's by a- the standards of other giallos, this one is crazy in terms of like, we're going to twist here and we're going to twist there and we're going to twist the other way. But like it, it, mo- Anybody who's watched these before knows that there's multiple characters. This has multiple upon multiple characters with each a legitimate storyline that could be it. Yeah, if you if most of these movies are twisty and turning and it's sort of zigzagging, this is like a, you know, when your chords get all taut, torn up in a snarl 
This yeah, is like you're, you're, you're trying to pull one cord and the other cord's hooked. And everybody's got that junk drawer where you've got yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Tupperware without lids, and you've got various remote controls and cords, and you know the fun of this movie eventually becomes just trying to parse your way through this minefield of of setups and potential uh, suspects, and as you said, red herrings, and it's that's part of the of the fun, the fun, the allure. You know you've got a good giallo when you have to think about it. And and this one, you, some of them you don't. This yeah, one, it's not to say this is intellectual, but you're right. You no. you have to pay attention and, yeah. and kind of follow yeah, Because the if you literally go up to go pee and come back, you've missed a character. <laughs> like and, it's, and it's, it's, it's right, they could have introduced and killed somebody in the time you were gone. Yeah. Uh, it's you know, it's I, I put it, it's fairly well written. There's good production value. There's catty women. There's lots of casual nudity and sexuality. Is there it, in this one? I thought there was a little less in, in this, in well, this particular Well, there's one. some. I mean, you know, I mean, there, you can't get away without any, you know. Are the kills over the, oh, are there kills over the will? Is it a former lover who wants money? Is it a company CEO? Is it a sibling rivalry? Does it have to do with infidelity? Does it have to do with family secrets? Is it something about mental health? All of those play into this. But the, one of the things I mentioned to Nathan right away when I watched maybe 20 minutes of it, the musical score is awesome. Oh, yeah. It's, it's fantastic. The, the music is by Bruno Nicolet. And Bruno Nicolet was a composer, and he worked on soundtracks and themes to movies. And well past the point where he died, I think he died in 73, 70, something of that nature. His music went all the way up until once upon a time in Hollywood was still being used. It may still be used. He was involved in Dawn of the Dead, uh, the original Django, and then the one years later, Django Unchained, his music was used. And the other main film you would have heard of him is Kill Bill Volume 2. He the Tarantino is, collaborator. Yes, a Tarantino, obviously a fan of his, of Mr. Nicolay's. He, he's brilliant in this, okay? So it's a really good one. There's lots of cattiness. And Sybil Danning leaves nothing to the imagination. Again, she's very comfortable in her own skin. And there's a cool kill in a metal fence. I'll just leave it at that. One of the most complex storyline giallos I've seen it has a unique ending. I give this a seven, five. I could talk myself into an eight, you know, honest. This is one of those ones on two and three more viewings. I could get into it even more. I, I really like this. I thank Nathan for letting me know. And it was on my list and this was my excuse to watch it. Do you have anything else to add there, Nathan? Do you have any idea how this movie got a PG in the United States? <laughs> PG. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Bill. It has to be wrong, but anyway. Well, um, no, because uh, we're going by 1972, right? 72, so it's either rated I mean, R or not. I think this. I mean, we've got some or or a would rape it, or, sequence in this film, Bill. Gonna, I'm just say or, but they have it as unrated. They so, do, but there's definitely I've I've seen in two separate spaces, and it's saying here that the designation was PG. But I just don't, you know, hmm. you said there's. There's topless women. There is a definitely there's a, uh, a a rape in the film. And I mean, you have you have kids who are killing. 
Yeah, you have that. Yes. I mean, there's all. I mean, the, they've kind of got the horror tropes before there were horror tropes. To an extent, yeah. So mm-hmm. here's the thing. I think that, uh, and and yeah, the way the film is shot, there is like there's a lot of this could almost have been done on television, and it's not as excessive as maybe some of the later giallo movies like some of the argento ones and oh, this, like this that. isn't stripped nude for your killer this isn't even the if you go see if you see night the night evelyn came out of the grave that one's filled with with sex and nudity to the point that you almost feel like it's soft core <laughs> like uh and the violence and, and everything is a little bit more uh emphasized there and the blood and you've got some of that stuff here but it i think this one is more about the style we said this several times tonight this one is uh, very much about the style and the atmosphere to the point that it almost has this like carnival sort of feel to it. This is all about like the sensory uh, experience of it, which I'm finding is really true of Giallo's. Uh, well, um, you know, uh, as as we've mentioned, due to you know the hiatus we had here with Fam Galaxy, I got you know my whole family got COVID last month, and uh, while I was down, I found myself like okay. When, it's funny because when I feel bad and I'm like at this fever and I'm feeling delirious, I'm like, let me watch delirious movies. <laughs> so, you know, it was lots of stuff like The Wicker Man started throwing on some of the giallos that I have, but I'd never seen. And then include some of Argento stuff. So I was watching stuff like the um, uh, we just talked about like Bird with the Crystal Plumage and Deep Red and movies like that uh, that are really kind of the hallmarks of the genre. And then I saw this one and uh, I don't think it's quite as good as some of those Argento movies. But stylistically, I think it's up there. I love the look of the Red Queen killer. I think this is one of the best looking killers in a Giallo movie. I don't know if you feel that way, but I thought everything that was done with the look was fantastic. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's top of the shelf in terms of uh, Giallo. The characters are fun. I think characters are interesting. The, the great setup, like even as you were talking about, the setup is great. Like because it has, it's got. It, it's funny because it's got that mythological feel that an Argento, that some of the Argento films have, right? Like when he gets into the, some of the 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 uh, the mothers trilogy stuff, you know, when you get into like Suspiria and uh, Inferno and things like that, where you have these supernatural forces. But here, there's a there's a supernatural mythology but we understand in like classic scooby-doo fashion that this may not be a supernatural story right but it's got that neat kind of backstory that involves okay you know that you've got the you've got the symbolism of the seven kills and and it's going to happen during this time frame and every so many years i love stuff like that and i think that they play the gothic nature of that sort of prophecy into this movie in a really interesting way but it also becomes clues because that whoever is doing this if it's not a supernatural killer then they know the story and they understand the mythology and you can use that maybe to figure out who's doing it so i loved all of that i think that it's not a very deep movie but it's very fun uh, for the type of movie that it is i think it's 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 saying we're going to make this kind of movie and making it just about as well as you can make it yeah because i mean this would have been just after say a movie like bay of blood i think bay of blood is 71 yeah, problems. And, and, and I like Bay of Blood, but it's, it's, I kind of like it, this better. It's I like Bay of Blood because it's basically a proto slasher. It guess. is a proto slasher. It's more original, I think for sure. Um, but but but, uh, but this but this is not dissimilar in terms of it sets up things before they became more commonplace in yeah. these type of films. So yeah, and it's on Tubi. Uh, it doesn't cost you a dime. 
And, I think uh, I like the style of this better than the style of Bay of Blood. I think yeah, I can say that may be, but uh, yeah, uh, this is a good one. So if you haven't seen it, trust us. Go check it. <laughs> trust us. Yeah, I think I think if you are a Giallo fan, you haven't seen it. And and again, shout out to Trey Weston. He's the one who uh, recommend. I'm I'm using him as my kind of like uh, soundboard because they is for as many good Giallos as are. There's some bad ones too. Oh, so. there's lots of bad ones. Yes. Yes. So right, what are you, what are you bringing up there, buddy? Okay. So I think I'm going to sort of wrap up my, my, uh, bit tonight with a movie that isn't actually out yet that, but will be out in a couple weeks. And I thought it'd be fun to sort of, uh, you know, uh, beat everyone to the punch, not everyone, but you know, uh, and talk about a movie that's an up and coming release. It's going to be coming to theaters. It's going to be a horror film coming out in October and I actually got to see this one back at Sundance so I thought it'd be a good time to bring it up and discuss it because it is a movie that I want to put it out there in your mind make you think about it and be aware of it when it comes out and be ready to sort of look for it and seek it out um, because I I think it's it's worthwhile and I saw several movies uh, Bill and I've talked about this back at Sundance in 20. 22 the beginning of the year now which wow we're almost at the end of the year now and it was um what was interesting is the last couple sundances they have had uh the option to watch most of the movies from your home so you can kind of do the uh the distance digital watch of the film and that's what i did with several movies one of those is the film that will be coming out very soon i think mid-october and it's uh the release date uh here i think is going to be October the 14th, thereabouts, some, somewhere. I'll, I'll, I'll get the right date and put it in there. But anyway, it's coming out about mid-October, and it is Piggy. It's a 2022 Spanish-French horror thriller. It's uh, written and directed by Carlotta Peretta. It was based on the short film, the same name. I'll put the link in the show notes to the short film. You can find it there and watch it. And the setup of the short film is essentially the same setup for this feature-length film, uh, both of those feature, um, uh, yeah. So the short film and the feature both star Laura Galen, who uh, plays the lead in both. And she's really good. Also in the film are Richard Holmes, Carmen Monke, Claudia Celeste, and, uh, a whole cast here. The set, the, here's the setup of the film. It's set in the Spanish countryside. Sarah, who's played by Galan, she's an overweight girl who's tormented by the girls in her village. It's just incessant, ridiculous bullying to the point. Uh, it's just so destructive. Uh, she she loves to go and swim in the local pool, but they take her clothes, which force her to sort of walk home in her underwear. She's already has serious body image issues, which they aren't helping. And as she's running home, guys are chasing her and catcalling her in a car. It's just a very humiliating and brutal uh behavior and it's just constant this girl really can't go anywhere without this going on and it doesn't help that in this small uh enclave of girls that one of the girls is someone that used to be her friend you know when they were younger and they weren't as aware of oh you don't belong and so now she's with this uh this you know click that are very cruel towards her and and she gets home and her family you know uh, they're sympathetic towards her but they they also don't quite get her, her father and her mother, and they, they want her to lose weight and they want her to be different than she is. And so this is not a great existence for this, this young woman. And the day that all this happens to her, uh, when she is headed back after losing her clothes and being tormented by the guys 
and she's just really in a completely demoralized place and she's heading home and there have been uh inklings around this village and 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 whispers and uh they've been hearing about police reports that there 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 are people disappearing in the countryside on her way home she sees the the same group of girls literally being abducted in a van by this guy who clearly is whoever's been making people disappear in this small village in the in the outskirts of this small village and she watches it happen there's not much to be fair there's not much that she can physically do she can't stop this guy he's loading them up into the truck they're in there he's driving away and she doesn't do anything she makes eye contact him he sees her she has the opportunity to scream or, or or run like she's going to contact somebody and she doesn't she lets it happen and more than that she also uh goes home and doesn't say anything she doesn't immediately go to the police she doesn't try to uh assist in any way it's not and and but the bulk of the film which is a little different than the short film is what and, and the strength of uh, galan as an actress is that we are we go with her on this journey to figure out what is really going on in Sarah's head and how is she really dealing with this and is this isn't a simple film where oh you got revenge you, you know you're going to get yours now uh, she has to deal very much with the decisions she makes and some of these decisions are as much born out of a question of well how does she feel about these people that she just let them be abducted and it as much as it is well I don't want to put myself in the spotlight. I don't want to be noticed. I never asked to be a part of any of this. And we watch her go through these contortions of what is the right thing and, and what do I do? And the movie, of course, doesn't stop there because this killer who's taking these, these young girls, we don't know what's happened to them. Uh, he comes back around and he starts to come back into orbit with Sarah and the plot starts to explore a dynamic between the two of them. And the possibility that the girls that have been kidnapped may still be alive, that maybe it's not too late for Sarah to do something about this. This is a very dark film. It's an intense film. It's a beautifully, wonderfully shot film. It is moments that are hard to watch. Some of the bullying moments are, are more hard to watch than some of the later, like most of these films, there's a little bit, I don't know if I call this one a slow burn because I think there's such intensity right up front with this performance and with the direction that uh, while it takes away, it takes a while to build to the full emphasis of the horror. I think that as a suspense thriller, it's always there. Uh, there's a grittiness when we get to the horror that I think really works. Uh, I mean, Sarah's whole life, there's been a certain ticking time bomb going down inside of her and we're still waiting to see which way that pressure is going to go. And I think that's what's so fascinating about the movie. Uh, such a well-rounded and constructed character put into a scenario that feels very real. I mean, there's moments when you feel like you can't catch your breath with what's going on here because some of this evil that's been visited, you know, uh, she you can turn a blind eye, but eventually it comes back around. And so this is a really strong film. I, Bill, you know me. Uh, yeah. Some of these so-called shock films or films that are you know, they're teased as being very brutal or very intense. They usually, sometimes I get bored with them because they're all about shock and awe and they're very little sometimes about a story or they'll, they'll build just a little bit of a story. And then what they'll do is throw in something that's supposed to surprise us or, or sort of disgust us. And that's supposed to be the meat of the movie. And that's not what Piggy is. This, there's some depth to this film. And there's some feeling to this movie. And because of that, those moments that get 
they get gritty and they get hard, they hit you just a little bit harder because of it. You you know, uh, there's some oomph behind this one. I really like it. I think uh, I think her performance is amazing. I, it's a very strong movie, in my opinion. And if you're someone who does like your horror thrillers, a little bit grittier, that likes something that's going to pack a little bit of a punch, I think this one really does. It's a very powerful film, in my opinion. And so this is coming out within the next couple of weeks? Yeah, yeah. Two theaters, yeah. I believe. I don't know how wide a release it will be getting, but um, yeah, it's on, it, it's on its way. Yeah, it, the setup sounds great, and the it, it sounds like the one where you're gonna have to go in with a certain mindset though, because it's not an uplifting film. No, so. but I mean, yeah, it's it, it it okay. So you're right, you're right about that. I will say something though about this that this is this isn't one of those submerge it in darkness and that's all there is because, and I think that's what's good about. Uh, what Peretta does here and what good filmmakers do down to Hitchcock down to everybody. You can take a dark story, but if you build it there, there is some humor that goes on with her family and the interactions. And she is such a human character and we get involved in the suspense of it. This isn't a grueling uh, downbeat movie that's leave it, leaves you in darkness for the entire thing. There are dark moments to it. Uh, it is overall a darker thriller, and we don't ever, the movie never shies away from the implications of what's happening here, but it isn't done in one note. Those are the movies I have a problem with when all we watch is human misery for two hours. I'm not, I don't want to see people get tortured or beaten for a couple hours. It's just not my thing. I want to see human stories where people get to struggle against their fates and maybe change their fates, or if not change their fates, uh, heroically meet their fates. And so there's a lot of that going on in this film. This is about a girl that's had a certain kind of abuse thrown at her entire life. She's finally at a crossroads where she gets to decide what to do with that. And the truth of it is that with all of us, when we go through things and, and the weight of those things, we don't always come out and make the, the decision that might be the one that from a distance we say, well, that's absolutely what you should do. There's a depth to this movie that doesn't exist in some of these other films that, you know, to me are slapdash, uh, exploitation films and then on to the next one yeah okay so that w- will be one that i have on my list and i'll make sure that i watch before we create any end of the year yeah this one's going to be on my list i'm pretty certain this is a this is a 8.5 for my first viewing which you saw so i'm, I'm going to go to the theater and see it again and uh, it could go up from there so beauty now i'm going to go to my my last major film that i'll go over is one that i hadn't actually planned on doing Uh, I had watched it. Nathan and I have discussed it at length and I I was just going to let it go because I figure it'll be one that you guys and girls pick up on, on your own, but I've seen quite a bit of it showing up on the internet lately. Uh, A lot of Facebook groups, a lot of movie chat discussions have brought this one up and I know Nathan is completely perplexed as to why. (laughs) I mean, I know why, but yeah, I'm a little perplexed. (laughs) Yeah. And it was one that, I mean, I don't want to give away my review right away, so I'll kind of just jump into it. It's a, a, a recent film. Well, n- recent in terms of when it was released. I know Nathan watched it back uh, earlier in the year at Sundance. Yeah, this is another Sundance movie. Another yeah. Sundance film. A 2022 Dutch slash Danish co-production, an hour 37's Speak No Evil. Uh, I'll go over the main players in it, but you won't have heard of them unless you're a real cinephile. Maybe Dave Becker has, I don't know. Peter Nielsen, maybe Peter Nielsen, perhaps. Yeah. Peter, if you're listening, Hey buddy, 
directed by Christian Taftrup. Stars Morten Burian, Sidsel C.M. Koch, Fedja Van Hute. I can pronounce that because I have some Dutch in me. And Karina Smolders. <laughs> You're just drawing it up from the depths. You just take a breath yeah. and it comes out. I, I'm thinking, how would my grandma, how would my Oma have said that? <laughs> okay. So, but it's uh, on Paramount Plus. So if you do subscribe to Paramount Plus, you can It's on Shudder it. right now, too. Oh, it's Shutter. on Shudder. Yep. Okay. Well, they called it a Paramount Plus film. So I just assumed it was on Paramount Plus. Okay. So it opens with couples and families at a resort on vacation. Uh, they're at like a family vacation setting in a state. Uh, two couples get along, both with young kids, one Danish, the other Dutch. They hit it off over dinner. They're chewing the fat. They're having excursions with each other. There's a slow atmosphere. It's a build. Uh, there's really dramatic music. Y- you're not quite sure where it's going. The characters are interesting enough. Uh, they both have y- uh, young kids. They're both look to be in their late thirties, you know, they're professionals up and coming. And then the Danish family gets invited to visit the Dutch couple. Okay. So they take the ferry over and there's ominous music playing. You know, something's happening. Uh, the Dutch couple lives in a remote countryside home out basically in the middle of nowhere that adds to the attraction. There's nothing around them. There's no big city. There's lots of place for the families to explore and the kids to play, etc. The couples get along well enough, but there is just something off about the hosts. You're not quite sure. You can't put your finger on it, but they're just not quite. They're a little bit left to center. So they eventually go out for dinner and they do some socializing and they argue about the Danish couple's vegetarianism. Things, little, little slivers start to emerge, little bothersome bits between the two of them especially by the Dutch couple towards the Danish couple. One of them is the vegetarianism of the Danish couple's wife. Uh, She kind of gets made fun of a little bit subtly. Uh, They go for dinner and there's provocative dancing. And even though this couple hosts them, they don't pay for dinner. So the uh, Danish couple has to pay for the Dutch couple's dinner, even though the Dutch couple's hosting. Uh, on the way home, the, the music is blaring in the car and the Danish couple asks them to turn it down. And the Dutch couple just is blaring in with their Dutch rock and roll. And they kind of just play it as they see fit. There's a starting a building attention. Okay. Uh, while the Danish wife is in the shower, the Dutch host just walks in, brushes his teeth and pees while she's in there. Like it, it's just inconsiderate things that they're just not even thinking of the other person while they're doing it. Okay, the fa- the Dutch couple is uh, sorry. The Danish couple is so ticked off. They get up in the middle of the night. Something happens involving a kid in a bed. I won't give that away, and they decide to leave. But they have to return. I won't say why, but they end up having to return. Okay, and then it ramps up. Okay, I'm purposely being a bit evasive because to give away certain plot points gives away some of the main thrust of the film. Suffice to say, it's a real slow build, and I'm not 100% sure that the payoff is worth it. Let's just say the couple that becomes the victim doesn't do enough to stop themselves from being a victim. Some of the situations they're put in are just flat out ridiculous, but 
there is an eeriness. There is a creepiness. There is a pretty decent production value. I just don't know that it has enough meat on the bone. It's going to be one of those films. Some people really like, if you like thrillers with tension that are a bit creepy, this might be your bag. And there are a lot of people floating around the internet now that really like the film. I am nowhere near as high as those people are. And I'll let Nathan get to his points in a moment. I initially gave it a six coming back to think of it. I give it a five to me. It's a five out of 10. Am I upset that I watched it? No. Will I be returning to it? Probably not. Unless on one of these podcasts, somebody has me watch it. Nathan, the floor is yours. Thanks. Um, yeah, uh, this, you say you're somebody who likes tension and things like that. Uh, and, and we're painting it like a suspense thriller, um, horror movie. And it, and it does ultimately arrive there. And Bill, you know me, I'm not a guy who's, I've got to have blood and kills and everything. And you know, if a movie, uh, has a slow bill, we've reviewed many movies like that tonight that gets finally gets the horror. That's great. Uh, but this is very much a movie that, like the ones I was just talking about when I reviewed Piggy, uh, that comparing the idea of having a movie that maybe isn't really doing all that much, but then it eventually arrives at a, you know, it, it wants to look like it's not pulling its punches. It's going to go a dark place and give you this sort of uh, shock to the system. Uh, I think it's sometimes very easy to make movies where, uh, there is this sort of overarching bleakness. But if you're going to do a film like that, there was a movie that came out last year. Didn't make my top 10, but I could see uh, I could see the appeal because I think it had the courage of its convictions. It was called uh, Coming, Home Alone, uh, Coming Home in the Dark. And that film uh, was a dark movie uh, with an intensity and an anger underneath of its surface. And I mean, it wasn't exactly my bag, but I could commend that movie for going on that journey in a way that felt kind of honest and shocking and it worked. This one doesn't work for me and it really doesn't work for me almost at all. Uh, I think a lot of the people that, and I, you know, I can't say why a person likes a movie or doesn't like a film. I think that maybe what people are responding to in this movie is where, where the film eventually ends up. It tries to chart this journey to a very specific place. That's kind of a nasty, wicked surprise. There's a dark satire at play for most of this film uh, which I was on board with. At, at the beginning, I was on board with this. I think the issue to me is it feels very lopsided as a movie. I think it starts as one kind of movie and it decides to be another, but not in an interesting way and not even in a way that is sort of so tonal whiplash that you either go with it or you don't. Like a film like Martyrs that is like very much one kind of movie and then becomes a completely other kind of movie and you just have to decide, am I on board for this or am I not? Uh you mentioned some things, Bill, that right up front make this much more of a socially, a social anxiety drama film, I think, for most of it. I think when the movie is hitting and when it works in those early chapters, when these two couples who don't really know each other, you know, there's no good reason for this other couple to go spend a weekend with these people that they barely know, other than that the husband feels sort of flattered by them, you know, that they like, oh, you know, uh, they their guard is down and we're going to go see these people, you know. And there are, we've talked about movies where people just stumble into scenarios that they should know better. There are warning signs all along the way. But what's initially interesting is what you mentioned. There's this dichotomy between are they being malicious or are 
are there these weird sort of like social customs that we don't quite understand are and but the what the film is trying seemingly trying to say is oh in your politeness can be your undoing that we sometimes are so polite that we 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 turn over the very control of our lives to to other people who sim who have the upper hand simply because they refuse to be polite they refuse to take any care uh, of what another person does and, but in this film there's the implication that maybe we didn't simply forget that you're not a vegetarian we chose not to do something and you didn't say anything about it it's like turning the water up on the crab boil you know eventually you're going to be boiled and we'll see how far you can go the problem i have here is that the movie eventually crosses a line because it refuses i believe to cast these characters in a realistic light i don't at about once this movie kind of does a flip uh and it doesn't it's not so much a flip but it makes a turn where there's an L, there's something that happens that absolutely would be the last straw. No questions asked. This is the end. We're out of here. And the characters do go, but then they find their way back under the stupidest reasoning I could possibly think of. I mean, you, if you're one of those people that gets mad about, no, don't go out the back door, go out the front door in a slasher film, this movie will have you pulling your hair out. That is absolutely this director's intent. But I think this director is making one of those provocations. It's not like a Michael Haneke movie, although I think Haneke's films are better done than this. Uh, where he wants you to constantly sort of yell, why, you know, like, why are you being this polite? But, th but that doesn't work, I think, because I didn't buy, I didn't believe in this plight. I didn't believe in this scenario. I didn't believe that these people that are doing this, uh, the eventual shoe and the way it flips, the whole scenario feels like it should be surreal, but it doesn't feel, it doesn't have the surrealism of say a movie like dog tooth or something like that. Like one of those films. Uh, although it seems like they're trying to make a similar satirical uh, statement or a very weird movie. A few years back, I saw called Borgman that did something different where you watch these sort of usurper into a, an environment continuing to do things that tear the family apart. And the family still sort of tries to hold itself together by pretending like there's nothing wrong. Uh, I hated this movie <laughs> and it's not, it's not just because it eventually arrives at a place I find, you know, it, it, it does try to be dark and provocative because honestly, I wasn't that shocked. I was actually more bored by the film because at some point I didn't think that this had the courage of its convictions. I think this director is trying to make a statement, but then, uh, wants the cake and eat it too. And then at a certain point, I'm just not interested in these characters because they don't feel believable. They feel very much written uh, down to the things they say and the way they're presented. They're ciphers. And the minute they're ciphers in a film like this, so it's not schlock. This is not a, a, a quickie horror picture. This is a movie that's trying to say something. It's got more in common with a movie like Force Majeure, I think, in its early going, where it's trying to say something about social structures and then eventually falls flat on its face, I believe, because it wants to provoke us and shock us but it doesn't do anything to earn those shocks. And I wasn't particularly shocked and I wasn't particularly sympathetic. Uh, my frustrations had gotten the better of me long before we get there. Uh, there's the movie is very well mounted as you say, Bill, but uh, there there's a, there's something missing here that's fundamental. And I think it's that he, that, that this is the easy version of the story. Honestly, there neat. We see one style of interaction we don't see a realistic way that that first couple responds to the provocations. We don't see them respond in a way that feels like a thing a real human being would do. Maybe there are people that would do this. I just don't believe it 
because I didn't believe it, the movie fell flat for me. And after that, it began to sort of irritate me because it was doing all these things that felt frivolous. And so when the later scenes happen, I'm not invested. I'm just wondering, why are you showing me this? Why would I want to see this? Uh, I wanted to leave 30 minutes ago when they were in the car. Why are we not gone from this? These people and this setting have become tedious to me. So, so what are you giving this, Nathan? Oh, uh, Bill, man, it's a, it's a three. You can say it, no, it's a three. No. You know what? The director is trying to make a point about our, you, 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 what's his point here? That we're too polite and we allow too many provocations towards us. And, and for the sake of politeness and the sake of not making a scene uh, and, and just giving them the benefit of the doubt, we'll just smile and, 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 and go on. Well, you know what? I should have turned this movie off 30 minutes in. There you go. Your movie succeeded. There you go. So we're just going to finish up here. I have two quick reviews to give because I didn't take any notes for them. I didn't think I was going to review them, but I I feel compelled to the listener to let them know. One of them, uh, they're both 2022s. Uh, one of them is when I found flipping around uh, Netflix. I was looking for something to watch, laying on the couch, didn't want to take any notes, just wanted to zone out and get out of the world. And I watched, they have it down as documentary, but I would call it music as opposed to documentary as a bit of both. And when we have an episode coming out later this week, uh, you'll know the affection I have for them. This is called travel and band Creedence Clearwater revival at the Royal Albert hall. Yes. Very and, nice. And, and I'm not going to get into a lot of it because if you're a music fan, there's stuff, you know, if you're not familiar with them, you'll learn a bit, but essentially it's the first completed archival footage of them who played a show, I believe it's 1970, 1972, I, I, as I said, I didn't take notes, at the Royal Albert Hall in England, a very famous, a very well-known, a very renowned uh, location that's known more for doing classical and operatic than it is rock and roll. So some of the bands that have uh, been there include Cream. Cream did their very last performance there. And so it's one of those places where the acoustics are going to be great and it's, it's circular. So you can sit around the outside and always get a good view down on the band. You get the first 20, 25 minutes of their history. And there's some really good little bits of where they, their um, first name, I think that they were recorded under was the, the Gollywogs. I believe that's what uh, it was. I think that's right. Yeah. They were trying to tune in on the British invasion and they thought it sounded British. Well, the people at the fantasy records did. And so they finally get to the point and there's inter band dynamics of, of John Fogarty being the lead singer and how much power he has. And Tom Fogarty, his brother and the, the, not the drummer, the other guitarist. And you got the other two drummer, uh, the drummer and the other player in there. And you, you get, the, their ascension. You basically get their origin story. And at the point where the concert is, is where they're kind of at their zenith. They're at the top of the world. They've just released their Pendulum album. I think at one point they released three albums in 1970. Like, can you imagine a band releasing three albums in one year? Unless it's just slapdash live footage. And this was all brand new stuff. So they get to the concert and it, it's fantastic. And I'm not saying that as merely as a fan. That era of them, you've got two basic concerts that there is available. That they both released in the last year or so. You've got the Woodstock performance from 69, and then you've got the Royal Albert Hall performance. 
John Fogarty is one of the most underrated guitarists. You don't realize until you see him live. They do about a 45, 50 minute set, or at least that's what they put out. The last song they do, Keep on Chuglin, is about a 10 minute version. It's absolutely fantastic. I, I can't recommend this enough. This is easy in 8.5. If you're That's even awesome. a ca- if you're even a casual music fan, you're gonna want to watch this. Nathan, I think you're gonna really love it. It's something you can throw on while you're doing work, and you'll end up watching the screen more than you are your uh, laptop. It's a great, and it's on Netflix. If you got it, you don't got to pay any extra. I'd love to turn this one on and watch with the uh, the family. We just did. Um, uh, no, no, sorry, and watch it. But we, I've got um, the uh, the Beatles' Hard Day's Night. Uh, 4k sitting around here waiting to watch i feel like it would be a great like to watch that and then do the uh, do this one not too long after and it's narrated by jeff bridges yes sold 100 percent sold that's a kind of <laughs> so, perfect i feel that's a perfect sort of um pairing of 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 narrator and band there i mean you almost think it's the dude talking about one of his heroes it's exactly what i thought <laughs> So, yeah, I, I can't recommend this high this enough. This is Netflix? Even, this is Netflix. Oh, man, that jumped to the top of my thing. Yeah, my, yeah, we'd love to turn on Credence. And I was I was so happy my, when my kids started singing, like, um, Who Stopped the, the Rain the other day. And I was, I was going to say, if you get him singing Bad Moon Rising, either he's watched uh, American Werewolf in London or he's put on his CCR. CCR, oh, album. yeah, yeah. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about, because I know we've been going for quite a while, is again, we always talk about things we can watch with our partners on the couch. And and Jen and I, basically, it's either cooking or something that's on the History Channel because it appeals to both of us. And something we've watched for years and years and years, we don't always watch it exactly when it comes out, but we wait till we can binge watch it, is the TV show Alone. Uh, and it's on the History Channel in Canada. I'm sure there's, I, I can't recall what channel it is in the US, but I know it's available. It's on Prime Video. And what happens is uh, individuals get put into the wilderness on their own with bare bones supplies, and you basically see who can last the longest. And in, I think they're in epi- uh, episodes, I'm on episode five or six. I think it's season eight, where they've had people from previous seasons who haven't won. They have one more shot at it. And I think they have them this time in in labrador which is in newfoundland come november december where it can hit minus 35 minus 40 and you've got polar bears you've got all kinds of uh, other animals around you have to scrape together you're beside the ocean Uh, you have to try to fish or hunt or capture something you've got to build your shelter they give you minimal uh, they give you a tarp and they give you i think an axe and they give you, I think, 10 items, and then it's go. And the point of this season is to see who can last 50 days. And normally, they last a bit longer, but this time they're, they're throwing them in right when winter's beginning. So you're getting no grace period. So there's three women, three men. It's not exactly a battle of the sexes because they don't know each other. They're nowhere near each other, or at least so it would seem. But you just, it's, it's one of those reality dramas that I can get behind because 
you know, there's no drama about who likes who, who's trying to sleep with who, who's getting kicked out of the house, who's getting kicked off the island. You make or break it yourself. And it's your physical strength, it's your mental strength, and it's your ability to gather and hunt to see who survives. And that's what we always like. And it's one of those ones where you can walk away for a week or two, come back, and you're right back into it. You don't have to try to remember a plot point. You know what it is. So I'm halfway through season eight. I know by probably by the end of the next two weeks, we'll have watched the end of it. I don't know if you've ever seen it, Nathan, but it's something that we kind of enjoy. You know, um, I've seen the earlier seasons of it. Like I remember when it first came, it's been on for a long time now. Yeah. And it was uh, man, we've been talking various points tonight about, you know, uh, things that, uh, w- whether something is tense or anxious. I mean, this is, this is not great for my anxiety. <laughs> Like some of these are like, there were some of the early seasons. You get this feeling of like, you know, how are these people going to continue to keep on keeping on? And what happens when they can't, you know, I think in the early seasons, there was a big question mark. It's like, what's the, how are you going to get them up out of here? If, if things go south. Yeah, and the thing you don't realize, yes, you have to be able to get food. There are people that have had to leave because one woman in 22 days lost 21 pounds. Yeah, the, yes, some of that early stuff was like that, where it's like, you is, have dysentery. What is going on? <laughs> yeah, like there is one season I remember watching a guy that didn't have a bowel movement for like a week. Yeah, yeah, and, and you really you know, get I mean, concerned for them. You get concerned, or if you, one of the basic tools that you're given is a flint. Well, one guy lost his flint, and without the flint, you don't have, you know, so there's all kinds of things like that. But the bigger challenge I find is the mental strain that's it you you watch it that the particularly early seasons there was a sensibility of them just unraveling you know it was like oh my god like like if you're not comfortable in your own skin and you're on your own in rural native alberta or somewhere in labrador or alaska or you're up in the yukon and you're on your own for 45 days what's your head yeah this one's a little less sensationalized too because around the same time they had one that came on it's called naked and afraid where they would jump people out there naked and of course yeah that's appealing for a little bit but the thing is that this uh, i think this works better yeah and and you don't have that group dynamic oh is is so and so gonna sleep with yeah who cares who's getting off the island this week is somebody overcoming cancer or is somebody trying to get together with their father their lost relationship you don't have any of that crap yeah it's just you the land can you survive so i i highly recommend it i mean if you're a history person if you're an outdoors person if you just like the family drama not the family drama the individual drama if you like outdoor locations you know, it's, each episode's maybe 45 minutes. You can take your time and watch it or spend a day binge watching it. I, I enjoy it. It sounds good. Yeah. And so I think, Nathan, for this portion, until you get to Trey, I think we've pretty much covered a lot of 2022 films that might get people. Yeah, this watch. is a big, uh, big bag of movies and, and, and shows that we've done. So, okay. And for our last segment of the evening, uh, Bill, Bill has departed, <laughs> and I'm going to bring in our uh, our next uh, our co-host for the episode. And uh, this is Trey Whetstone from Screaming Through the Ages uh, and from Phantom Video. It has its second episode out right now. Trey, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Nathan. I'm ready to talk about some really solid horror that's been hitting here lately. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've been trying to record this little piece for about a week or so, and every time... 
we, you know, something pops up and we can't, a new movie comes out and we're, we're at a point when there are like three or four horror movies doing relatively decently at the, at the box office. And we've talked about a lot of them already between Bill and I, uh, and we're about to talk about a few more. So I'm going to turn it over to you to talk about one. It's, it's, it's been out probably a few weeks now. And I uh, I am impressed that it's still in theaters. That's a good thing. And it had a pretty, you know, it had a modest but solid opening. So I'm going to turn it over to you for your review of Barbarian. Yeah, and I feel like there, I feel like we had that drought there for just a minute. But I feel like horror has been coming pretty fast and furious. And Barbarian, for me, came out of nowhere. Um, I don't know about how it came for you, but uh, this was directed by Zach Kreger, and I'll just read a quick synopsis here. Um, in town for a job interview, a young woman arrives at her Airbnb late at night, only to find that it has been mistakenly double booked. Now, I'm just going to stop right there. I, I, don't, I thought about reading a synopsis, Nathan, but I think you'd agree you probably want to go in as blind as possible, right? That's honestly, that's pretty good because I didn't even really know who was in this film. No. I didn't know anything about it. And I think the way that this worked is it was a Wednesday or Thursday evening and a friend of ours, Amanda Lee, like popped up and said something to me about it or someone else and someone else had did too. It was like, oh, Barbarian. And I knew that it was coming out. I knew very little about it. And then I was like, okay, so why not go check it out? I've got the AMC pass a lot of times ago on a Thursday night and had seen the movie and was like, holy crap. And then I told you, yeah, <laughs> so I was like, Hey, this, you should go watch this before everybody talks about it. This came out of nowhere because I wasn't expecting this at all. I had my movie set out for the year that I wanted to go to the theater and see. And yeah. as it always happens, one or two will pop up, uh, especially with one we were talking about later that I had no idea was going to be bad or good or whatever. But yeah, you're right. It was just like a slow buzz that happened with this thing. And then suddenly everyone's seen it in our, uh, communities and stuff. And this has um, some recognizable faces. It's got Bill Skarsgård in it. It's got Justin Long and Richard Brake. But I think the best thing to do is to go in completely blind. You get this setup of, like it said, woman's arriving late at night. You don't know really what's going on with her life. Seems like she's maybe having some issues. But wow, once you get into this, it takes a little bit. You think it's one kind of movie and then it kind of morphs a little bit. And um, I don't really want to talk anymore about the plot stuff. But wow, is this just like a punch in the gut of a movie? It's pretty it's not in an extreme horror way, but just where it goes and the surprises it has in store for you. And I don't think, you know, it's kind of unrelenting in that it kind of changes all over the place. It's not really um, complacent or anything like that, I want to say. But wow, this one really surprised me. And sorry, I'm trying to step way around this because this is enjoyed so much better when you go in knowing as little as possible. Um, Nathan, save me here. What do you what do you <laughs> got on Barbarian? OK, so I think the best way to talk about this again, I think, is structurally not revealing it structurally, but to say, I think what we're looking for here is it's kind of a bit of a roller coaster. And mm-hmm. in some ways, it's almost better not to even know how much you're getting into i would say that the the way this begins we reviewed on the show tonight a movie called uh house of darkness which is a neil labute movie that also has justin long and that one sort of marches inexorably forward in a way that's very uh it's all it's enjoyable but it kind of have you seen that one yet Trey? No, I haven't had a chance to see that. I keep forgetting about it. Again. <laughs> and so it's headed in this direction and you're with it. And then part of the, the, the joy of that one is watching this thing kind of unfurl just as you expect it to. And that's not what happens with Barbarian. And it has, I think, 
that the way this movie was released and the way that it's been um, enjoyed and 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 received, I think is really the way that a horror movie should be released. And I think it's what was happening maybe more in the 80s and even in the 90s and certainly back in the day of the drive-in where you get to kind of discover this movie and find out what it is together in a theater, not on a... Uh, not on the internet somewhere where people have three months to complain about the casting decisions or whatever, you know, uh, that this movie flies kind of almost completely under the radar. Uh, I think the best way to describe it is when the movie was over and then I went back and I saw it a second time uh, with a friend. And I think the way we described it was that this movie, um, it's not necessarily that the plot at the end of the day, is completely breathtakingly fresh because I think it's not. But the way the movie decides to present it to you feels very refreshing mm-hmm. and feels very um, in the moment. The movie is constantly engaging you. Like this is an event in a sense because, uh, regardless of how much you do or don't think about it when it's over, the movie is right there with you. The way that if you go to a fun, a good haunted house. And I'm not saying this is a movie. It's just a bunch of jump scares strung together. It's not really it at all, but no. um, there's this sense of like, uh, again, like a good carnival ride or, 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 a, or a fun house. There's a sense of, of an entertainer kind of uh, playing with you through the whole thing. And in a way that is testing your expectations and having you look over here, there's a sleight of hand element to it. I, and, and yet there are things going on in this movie that, uh, that harken back, like you know, that some of the concepts that are going on, even on the out, the the outskirts of the film, when you have this idea about the Airbnb and like you know, and an Airbnb. I, I think it's the one thing we can say: it's an Airbnb in Detroit. So yeah, let the yeah. and the movie sort of milks that to a point where I'm like, hey, this looks like it happens right around the block from uh, you know, what was a um, don't breathe, don't breathe. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. So I think all of these elements, though come together and make a very entertaining movie. Uh, Justin Long, again, is doing that sort of... He's on that that that, uh, that track here where he can kind of play... Um, it's hard to tell if he's playing against type or he, he, he he's playing a kind of character you expect him to play, but then he, there's some nuances to it. But this movie was completely um, a surprise to me, and I think it's best to be left that way. Um, Bill Skarsgård, everybody in the film does a great job. And yeah. uh, man, Richard Brake has been popping up all over the place. Uh, he has. I saw him in yeah. something else. I don't know what it was, but I just saw mm. that he was going to be in something else. So. I physically saw him just yesterday. I was standing about <laughs> five feet away from him. He looked like he was having a great time holding court at the at the Monster Mania here in Hunt Valley. But I mean, he's in the Monsters. He was really fun in the Mon- Monsters. And it's kind of channeling his inner um, Vincent Price in that movie here. Um, he's got a pretty pivotal, a small but pivotal role. And... Uh, that's like I say. That's all I want to say about the movie. Except that if you get the opportunity to see it in the theater, I definitely think you should. Uh, and if you can't see it in the theater, when you get the opportunity to watch it, I think it would. It's almost best enjoyed if you can get a bunch of people together who all haven't seen it. <laughs> yes, because uh, I know for us, like there was a certain energy in the movie, and I think the problem is like you know the the first you know you go in and it's like oh there's two other people in the theater and then the the, the second time I went to see it there were a few more people there and there's a there's a, a vibe and an energy to it that really works it's a good audience movie it'll be a great like drive-in movie um but yeah i really i think this movie is going to end up on my uh end of the year list for horror it's a very strong uh possibility of that 
Yeah, same here. And yeah, I can only imagine the reactions if you're with a bunch of friends who haven't seen this or a bunch of horror fans that you've gathered together who haven't seen this. I think it's going to be pretty insane if you're all watching it together. So that'd be a great way to watch it. Um, yeah, like you said, if you can't see it in a dark room full of strangers and see how they react, then because uh, there were some very vocal people in my movie theater. So um, but yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly, Nathan. This is going to end up most likely unless we get some like really earth shaking stuff coming out in the last quarter. This is probably going to end up somewhere in my top 10. Yeah. Um so, yeah, I would and I would give this thing probably around I think I'd give it a nine. I really was surprised by this. I think that has a lot to it to do with it is not having any expectations going in and how much I liked it. So uh, and absolutely, I'm going to buy this thing. So I think that would be my recommendation for Barbarian. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm We're always like in that point five range apart. I'm using a yeah. little lower. So I'm at eight point five in this. The last thing, the last anything I want to say about the movie is I think this film does is maybe the perfect mix of, uh, you know, we go back and forth about what's comedy horror, what's horror comedy. I don't mm-hmm. know that those two words flipping them back and forth mean anything. To me, there are horror movies that have comedy in them, and then there are comedy films that maybe use horror tropes. I like all those movies. Yeah. But for someone who's kind of it, iffy about it, I think this is a great example of a film being a horror movie, uh, using the comedy where it shows up, and some of those dark, dark comedy, using it to amplify the scares. And... And vice versa, that the tension opens up some room for some humor. I think that each one in this particular case, there's nothing that feels clunky. It feels like each one sort of like energizes the other. I don't know that I call Barbarian a horror comedy, but I think it has some very pronounced moments of comedy at just the right place. Yeah, I wouldn't go in with the expectation if you don't like horror comedies that this is a horror comedy. No, but like Nathan's saying, there's just a couple of. I mean, comedy is about timing, right? And there's a couple of yeah. very well timed moments. But there's a there's a there's a couple broad laughs in this. Yeah, that I think. Yeah. Well, you have to with a movie yeah. this yeah. uncomfortable, right? Yes, I'd I'd agree. So, big recommendations for that. Again, I think you'll see it at the end of the year when we do our end of the year lists. Uh, anyway, so the next film we want to talk about is Pearl, which. Didn't didn't hit the box office as hard, really at all as uh, as Barbarian. Although Barbarian again was what like about ten million. Pearl was a bit less than that, I think. And um, but I think still, as far as I know, it's still kind of you know lingering in theaters. And I think this is one that's probably destined to find maybe more of a home on streaming. The big thing about this, and the kind of surprising thing that this movie kind of even exists at all, is that it's a prequel to a movie that we only got and talked about in the spring, right? Like yes. in, the, yep. in March or April of, of uh, 2022. And at the end of the, which was X, Ty West X, which uh, I think both of us, we really liked it. I think that's another one that's probably destined to be in the top 10 list. Yeah, I think so at this point. I think it was a really good example. Um, I didn't even call it a slasher, but it definitely harkened back to slashers and used a lot of the material that you would see in a slasher film. Very had a definitely, I believe we both, we reviewed it on the show together and we uh, discussed how it had a very uh, sort of Texas Chainsaw Massacre vibe. And then when that film ends, there is suddenly a 
trailer that comes out of nowhere, a weird movie that looks like a, like the trailer is designed to look like a Technicolor throwback to the thirties, uh, telling the story. Uh, it's a prequel story about this young woman, Pearl, who's living in, uh, the days of world war one in 1918 on a farm in Texas and her husband's gone off to war. And this, the trailer just kind of blew me away. I didn't even know that it was going to be there. And I don't want to say too much that would spoil X, but you know, it wasn't really until the trailer popped up. I was I was still reeling from the fact that that this one actress had played another character in X that I had been aware <laughs> of. So I was still putting that film together in my head when the trailer for this one pops up, and it's like this is something completely different. This looked like it could very well be like a you know an MGM musical or something, mm-hmm. uh, in like a like a Oklahoma sort of vibe or something. And you, you but meanwhile, horrible things are happening to people in this trailer, and there's a lake with a crocodile in. X and guess what? That lake and the crocodiles <laughs> seem to factor into Pearl too. Again, the basic plot here: you've got Amia Goth who was in X playing a different character, and you know I I'll leave you to discover who who or what else she plays in that movie. But uh, here she is, Pearl. It's on that same homestead. She's she's um, feeding the animals and singing when we first meet her, and she has this dream of wanting to be a a big star in show business and her parents are German immigrants. Her father has uh, assumingly had a stroke. He's sort of infirmed and he can't really uh, talk. And her mother, who's, who's a bit domineering and you kind of, as the movie on spools, you sort of understand maybe why that is, but she's very severe. She's very severe with Pearl. Pearl just feels basically stuck. And, a lot of the early bits of the movie are watching her after she can get her chores and kind of, kind of, uh, you know, scurry off of the uh, the farm. She'll go to the movies and she meets the projectionist there, who she kind of strikes up a relationship with. But we we see that there's this driving desire and desperation to get off of this farm. And I I wasn't even certain at first, and then I realized that okay, Bill Pearl is married, but her husband has been you know, very shortly afterwards has been kind of shuffled off to the war. So she's been left here and she does have a friendship with his, with her sister-in-law. There's really not a lot going on <laughs> for Pearl. And we see that her mental health uh, may not be what it should be pretty early on in a scene where she comes across a scarecrow in a field. And from there we see sort of, again, this is a movie that I think is better when you just experience it, but what we see is a collision course headed with the people in Pearl's orbit, her desires for show business that that do feel a little delusional, and then also this creeping notice that something is maybe not, and she seems to notice as well, something might not be quite right with her. And so Ty West makes a completely different movie here than he did with the other one. This is definitely more of a weird sort of, a deranged character piece that uses these bright, shiny cinematography with the blue, beautiful, clear skies uh, to tell a story about a person who is coming undone, who's becoming unraveled. And we've seen movies like that over the years. Uh, even uh, movies in the same time frame as when Ty West was making his earlier stuff like House of the Devil and, you know, The Roost. Back in those days, he had Lucky McKee doing things like May, which there are probably comparisons to that to this movie, except for the fact that this movie has that setting, that period setting, which makes it 
uh, I think makes it unique. Big thing here is Mia Goth. She was in X. She was great in X, but she was part of an ensemble cast that were doing their specific thing in that kind mm-hmm. of a movie. And this is very different because this is, there are other characters here, but she is clearly the centerpiece. She is carrying this entire film. The movie's been designed that way. It probably makes the movie a little bit cheaper. It's, she's the one who's on screen for most of the time. It does eventually get pretty bloody, pr- pretty gory, uh, pretty weird. And she carries the whole thing throughout. There is a big monologue at one point that really could have just derailed the whole thing, but she handles it so well. There's a final shot in the movie that could have would have only worked had she been fully committed to doing it. And so it's kind of her show all the way. And she makes the movie a lot of fun to watch. Uh, it's kind of neat seeing Ty West because this movie is very different than anything he's done, I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because, again, it isn't really a horror film for most of its runtime. It does ultimately become a horror film. You see you see it coalescing that direction. Uh, now, that being said, I don't think I quite love this as a lot of, uh, as many as maybe some of the other people. Excuse me, let me restate that. I don't think I love this quite as much as I'm seeing online or maybe on Letterboxd in terms of how people really... Uh, felt about this. I don't know that it coalesced into, and I'm I'm a person who doesn't need the movie to be horror, but I'm not sure that it, it, it became the, the film it was aiming for in a way that felt completely organic. It spends a lot of time sort of uh, circling the barn, if you will, <laughs> and building this character, and I enjoy that, but there's, a, there's sort of a middle section to it where you're sort of waiting for it to go somewhere and sort of escalate, and a lot of the escalation happens in just about the, just about the way we would expect and I think if, if Goth wasn't as committed and focused on this role and giving this character such deep intensity, uh, the fact that she does that kind of saves the movie and makes it and kind of makes it sail along and turns into a movie that I think is quite quite good and worth recommending. But as an overall piece, I think it could have been stronger. And but I again for a movie that seemingly, I don't know if it was, but seems like an afterthought to X. It's it's quite worthwhile, uh, and I did enjoy it. I don't think that you really need to see either one to appreciate the other. I do think X is a stronger film here, but Pearl's a little bit more than just you know what might have ended up as a DVD extra or something. You know, I think that uh, it gives Goth a centerpiece that, realistically, it, you know, in the right climate. And I understand that the Academy Awards are very, uh, you know, they don't always give notices to actresses or actors in horror films. I think that she could get an uh, award nomination if the right people were paying attention. I don't think that's going to happen because of of the nature of Pearl in general. You know, it almost feels kind of um, like a like a one off, like it feels a little flimsy. But I think that she does that kind of work. Yeah, and I mean, you say there's it's not horror throughout, but her. Um social interactions and her just nature is kind of horrific or horrifying to me. But um, I want to dive into a couple things non-related to the actual movie before we get in this. And we were talking about box office and yeah, I think barbarian. And I just know this because I'd put together a listing today. Barbarians like 30 million or something domestically pearls, like seven something and total, right? Yeah. It's and it's lagging behind X and I could understand that because X is much more marketed as a straight ahead horror movie. This is kind of something weirder that if you like X, you might check it out, but some other people might pass. Um, And then you mentioned another thing, which was the MGM musical. And it's just so different from Ty West. It's so bright and colorful. Like you were saying, it's just, and I mean, we've got we've got another one coming. We've got Maxine with three X's, which is um, going to be a sequel. And glean, like going back to the old MGM days, I mean, there's a chance 
that within a 12-month period, we get three Ty West films. And I don't know if he's been working on this constantly, but um, he's probably shot these back-to-back or very closely, if not so. And that's very exciting, something that we would never thought we'd see again. But yeah, Pearl is so unsettling, and I'm going to use that word again on another movie later tonight, but I think unsettling is the word just in the way that she interacts. And this is so bombastic and over-the-top in places, yet it brings you back to that grounded feeling. And I will echo what you said about Goth, just did an incredible job in this, and I think she's mainly the one driving this movie. I mean, she is the one with the personality here. And I think there's a lot of parallels between X. I think that projectionist you mentioned has a lot in common with someone from X. And I think that obviously Pearl has a lot in common with someone from X. So I think it's really cool how these movies were melded together and you do get a backstory of a character from X. But yeah, at the end of the day, I'm kind of like you. I really liked this movie, but it was missing something that X had that this just didn't. And I didn't know how you were going to feel with some of the more off-the-wall stuff. I thought you might love some of this absurdist stuff and going on like that. But because this was, I think, the rare instance when I saw a movie before you. But <laughs> yeah. So I did love that absurdist stuff. But actually, for me, and you probably won't be surprised, I actually thought that could have been weirder. Or not weirder, <laughs> but more laced throughout the entire film. Because I think that had it been amplified because let's the thing about these these pieces is in the trailer it looks like they're simply a stylistic choice but i really think that the fabric of the world around her and why it looks this way is it is representing her ebbing and flowing mental state and so when there are ripples and vibrations through this that look to us like what is going on those are ripples and vibrations in her mental stability Mm -hmm. or her mental health and so if those vibrations were happening more pronounced and maybe earlier and were more woven into the film i think that you and were or therefore maybe a little bit stranger i think that the movie would then have that kick that it kind of needs because it it vacillates between kind of character study where sometimes not a lot is necessarily going on except in her head, like you said, and, and watching how she responds to the people around her, which is uncomfortable. And then sometimes mm-hmm. also scary. Yeah. Uh, and then it's, but to me, those pieces could have been a little bit more pronounced. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I, I just thought of something and you had mentioned it earlier that that scarecrow scene is very uncomfortable, um, <laughs> but there's so many uncomfortable moments in this film. And, um, yeah, yeah, no, that's a that's a good that's a good perspective. I don't know if I would have liked it if it went more over the top because I think we're sometimes opposite on those. Sometimes yeah. I get into that stuff, sometimes I don't. But um, as it stands, I think it's a pretty solid horror movie. I didn't reach the heights of X, but I think it's still really good. Yeah, this one's a little over for me. This is probably like a for me. This is like a seven. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'd come. I think I'm still coming in at eight. I did like enough of it. And I mean, yeah, that, that for me is a bit. solid, a solid like rating. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm always, you know, I'm always higher than you anyway, Nathan, <laughs> yeah, but, that's true, that's true. but, um, no, I, I think it's there. It's not going to be in my top 10 or anything like that. Like X probably will be, but I really enjoyed it and thought it was an interesting movie. Um, and I mean, I'm a huge Ty West fan, so and giving a Ty West movie an eight for me is pretty low on the end of the what I give his other films. 
Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so uh, two movies definitely worth checking out. I think Pearl's one that's going to find it, hopefully will find its feet on, uh, you know, VOD and on streaming. And and realistically, I think X didn't make a big splash at the box office either, really. like No, it didn't. It, it was like a, 11 mil or something. Yeah, yeah. it made a, a splash with horror fans, but I think that that's, that's about it. But, I mean, I, I could see, depending on, I mean, thing is, I, our year is so strong that I'm not sure if it, for me, Pearl will necessarily make the, the the end of the year list but hey it's a solid movie i really enjoyed it and i'm glad to see ty west back uh because i mean I, this i guess would go into the spoilers but stay stay tuned for the for the um for the credit sequence for this one so it's fun to see ty west back because i i was concerned for a little while that maybe he had sort of faded off the scene you know i was waiting yeah. for him to sort of like maybe hit big and do a movie with Blumhouse. I think when he finally ended up doing that, it was a Western that nobody really saw. Yeah, I saw it. It was good though. It was good. It's good. But I wondered for a few years after that, well, is he, you know, at one point he was kind of the up and comer with house of the devil and the keepers and movies like that. And I think that these two movies are uh, more in keeping with what we expected to see from him after those movies and sacrament, things like that. Yeah. This quality is there. And in fact, in some ways I think he's become a better filmmaker in both of these films, you can see him mature as a filmmaker than in those those other movies, which I love. I, House of the Devil, I think, and, and The Innkeepers are, are, in my opinion, fantastic movies. Yes. You yeah. can see a filmmaking improvement here, I think. Yeah, you can see that. And I think it's a situation, and we've seen this with um, Robert Eggers as well, um, the quality and the craft and everything is there. The commercial isn't necessarily there. And it's just a shame that, yes, he comes back. And I don't know. I think he was working on TV or something after In the Valley of Violence for a little bit. But he might have been putting these together for a while. And it's just so sad to me that they had they fell flat at the box office. And I think maybe if X would have came out a little later later in the year, because it seems like the horror box office has went through the roof here recently. Not everything is hitting, but maybe X, if it was pushed back a little bit, it might have done better, but we'll never know. We can't play that game, but it's just sad. I hope Ty West gets another chance after this. It's good sign they're letting him put out all three movies, but I hope he does get a good sh- another shot after this as well. Yes, I, I I totally agree. And and at the same time, you know, the thing is if Ty West is continuing to make movies in this vein, I think that's totally fine, uh, you know, as opposed to, doing something really big budget and, you know, getting kind of caught up on all that. I, I think that he handles these movies very well. Um, yes. But yes, definitely see Pearl if you get a chance. Uh, if for nothing else, for me, a Goss performance, which was really strong. But, you know, there's definitely some gore and some violence that happens towards the end that that uh, that has that almost kind of like seedier drive-in feel that you might be looking for, you know. So yep. that, that ties it back into X as well. So. Yep. I guess for um, the next big, I guess really the only other really big movie we're going to talk about, and then you have a couple of mini reviews, uh, is a film that just came out that had a really good weekend at the box office and mm-hmm. has really generated a lot of uh, a, a a lot of publicity. And uh, the weekend before this, when I had gone to see Pearl, I was sitting in the theater with my buddy. We both had the AMC pass, and we saw the trailer for this movie, about the 88th or ninth time I've seen the trailer for this movie. And I thought, you know, and, and he said, hey, you know, we should probably just go see that next week because, you know, we've seen a lot worse. And I said, yeah. I don't think I'm going to do that. <laughs> and uh, because for all the world, this movie looked to me like at best, 
it looked like it might be a moderately entertaining like supernatural thriller the kind of like down you know uh, one and done deal where it's like okay this is, but that that would be best scenario worst case scenario i thought all oh, this looks like it could be a really bad like grudge sequel or something you know mm-hmm. and it or those movies we got about three or four years ago that looked like horror films made with a snapchat filter you know all those like yeah truth or dare or countdown and all of those oh, movies yeah and uh yeah so this movie's called smile the trailers did absolutely nothing for me it looked like a well-trod earth that we have been over many many times before and the the best case scenario i thought would be a movie like lights out which i enjoyed or a movie like come play which came out sort of in the middle of the pandemic and i also liked and you know mm-hmm. it's all of my kids but it looked like that kind of thing almost like a creepy pasta come to life you know like yes something. that's what i was thinking the whole time nathan i was like yeah. this is this person has gotten really into creepy pasta this, <laughs> this story the whole way it's unfolding sounds exactly like it but continue sorry yeah yeah so this movie uh smile and then i started to hear good things and i was like you know what let's Let's give it a whirl. But do you want to go ahead and set this one up for us, Trey? I know you yeah. just saw it today. so Yeah, I'm fresh. I'm really fresh on this one. And it's funny. We've had this year a lot of directors who are making comebacks or they're having their next big movie come out. And with Barbarian and Smile, we have two films that kind of came out of nowhere and are done by pretty much unknowns. But it's it's like what you said, Nathan. It's This is coming from a big studio. This is a Paramount movie. Um and you never know what those ones is what they're going to put out there. But have, did you see the um, and real quick before we set this up, did you see like the the marketing campaigns they were doing that weren't like trailers and stuff that were they were doing in real life? No, I, I saw you say something. You or someone had said, oh, it's got a brilliant marketing campaign. It does, I didn't know yeah. what that meant. I'd seen the cool little poster. It was like smiles and smiles and smiles and smiles going back and forth. But I was like, oh, I must not know what, what he's referencing. No, it was like at um, baseball games and like in the back of like a, a morning show and stuff. They'd have someone just standing there smiling uncomfortably that at the camera. Is brilliant. It was like a viral marketing campaign. I think that has a lot to do with... Um, why the movie succeeded because it was creepy. I mean, these people were just standing there smiling, unsettling on national TV. Like they bought them a front row seat to a baseball game and they're (laughs) for real. I didn't know any of that. It makes me like it all the more. (laughs) Yeah. Go check out the pictures of that. They should be somewhere over social media, but I, I, yeah, I saw that and I think that did more for it than any trailer would. Um, But this is basically, I'll give a real quick synopsis of this one. This one, um, doesn't have it's not as thick on the plot as the last two. It's something we've pretty much seen before, but I think it's interesting the way it does it. And we have a uh, therapist who works at a hospital and they get someone who comes in and they're really like manic and seem like something's going on with them and trying to explain it. Well, she witnesses uh, that person commit suicide and then we go on this whole trail of like well she was saying she was seeing things and now maybe our main character starting to see things and so on and so forth i mean that's how it unfolds basically trying to figure out what's going on our main character is she going insane things like that it's something we've seen time and time again but i think what it does best here it's not the plot as we've talked about nathan it's not necessarily the characters although i think our lead for someone who i'm not familiar with I think does a pretty good job of got a pretty good range. Oh, she's fantastic. She's really good. She's fantastic. Yeah. She is 
she's giving a performance that also, I mean, if the, the performance like this won't be nominated, but she is carrying this movie. Uh, there's a lot of, lots of things that recommend about it, but she is carrying this movie uh, with her performance. And it, we'll talk maybe more about that in a new, more nuanced yeah. way than say Pearl. Yeah. And I think that um, I just, she just kept winning me over more and more as the movie went on because of the different states she's in mentally and the, yeah. it's incredible. But what this really does well is just the, and I'll use this word again, probably unsettling or unnerving really is how some of this stuff gets. And you look at it on a trailer and you're like, well, that's dumb. That looks real dumb. How are they going to pull that off? And then you'll see some of these scenes in the way they present it in the way they happen is just incredible. I mean, you've got some scenes where I was sitting in the movie theater and I felt like chills running up my spine. And I never feel that for horror movies anymore. So even if that allowed me, I think to forgive some of the things around it that weren't necessarily like top notch or top tier. And yeah, it's just, as it plays out more and more, and this has a ton of jump scares or music cues and things like that, right, Nathan? <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I think I saw, I think it was uh, uh, Jay Piles from, uh, you know, uh, Jay of the Dead's new horror movies. Like, he, I think it was him. He said something on Twitter, and he was one of the first ones that I, who, who I saw mention something about it, said something along the lines of, like, oh, it's the Olympics of jump scares. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, it's not necessarily far off. No, and I thought I had that in my head going in. And every time there was another like loud bang or musical cue, I was like, there it is. But the jump scares aren't the things they're necessarily playing for horror. I think it's much more nuanced than that. And they bring some of these some of these things come out of nowhere, but it's not like they're they're right in your face like the jump scares. So I think I think it just helps to they're constantly building and relieving tension in this movie you got a scene where it's so tense and you're on edge and then they relieve it and let you breathe for a little bit and they bring it right back. It does a great job of that. Um, and the other thing I was going to see about the jump scares, I had a very, I would say kind of a more rambunctious crowd in for this movie. I don't usually go um, at these kind of times, but Nathan, have you ever been in a movie theater where someone's saying, you know, like, Oh, don't do that. Don't answer that phone. Don't look behind you. That kind of stuff. Oh, for sure. Yes. Dude straight up said, shut up (laughs) as loud as he could after someone did that. He wasn't having it. (laughs) See that for years when I was going to the screenings, like that's kind of the normal crowd. I'm used to that. There were, we had one like that was smile was more like uncomfortable laughter with this, but right before the show started here that we were recording tonight, we talked about, um, darkness falls. And I'd seen that one with my wife. And I remember distinctly that when someone screaming, eat them, Blair, Witch, eat them. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) the Blair, Witch doesn't actually make an appearance in that film, but, um, anyway, yeah, I think that this is definitely an audience engaged kind of movie because of some of the things that go on in it. Mm -hmm. But, um, anything else? Did you, I I don't want to jump in until no, go, go right ahead and land whatever you need to talk about. Yeah. I, I, was also like you really kind of um impressed with the movie because and on one hand it isn't very original in its uh, even more so than you know we talk about some of these other movies that have kind of big surprises smile isn't really generating off that it is very much has been marketed like a kind of 
down the line, here's a horror movie that's going to appeal to the teenage base and the people that like to go see mainstream horror movies. You know, it isn't trying to get you in with elevated horror, at least, you know, those trailers and stuff. And in every, it looks like it's going to be jump scares and, and, and maybe uh, not amazing special effects and maybe some goofy sort of gimmicks. And it think at one level, it does deliver that kind of movie, but at the, at the best possible level, but these people who like to throw, and I don't like the term elevated horror, honestly. I mean, I love movies that try to give you something more to think about. And I think Smile does that because there's a bit of psychological horror in this movie. Uh, the way this movie uses some of its tropes goes beyond just the surface level. It has the sort of textures of a good short story uh, where we get into this character's headspace. And we understand that this idea of what's happening where these people who are clearly already very troubled, they would have been troubled uh, most likely no matter what had happened. And yet these th something has found its way into their lives. And the question is, is this main character, Sosie Bacon, who's the actress who's playing the main character, is she seeing this because the pieces make sense to her because of what's happened in her own life? Or is this a legitimate phenomena that extends beyond her? And really, the movie plays with that, not in a jerk-you-around sort of way, but is the central theme of the film. What is really going on here? And it here's what I think separates it from what I thought it was going to be and what it ended up being. So, The Lights Out and Come Play, again, I think those are fine movies, but they stay very much in a theme where the characters are only sort of nominally developed. We really are waiting on the next jump scare in a film like that, or the next appearance of the creature or the, uh, the supernatural, uh, you know, goings on, whatever it is that we're waiting for. And the movie sort of is in a lot of times, it's just keeping time between those pieces, right? It's giving you just enough dialogue, just enough stuff to get from one creepy set piece to the next creepy set piece. I mean, I'd argue that with The Conjuring, the thing that worked for The Conjuring is the fact that they got the, those performances by Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson as the Warrens. They're, they're just holding together a bunch of creepy set pieces, right? <laughs> that go from one piece to the next piece to the next piece. In a movie like this, what's interesting is that these is less a sense of these creepy set pieces and more of a pervasive sense of dread that settles over the movie along with the jump scares. And like you say, the jump scares are handled in a very different way. The movies that this started to remind me of are movies like It Follows, not just because of the plot, but thematically how they're, they're laid out. Yep. Um, a film like Candyman, the 1992 Candyman. I think the, uh, you, if you take the urban legend aspect and kind of set it to the side, the structural movements of this movie are very similar to that one, and particularly how things begin to escalate in terms of a character's mental state as the movie goes forward. And, and, and this idea, here's the difference, is... There were very much movie universes in movies like Lights Out. You know, you're inside of a horror movie. A movie like Candyman, I, I think I remember it was, I think it was Roger Ebert who said that they give us a very realistic Chicago in that film, right? They give mm -hmm. us a very realistic world. They make a world so real that you believe a Candyman could live inside of it. That it could, a Candyman could be real. And... That's true of It Follows and some of these other films. They give us a world that feels so realistic and so textured that a supernatural entity could inhabit it. The Exorcist did this. And it would feel real and unsettling. And I liked a lot of the jump scares in this movie. And some of them harken back to, there was one, and some of them are just done with sound design and transitions. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 the biggest jump I got in this movie, I, this 
a little bit of a spoiler, but I don't think anyone's going to care. The biggest jump I got in this film was someone opening a can of cat food. And that, that <laughs> hearkened to me back to Fallen. There are a lot of things that the 1998's Fallen with Denzel Washington and John Goodman and Donald Sutherland and Ambeth Davids. That movie has some similarities structurally and, and, and thematically to this one, but that film had a similar playful use of sound design. In that movie, I remember jumping nearly out of my seat because the transitioning of a Coke machine a can of Coke falling out of a machine just done at the right moment to transition one scene to the other, and boom, you've got a jump scare. And I kind of like that when someone's a little more creative and I just jumped because someone opened a can of cat food. Yeah, I forgot about those transitions, but there are, I mean, you never get from scene to scene just by fading to black. I mean, there's some great transitions in this movie and a bunch of Dutch angles too as well. Oh yeah, yeah. This movie is directed so well. It's acted so well. Every and in, in the soundtrack, we were talking, as we walked out of the movie, we were talking about the soundtrack, even the dialogue, the way it is placed, this is a very crisply and uh, purposefully directed movie so that even when it's not original, and even when you sort of feel the, which is the nature of the story is such that you're going to be sort of, uh, it, it sometimes feels like a snake chasing its tail, right? You sort of mm-hmm. find yourself repeating certain cycles in certain moments, but there's a lot of unsettling moments in this. One of the creepiest moments involves just uh, seeing something in the corner of a room. And I love that it replicates what it's really like when, you know, um, particularly, you know, the times I, I would walk into my apartment back in the days of being in college and walk into a room and be certain that someone was sitting in the chair there waiting for me, but it's just the right angle and the clothes and the jacket that I had hanging there. And maybe the way a pair of pants was slung over that it's not a person at all, but in a film like this, you're like, well, is it? And I think that that stuff works so well. Val Luton comes to mind watching a movie like smile, uh, who, who also did the great transition of hearing the trolley car just come rattling right into the frame. Like Mm -hmm. if you're a fan of Val Luton, it doesn't seem like Smile will be that kind of movie, but it is. But again, I got to say that it comes down to that central performance. But there's some good, you know, the special effects are good. The soundtrack, the, the sound design on that soundtrack. Is the supporting good. cast is good, too. I mean, you got yeah. Cal Penn as well, who I think plays his role well. I didn't even I know everyone... Cal Penn until the movie was over. I was like, this guy yeah. is so familiar. And I saw his name and I got, how did I not like connect that? But I think it's because you're drawn in to what's happening and you're sort of just following along and there we talk again about humor there's some dark like gallows humor here there's a couple scenes there's one scene if if they just do so much in such a purposeful way there's not like a wasted moment there's a scene where something is going on in a car and it pans over to another person observing it and that's a pretty big but dark laugh (laughs) in my opinion yeah and yeah uh, but there are some there are some things that happen that you don't think would happen in a million years and it happens and the movie creates a lot of dread and discomfort. I just was totally sort of blown away by this. Even talking about it now, I realize how it's even more effective than I think I that it was while I was watching it. Yeah, I got the chills just thinking of some of the scenes in this right now. Yeah. So if that says anything, and I just hold in here. I, I saw know. it in Dolby, and that was the way to see it, man. So, oh, uh, I did not, but I had speakers right by yeah. my seat, so it was <laughs> the sound was bumping. You should see it in a theater if you can. If you're listening to this review and you're on the fence about it. I mean, I think it's fair to say that, Trey, you and I, we, we usually don't go out for uh, the sort of recycled ghost, or at least I don't, you know, ghost movies. No. And again, I know you like I'll Amityville catch those on Redbox, maybe, yeah. if I, yeah, if, bringing up Amyville. I'm just kidding. Nah. <laughs> but, um, but no, you know, like, I think, I think we are on the same page that some of these films, uh, the kind of movie it looked like, it's not. And even the, the ones that, you know, or geez, this is not a bye-bye man. And no. 
Uh, but it's also not even a lights out, which is, again, I think perfectly a serviceable, fun movie that did what it was supposed to do. This one's a little bit more than that. And honestly, like, you know, I've I've come up on it a bit that this is an, this is an eight for me. And I won't lie, you know, this this probably does have a shot at the top ten. Yeah, um, I'm going to split the difference of my other two scores tonight. And this one comes in. I've been going back and forth on this. Do I put it lower? Do I put it higher? But I think an eight point five is the sweet spot for this. And I. I don't know if it'll make my top 10, but it'll make my, um, you know, it's going to be in the upper tier of the list. Yeah, for sure. it, it's such a strong year, it, it, but it's, it's, it's going to be there in the honorable mentions of nowhere else. Yeah. It's so, it's so good. And like you're saying, it's any other year, this would have easily been a top 10 film, I think. But uh, I mean, this is great. I mean, we're thinking about these three movies that we reviewed tonight. It's just been such a good streak here. And some of these I didn't expect. A lot of these I did not expect. So, yeah, I'm just really amped about horror and amped about watching some new releases. I'm sure as we get in through October, there will be some disappointments there. And then my excitement will slowly get killed. But um, I'm riding high right now, Nathan. <laughs> yeah. Kind of like how we were in the spring when we were doing these reviews as well and seeing some really good stuff come out back to back to back. Right. And not even just in horror, but just in general, and, and particularly in yeah. genre in, in yeah. general. So. Uh, but I think horror's got its moment. I'm very much looking forward. We'll see next weekend when Hellraiser comes out if that continues. Oh yeah, I'm, I keep forgetting about Hellraiser. Yeah, I'm more excited about Hellraiser than I am the you know the new Halloween movie. But we'll we'll see how. Oh, it ten is. times for so, me. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm a different animal on that one. Yeah, no, no, no. I think I think we're in the same uh, spot on that. But you did tell me you saw a couple of other movies this weekend. I haven't I haven't quite got to them again. I was out at the uh, convention this weekend. So there's a lot of streaming stuff that just dropped and uh, a lot of it looks looks pretty good. So I know you saw at least two of them. So do you want to talk about the, those, Trey? Yeah. And we're we're in the time of the year. It seems like every October for the past few years, we get inundated with horror releases in the month for VOD stuff or yeah. streaming stuff. Everyone's trying to put their stuff out like Hulu will have a few and here and there and whatever. Everyone's got their stuff, even Amazon stepping up, finally releasing Run Sweetheart Run, which again, I think I've talked about will nowhere near live up to the the expectations I had of that movie when it was supposed to come out. What and was that 2020? Um, so, but speaking of Amazon, that's where I want to get into this is they are, uh, they put out another one here and I caught these Friday. So one of them was brand new on Friday and then one of them came out, I think Thursday on Shudder. Uh, but the Amazon Prime and Prime one was my best friend's exorcism. And this one's definitely not going to be for everyone. I think it speaks a lot to me just in general going in because of the type of premise it has, you know, with teens getting in a horror situation and it's got a, it's a throwback feel. It's like throwback to the eighties. And this was based off a book series. I have not read any of the books. I've seen their covers. They look really cool, but I think that's where a lot of the mixed reaction comes in on this one. And I'll get into that when I give my score. But essentially, we have a pair of best friends who are teenagers and going to high school or I think it's a Catholic school. It's a private school in the 80s. And something happens to one of them when they, you know, again, play with a Ouija board. Don't do it. You never do that. (laughs) And uh, something so something weird happens to one of them and she starts going through changes And it starts getting pretty gruesome and they realize to get to the point they've got to do something to save this person and to save themselves. Really, everyone's kind of in danger in this. Um, And just like the title says, you know, one of them is or perceived to be, you know, possessed. This is a movie that is 
I think a lot of the reason for the mixed reception I've seen from people so far is it kind of has problems with its tone. And Nathan, I don't know how you feel about 2011's Fright Night, but I think there was a similar thing there where it was very serious and dire for the first half of the movie, and then it got a little bit more fun in the second half. Now, I think this is closer in tone to the original Fright Night a little bit. It's a lot campier. It's a lot goofier and things like that. I'm not comparing it on a level of Fright Night because that's an all-time classic for me. But I think it is in line maybe with that 2011 Fright Night as far as like my enjoyment out of it, which, which I, I lo- think is a good movie. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I like that one, too. So I saw the trailer for this. Today. Actually, my my wife and I watch it. And, and when it was over, she was like, yeah, we're, we're going to watch this one. Uh, my the, my best friend's exorcism. You know what vibe I was getting from that? And it's very much in keeping with Fright Night, but maybe even a little goofier. And it came a few years later and you may not have seen it. Uh, Idle Hands. Did you see Idle Hands? Yes, I love Idle Hands. How does and that, does it that kind of tone? Because that's what I, the vibe not, I was getting. So, <laughs> so it's not quite as goofy as Idle Hands. <laughs> but, um, well, I don't know though. So, We get to a point, and I'm not going to spoil anything on this one, obviously, but the first half is very much like they're going through this girl, you know, she starts to deteriorate deteriorate in her looks. Um, She starts to maybe start to do some stuff that's out of character and things like that. It's treated very seriously until we get to a certain point with one of these symptoms. And then it it starts to get a little bit, you know, there's some um, dark humor thrown in. And then we get to the point where we're getting ready to perform an exorcism and getting into the meat of like, you know, the title of the movie. And I'm telling you, Nathan, it is just I I laughed. I thought it was very funny. It's it's goofy and off the wall. It's almost to the level of idle hands. I think you're on the right track in that is very campy. It's very goofy, especially when you get to that turn in the movie. And I think that's obvious. I think that's honestly what's throwing some people off is maybe they're expecting one way or the other. And it's kind of straddling that line for some of the movie. I think I've also seen some negatives of people, you know, shockingly people who love a book uh, don't necessarily care for the movie. I've been guilty of that myself several times, but um, I think it's fun. I think it's a real uh, cool, enjoyable movie. It's that campy eighties feel. And I liked the characters and everything. I wasn't necessarily on board at first, but it won me over. And especially by the time we get to that, I think when you get into that exorcism, it's just full on like you're in it and you get sucked into the cheesiness and campiness. Um, Yes, absolutely love that. And I want to look up this actor really quick, Nathan, and then I'll wrap this up. Uh, Who is it? It is Chris Lowell, who plays the, um, you know, the kind of exorcist character here. Just hilarious. Uh, he does a great job in this movie and for his short time in the in the film. So um, I would say absolutely check this one out on Prime. Most everyone has Prime, I think. So there's no harm in doing it. If it looks cool to you and you think it sounds interesting, I'd come in around. I mean, I came in high on this one. I came in at like an eight on this one. Um, I really wow, liked this cool. one. Yeah, I really liked this one. And uh, I might have even liked it a little better, better than Pearl just because I like that schlock and campiness. Um that goes along with that stuff. And I like the teenage driven 80s stories. So that's all I have to say about my best friend's exorcism. But I think it's definitely worth checking out if it seems like something you're interested in. I guess the way I want to say it. Yeah, I totally am. So I, uh, I think you and your wife will like it. I think so. I, I think so. I mean, I, that is this, I, I definitely go out for this sort of thing. So I think that, um, that's definitely a very likely uh, 
Uh, <laughs> that's definitely going to be in our future either way, whether we like it or not at this point, we're going yeah. to see it. But I, and I haven't, I saw the book. I almost picked it up a couple times, uh, particularly when, um, you know, uh, our Barnes and Noble was kind of having a big sale on books. And then, but by the time I got to looking for it, probably people had already bought it. So I didn't get a, a chance, which, which might be better in the long run here for me, yeah. you know, that yeah. I don't have to, uh, kind of contend with that so yep. yeah and the last thing i'll say it, i'm just thinking of now nathan is don't go in expecting like fear street this is much goofier much sillier i think it's fair to like put those same vibes you know book adaptation kind of um and throwback yeah. time periods but yeah it's its own thing for sure well and i think that we've talked like i don't actually have a problem with it being you know the vibe being uh like that uh no, to, no. To, to being that sort of thing so I'm I'm looking forward to it. So how about this other movie that also seemingly I watched the trailer too, the movie you're about to talk about, and I couldn't quite tell what that one. It seemed totally <laughs> it could go a couple di- different directions. It didn't look it did definitely didn't look as silly, but it looked like it could definitely get kind of uh uh you know wild and comedic as well. So yeah, so this one is sissy, and it came out on Shutter on I think nine twenty nine. And that's not sissy as in like the first thing I thought I saw without, you know, was like the what the kids used to call each other and stuff, throwing insults at the other call yeah, yeah. sissy or something like that, which I guess that plays in kind of Nathan. This is a this is a dark comedy. <laughs> it's a horror movie for sure. But um, I think the vibe that you were getting is a very much a black humor. Yeah, it's dark humor. And so, because it plays itself seriously, all the characters are there being serious, but these situations are very much comedy. And at first I was a little taken aback on this one because it gets into that like influencer culture and that kind of stuff early on. And there's definitely some very much, um, I think we get so much of this now is this unsettling, like social horror type stuff where, and not social media horror, but social was in like social situations being very awkward or very painful to watch. I think there's a lot of that in this movie and it builds up a, it takes a little while to build up. I don't think you're going to care about any of the characters in this movie. And you don't necessarily need to. But I think this is definitely a slasher type movie. It's a modern take on a slasher. And just watching this thing unfold and Sissy going on the journey that she goes on and how this all ends up. It's just fun. Um, I might compare it to something else Shudder did, something like Vicious Fun or something like that. What was the movie, the one with the host, the B&B host? I don't know if you oh, saw that one. Oh, yeah, Superhost. Superhost, yeah. It was something like along those lines, like I was getting that Kind of, yeah, because there's those awkward situations, and it's very much all the actors. I think there's a line of those that Shudder has put out, because even in like Slacks, the people are playing it straight. It's just, it's just like there's no way to take that yes. seriously, right? Um and it's not that it's not that goofy, but yeah, it's definitely along those lines is these characters are playing it very much straight and they're very like acting like real people. But the situations are just so absurd and hilarious. And um, I wouldn't say hilarious, but they're funny. Um, but that's what you have with Sissy. It's very fun. It's not going to, you know, it's not going to be profound or give you some life shattering message. But it's a great way to spend, you know, a weeknight or a weekend night in October watching it. That sounds awesome. That sounds really cool, actually. So, yeah. And I think, sorry, I did not give a a score on that one, but I think I'm around. I don't know. It's a 7.5 or an eight. It's around that range. So I really like that one, too. 
Um, so like I said, I've been really happy with the horror that I've been watching lately. Very cool. I am excited to see it. And it looks, yeah, there's a vibe going on in that movie that's like, it is a certain type of horror that we get a lot of now. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not. But I think it's one that's going to require some escalation. You know what I mean? Yes. And if it escalates properly and it was like, okay, I think I see exactly where it's going. Superhost was like that. But I think down to those are really what I love about some of these movies. They really become down to the performances. You know, they become how well are these characters going to sell you on their journey? And I, I'm enjoying the fact that the special effects in these movies are the actor. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. And I mean, there's some gruesome stuff in this one, but you're never, it's funny because you mentioned that and there's a scene I'm thinking of particularly where Sissy is very much having, like, it seems like she's having this mental breakdown, but you know, something's about to happen to the character that's with her. And the character I think senses that too. And it's just this growing escalation and tension. And then you just get, you know, um, just the dark humor of it all. And I think that's, it's in the vein of those ones that I, I mentioned for sure. Shutter's shutter puts out a good bit of those. It, and you know what? I would take those any day of the week over some of the more, um, dour and you know very self-serious movies that they've been putting out um recently or just here and there you know very hit or miss on shutter but i would take the fun one over the self-serious one any day um unless the self-serious one's really really good you know but right yeah yeah exactly well a lot of good stuff so what's your rating on that one You know what? I'm just going to, I'm just going to give it an eight. That's fine. (laughs) I was teetering between a 7.5 and an eight. I'll just go higher. (laughs) Right. Just in case I come by and it was, you know, uh, I'll be a 7.5. I'm sure. Um, but (laughs) I have no idea, but I am looking forward to seeing it. I'm looking forward to all those. There's a lot of other ones out there as well, but uh, yeah, I think that's what we have a huge show. I think this might be one of those really big epic ones. It's not, it's not nine hours, but you know, no. <laughs> <laughs> we've got a lot of content. So uh, Trey, go ahead and uh, tell everybody where they can find you what's going on over on, in your neck of the woods on screaming through the ages. Yeah. First off, um, like Nathan was saying earlier, we do have the phantom video uh, podcast where we've gotten a couple of episodes out. Our first official one just came out and that's a lot of fun. Just going down and talking physical media. And that is here on the phantom galaxy feed for right now. Um, other than that on screaming through the ages. So as this is happening, I've got a weekly weekly shows coming out in October. The first one coming out on the third will be a bonus one that I did with Nathan, where we, do our combined list of our top 15 kaiju. Um, I'm going to shift after that, and there will be, you know, the regular bi-weekly show will be a couple of episodes celebrating the giallo genre and going through the history and everything with those. Um, and then I'll have a couple other bonus episodes in between those ones, including a shorter one that I think is kind of uh, cool and different that I'm going to release on Halloween. So a lot of cool stuff coming up this month. It's been a lot of work, but I can see the light at the end of the tunnel with that, with those shows, Nathan. So I think people are going to like the, uh, or I hope they do the, um, stuff I put out over there. Um, but you can follow the podcast over on Twitter at screaming ages, or I've got a Facebook group, um, screaming through the ages over there. And yeah, that's about all I have for plugs. Very cool. That's the Phantom Galaxy. Uh, Trey, thanks for joining us. Yeah, um, right. Without uh, further ado, then, we will go ahead and close the show out. Um, 
but where Trey has his stuff. Is there anything else you'd like to promote coming up? Yeah. So we have a lot of stuff coming up. Um, October is going to be a big month. We've got a lot of shows that will be coming out in October, and we've got a couple. Bill and I are uh, figuring out last bits. We are definitely going to have some Halloween content. Big episode that uh, you can look for next. Strange Frequencies anniversary episode that's um, it's going to be a lot of fun because basically the entirety of Land of the Creeps came over to our podcast, and unfortunately I wasn't able to join. I, um, it came down oh, with like a back Oh, you popped in muscles. from time to time. Uh, once to check and see if you guys were done. <laughs> My back was a hot mess that night. I like woke up and came down and, uh, you guys were finishing up, but yeah, I, I think I walked up to, you could hear you still talking. I'm like, okay, guys. <laughs> uh, I think that was about 1230 in the morning. You're like, okay. We're yeah. Done. Yeah. It's finally like you'd wrap it well, up. And, and when you guys finally do hear this, we think we're done. And then we ramble for half an hour about various topics. Yeah. It's big. Well, that's that, that they expect. Um, <laughs> but uh yeah that's gonna be big we've got um the x-file season five um and then we'll also we've got uh, some cool stuff so uh the facebook page go over there and check it out excuse me the episode just dropped was our first kind of official episode of phantom video where we look at home movie releases and this one was covering stuff that came out in august because again as i mentioned uh with being sick and the school starting for the kids and stuff we got kind of i had a small hiatus there but we are we're fully back at swing of things just cover the august releases and then for uh about three movies that we each pick a movie and review that's on uh on home media on physical media and uh, my host over the co-hosts over there are dave becker and trey whetstone and uh, we we have a fun time, and we're gonna that show has been getting a, a really good response. So we will have a new episode of Illustrated Fan coming in October as well. And uh, we've got a really fun episode we recorded with Joel a bit ago uh, that that is introducing um, just another kind of format of the show where we're gonna do we pick two movies and do sort of the double feature, and that one's gonna be really cool. We have two horror films that'll be perfect for Halloween, and uh, so stay tuned. And like I say, get over the Facebook group. We've got quite a uh, a, a bit of people over there. I'm going to start this week um, ramping up into our into Halloween in October. We're going to try to and and Bill, feel free. Everyone who's listening to this and you go over to the the uh, Phantom Galaxy page, feel free to do this too. We're going to try to do the 31 days of Halloween. I'm going to try to post a movie that I'm watching or have watched for every single day. If you guys want to join in and do that, that would be awesome as well. We'll try to do some giveaways and some different events. Uh, planning to head to a horror convention this weekend so i'll see if i can't uh, get anything going there as well bill so i was gonna say nathan i think you have a box of movies your wife would love for us to give away oh god yes yeah no kidding just got to get some postage um so with that uh that's all i have um there is the you can uh, other places you can hear me there is an upcoming episode of uh dvd infatuation podcast of the uh over at considering the cinema that is the dvd six-pack where dave becker and i end up talking for close to five hours <laughs> where we did we cover six movies that we each pick three and then we also did a top 10 and then we cover music and so <laughs> we each picked some songs so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a it's a land of the creeps episode it's a almost except with just two people so there you go <laughs> and bill i know you've you've been a kind of a uh, all about the place as well. So you want to plug anything um, outside well, of Phantom Galaxy? Well, the only thing outside of Phantom Galaxy, other than Land of the Creeps, is I was on an episode of Headlong into Monsters with Raul and Ashley. Oh, by the way, Raul, in Speak No Evil, there is some dong at the end.
So yeah, uh, you've got that to look forward. Yeah, it's just uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah that, I'm not even I'm not even getting into it. I just in that, that moment I, though, it's not you know you're not really no, like it, it's not a turn on sexual moment. It's just <laughs> it's dong. And so if that's, there's if that's, that. those are the only parameters. And yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it just came out today when we recorded this that if you're a fan of Land of the Creeps, we've come out with merchandise, uh, t-shirts, sweatshirts. I've ordered a, a long sleeve shirt and a hoodie. Uh, there's mugs, there's stickers. So flip over to there. And I know down the road at some point, Nathan's talked about us getting some merch. So that could be a year down the line. Who knows? It but could be we'll me drawing it. something on with a magic marker. So I can't promise. Uh, you yeah, anything. Uh, that's that's Nathan, my Ella and his uh, Johnny uh, creating some kind of art and throwing it on. a Yeah, shirt. right. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that is. So anybody, every, anyways, stay safe, stay healthy. We've had people go down in our workforce again with COVID this week. So just stay healthy, get in there, watch a movie. That will uh, conclude tonight's uh, tonight's entertainment. So take care, everyone. Have a great one. Bye-bye. If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth pop, a lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes you can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com and until next time we are the phantom galaxy mm-hmm.